This is going to be a bit of a long intro, but it shouldn't be through the entire series. So the other day, John Carter, the movie, was brought to my attention again. From, I think it was the iceberg, science fiction iceberg. And then it reminded me it was based on a book. So I thought, hey, we keep looking forward at new stories. Maybe it's time we look back at some classic sci-fi. And if memory serves from the movie, this would in theory be both HFY and humans are space orcs, all rolled up into one, written almost a hundred years ago. So, there we go. I'm gonna keep the intro short for this series, just to try it out, and I'm gonna read the forward as well as all the chapters. There are 28 chapters in this book, I'll read one a night, post it like normal, and um, yeah... We'll see how it goes. There are six books that are in the public domain currently for this series, which all follow the chronicles of the same character. These are all available on projectgutenberg.com, in case you're interested, freely available for you to read and download and distribute however you wish. So, yeah, hopefully you enjoy this and we can read all the books together and enjoy this old-school HFY and Humans of Space Hawks.
Anyways, on to the story. A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burrow, dedicated to his son, Jack. Forward to the reader of this work. In submitting Captain Carter's strange manuscript to you in book form, I believe that a few words relative to this remarkable personality will be of interest. My first recollection of Captain Carter is of the few months he spent at my father's home in Virginia, just prior to the opening of the Civil War. I was then a child of about five years, yet I well remember the tall, dark, smooth-faced athletic man whom I once called Uncle Jack. He seemed always to be laughing, and he entered into the sports of the children with the same hearty good fellowship he displayed towards the pastimes in which the men and women of his own age indulged. Or he would sit for an hour at a time, entertaining my old grandmother with stories of his strange wildlife in all parts of the world. We all loved him, and our slaves fairly worshipped the ground he trod. He was a splendid specimen of manhood, standing a good two inches over six feet, broad of shoulder and narrow of hip. But the carriage of the trained fighting man, his features were regular and clear-cut. His black hair and closely cropped, while his eyes were of steel grey, reflecting a strong and loyal character, filled with a fire of initiative. His manners were perfect, and his courtliness was the typical southern gentleman of the highest type. His horsemanship, especially after hounds, was a marvel and a delight even in the country of magnificent horsemen. I have often heard my father caution him against the wild recklessness but he would only laugh and say that the tumble that killed him would be from the back of a horse yet unfelled. When the war broke out, he left us, nor did I see him again for fifteen or sixteen years. When he returned, it was without warning, and I was much surprised to note that he had not aged apparently a moment, nor had he changed in any other outward way. He was, when others were with him, the same genial, happy fellow that we had known of old. But when he thought himself alone, I have seen him sit for hours gazing off into space, his face set in a look of wistful longing and hopeless misery. And that night, he would sit thus looking up at the heavens, and what I did not know until I read his manuscript years afterwards. He told us that he had been prospecting and mining in Arizona part of the time since the war, and that he had been very successful and was evidenced by all the unlimited amount of money with which he was supplied. As to the details of his life during these years, he was very reticent. In fact, we would not talk of them at all. He remained with us for about a year, and then went to New York, where he purchased a little place on the Hudson where I visited him once a year on the occasions of my trips to the New York market. My father and I owning and operating a string of general stores throughout Virginia at the time. Captain Carter had a small but beautiful cottage, situated on a bluff overlooking the river. During one of my last visits in the winter of 1885, I observed that he was much occupied in writing, I presume now, upon this manuscript. He told me at this time that if anything should happen to him, he wished me to take care of his estate, 
and he gave me a key to the compartment in the safe which stood in his study, telling me that I would find his will there and some personal instructions which he had me pledge myself to carry out with absolute fidelity. After I had retired for the night, I have seen him from my window standing in the moonlight on the brink of the bluff overlooking the Hudson with his arms stretched out to the heavens as though it appeal. I thought at the time that he was praying, although I never understood that he was in a strict sense of the term a religious man. Several months after I returned home for my last visit, the 1st of March 1886 I think, I received a telegram from him asking me to come at him at once. I had always been his favorite amongst the younger generation of carters, and so I hastened to comply with his demand. I arrived at the little station about a mile from his grounds on the morning of March 4, 1886, and when I asked the liveryman to drive me to Captain Carter's, he replied that if I was a friend of the captain's, he had some very bad news for me. The captain had been found dead shortly after daylight that very morning by the watchman attached to the adjoining property. For some reason, this news did not surprise me. But I hurried out of his place as quickly as possible, so that I could take charge of the body and his affairs. I found the watchman who had discovered him, together with the local police chief and several townspeople, assembled in his little study. The watchman related a few details connected with the finding of the body, which he had said had still been warm when he came upon it. It lay, he said, stretched full length in the snow with the arms outstretched above the head towards the edge of the bluff, and when he showed me the spot, it flashed upon me that it was identical to the one I had seen him in of the other nights, with his arms raised in supplication to the skies. There were no marks of violence on the body and with the aid of the local physician and the coroner's jury quickly reached the decision of the death from heart failure. Left alone in the study, I opened the safe and withdrew the contents of the drawer in which he had told me I would find my instructions. They were in part peculiar indeed, but I have followed them to each last detail as faithfully as I was able. He directed that I remove his body to Virginia without embalming, and that he be laid in an open coffin within a tomb which he previously had had constructed, and which, as I later learned, was well ventilated. The instructions impressed upon me that I must personally see that it was carried out just as he directed, even in secrecy if necessary. His property was left in such a way that I was to receive the entire income for 25 years. When the principal was to become mine, his further instructions related to this manuscript, which I was to retain sealed and unread, just as I found it, for eleven years. Nor was I to divulge its contents until twenty-one years after his death. A strange feature about the tomb, where his body still lies, is that the massive door is equipped with a single, huge, gold-plated spring lock which can be opened only from the inside. Yours very sincerely, Edgar Rice Burroughs. End of chapter. A Princess of Mars, chapter 1 of 28, on the Arizona Hills. I am a very old man. How old, I do not know. Possibly I am a hundred, possibly more. But I cannot tell because I have never aged as other men, 
nor do I remember any childhood. So far as I can recollect, I have always been a man, a man of about thirty. I appear today as I did forty years and more ago, and yet I feel that I cannot go on living forever, that someday I shall die to real death from which there is no resurrection. I do not know why I should fear death, I who have died twice and am still alive, but yet I have the same horror of it as you who have never died, and it is because of this terror of death, I believe, that I am so convinced of my mortality. And because of this conviction, I have determined to write down the story of the interesting periods in my life and my death. I cannot explain the phenomena. I can only set down here the words of an ordinary soldier of fortune, a chronicle of strange events that befell me during the ten years that my dead body laid undiscovered in the Arizona cave. I have never told the story, nor shall mortal man see this manuscript until after I have passed over for eternity. I know that the average human mind will not believe what it cannot grasp, and so I do not propose being pilloried by the public, the pulpit, and the press, and held up as a colossal liar when I am but telling the simple truths which someday science will substantiate. Possibly, the suggestions which I gained upon Mars, and the knowledge which I can set down in this chronicle, will aid in an earlier understanding of the mysteries of our sister planet. Mysteries to you, but no longer mysteries to me. My name is John Carter. I am better known as Captain Jack Carter of Virginia. At the close of the Civil War, I found myself possessed by several hundred thousand dollars. Confederate and Captain's Commission in the cavalry arm of the army which no longer existed. The servant of the state which had vanished with the hopes of the South. Masterless, penniless, and with my only means of livelihood, fighting gone. I determined to work my way to the Southwest and attempt to retrieve my fallen fortunes in search of gold. I spent nearly a year prospecting in the company of another Confederate officer. Captain James K. Powell of Richmond. We were extremely fortunate, for late in the winter of 1865, after many hardships and privations, we located the most remarkable gold-wearing quartz vein that our wildest dreams had ever pictured. Powell, who was a mining engineer by education, stated that we had uncovered over a million dollars worth of ore in a trifle over three months. As our equipment was crude and extreme, we decided that one of us must return to civilization, purchase the necessary machinery, and return with a sufficient force of men to properly work the mine. As Powell was familiar with the country, as well as with the mechanical requirements of mining, we determined that it would be best for him to make the trip. It was agreed that I was to hold down our claim against the remote possibility of it being jumped by some wandering prospector. On March 3rd, 1866, Powell and I packed his provisions on two of our burrows, and bidding me goodbye, he mounted his horse, and started down the mountainside towards the valley, across which led the first stage of his journey. The morning of Powell's departure was, like nearly all Arizona mornings, clear and beautiful. I could see him and his little pack animals picking their way down the mountainside towards the valley, and all during the morning, I would catch occasional glimpses of them 
as they topped a hog back or came out upon a level plateau. My last sight of Powell was about three in the afternoon as he had entered the shadows of the range of the opposite side of the valley. Some half an hour later, I happened to glance casually across the valley and was much surprised to note three little dots in about the same place that I had last seen my friend and his two pack animals. I am not given to needless worry, but the more I tried to convince myself that all was well with Powell and that the dots that I had seen on the trail were antelope or wild horses, I was less able to assure myself. Since we had entered the territory, we had not seen hostile Indian, and we had, therefore, become careless in the extreme, and were wont to ridicule the stories that we had heard of the great numbers of these vicious marauders that were supposed to haunt these trails, taking their toll in lives and torture of every party which fell into the merciless clutches. Powell, I knew, was well-armed and further, an experienced Indian fighter. But I too lived and fought for years amongst the Sioux in the north, and I knew that his chances were small against a party of cunning trading Apaches. Finally, I could endure the suspense no longer, and, arming myself with two cold revolvers and a carbine, I strapped two belts of cartridges about me and catching my saddle horse, started down the trail taken by Powell in the morning. As soon as I reached comparatively level ground, I urged my mount into a canter and continued this, where the going permitted, until, close upon dusk, I discovered the point where other tracks joined those of Pal. They were the tracks of unshod ponies, three of them, and the ponies had been galloping. I followed rapidly until darkness shutting down. I was forced to await the rising of the mood and given an opportunity to speculate on the question of the wisdom of my chase. Possibly, I had conjured up impossible dangers, like some nervous old housewife, and when I should catch up with Pal, I would get a good laugh from my pains. However, I am not prone to sensitiveness, and the following of the sense of duty, wherever it may lead, has always been a kind of fetish with me throughout my life which may account for the honors bestowed upon me by three republics and the decorations and friendships of an old and powerful emperor and several lesser kings, in whose service my sword has been read many a time. About nine o'clock the moon was sufficiently bright for me to proceed on my way, and I had no difficulty in following the trail at a fast walk, and in some places at a brisk trot until about midnight, I reached the waterhole where Powell had expected to camp. I came upon the spot unexpectedly, finding it entirely deserted, with no signs of having been recently occupied as a camp. I was interested to note that the tracks of the pursuing horsemen, for such I was now convinced that they must be, continued after Powell with only a brief stop at the hole for water, and always at the same rate of speed as his. I was positive now that the trailers were Apache and that they wished to capture Powell alive for the fiendish pressure of the torture, so I urged my horse onward at the most dangerous pace, hoping against hope that I would catch up with the rascals before they attacked him. But the speculation was suddenly cut short by a faint report of two shots far ahead of me. I knew that Powell would need me now if ever and I instantly urged my horse to the topmost speed at the narrow and difficult mountain trail. I had forged ahead perhaps a mile or more without hearing further sounds, 
where the trail suddenly debouched onto a small open plateau near the summit of the pass. I had passed through a narrow, overhanging gorge just before entering suddenly upon this tableland, and the sight which met my eyes filled me with consternation and dismay. The little stretch of level land was white with Indian teepees, and there were probably half a thousand warriors clustered around some object near the center of the camp. Their attention was so wholly riveted to this point of interest that they did not notice me, and I easily could have turned back into the dark recesses of the gorge and made my escape with perfect safety. The fact, however, that this thought did not occur to me until the following day removes any possible right to claim to heroism to which the narration of this episode might possibly otherwise entitle me. I did not believe that I made the stuff which constitutes heroes, because, in all of the hundreds of instances that my voluntary acts have placed me face to face with death, I cannot recall the single one where any alternative step to that I took occurred to me until many hours later. My mind is evidently so constituted that I am subconsciously forced into the path of duty without resource to tiresome mental processes. However that may be, I have never regretted that cowardice is not optional with me. In this instance I was, of course, positive that Powell was at the center of the attraction, but whether I thought or acted first, I do not know. But within an instant, from the moment the scene broke upon my view, I had whipped out my revolvers and was charging down upon the entire army of warriors, shooting rapidly and whooping at the top of my lungs, Single-handed, I could not have pursued better tactics, for the men, convinced by sudden surprise that no less than a regiment of regulars were upon them, turned and fled in every direction for their bows, arrows, and rifles. The view which their hurried routing disclosed filled me with apprehension and with rage. Under the clear rays of the Arizona moon lay Powell, his body fairly bristling with hostile arrows of the braves, that he was already dead I could not but be convinced, and yet I would have saved his body from mutilation at the hands of the Apaches as quickly as I would have saved a man himself from death. Riding close to him, I reached down from the saddle, and grasped his cartridge belt, drew him up across the withers of my mount. A backward glance convinced me that to return by the way I had come would be more hazardous than to continue across the plateau. So putting spurs to my poor beast, I made a dash for the opening at the pass, which I could distinguish on the far side of the tableland. The Indians had by this time discovered that I was alone, and I was pursued with imprecations, arrows, and rifle balls. The fact that it was difficult to aim anything but imprecations accurately by moonlight, that they were upset by the sudden and unexpected manner of my advent, and that I would rather rapidly moving target saved me from the various deadly projectiles of the enemy, and permitted me to reach the shadows of the surrounding peaks before orderly pursuit could be organized. My horse was traveling practically unguided, as I knew that I had probably less knowledge of the exact location of the trail to pass than he, and thus it happened that he entered a defile which led to the summit of the range, and not the pass which I had hoped would carry me to the valley and to safety. It is probable, however, that this is a fact that I owe my life and the remarkable experience and adventures which befell me during the following ten years. 
My first knowledge that I was on the wrong trail came when I heard the yells of the pursuing savages suddenly grow fainter and fainter far off to my left. I knew then that they had passed to the left of the jagged rock formation at the edge of the plateau, to the right of which my horse had borne me and the body of Powell. I drew the rein on a little level promontory overlooking the trail below to my left, and saw the party of pursuing Apache disappearing around the point of the neighboring peak. I knew the Indians would soon discover that they were on the wrong trail, and that the search for me would be renewed in the right direction as soon as they located my tracks. I had gone but a short distance further, when what seemed to be an excellent trail opened up around the face of the high cliff. The trail was level and quite broad and led upwards in a general direction I wished to go. The cliff arose for several hundred feet on my right, and on my left was an equal and nearly perpendicular drop to the bottom of a rocky ravine. I had followed this trail for perhaps a hundred yards when a sharp turn to the right brought me to the mouth of a large cave. The opening was about four feet in height and three to four feet wide and at this opening the trail ended. It was now morning, and with the customary lack of dawn, which is a startling characteristic of Arizona, it had become daylight almost without warning. Dismounting, I laid Powell upon the ground, but the most painstaking examination failed to reveal the faintest spark of life. I forced water from my canteen between his dead lips, bathed his face and rubbed his hands, working over him continuously for the better part of an hour in the face of the fact that I knew him to be dead. I was very fond of Powell. He was thoroughly a man in every aspect, a polished southern gentleman, a staunch and true friend, and it was with a feeling of the deepest grief that I finally gave up my crude endeavors at resuscitation. Leaving Powell's body where it lay on the ledge, I crept into the cave to recontour. I found a large chamber, possibly a hundred feet in diameter and thirty or forty feet in height, a smooth and well-worn floor, and many other evidence that the cave had, at some remote period, been inhabited. The back of the cave was so lost in dense shadow that I could not distinguish whether there was an opening into the other apartments or not. As I was continuing my examination, I commenced to feel a pleasant drowsiness creeping over me which I attributed to the fatigue of my long and strenuous ride, and the reaction from the excitement of the fight and the pursuit. I felt comparatively safe in my present location, as I knew that one man could defend the trail and the cave against an army. I soon became so drowsy that I could scarcely resist the strong desire to throw myself on the floor of the cave for a few moments' rest. But I knew that this would never do as it would mean certain death at the hands of my Indian friends, who might be upon me at any moment. With an effort, I started towards the opening of the cave, only to reel drunkenly against the side wall, and from there slip prone upon the floor. End of chapter. Chapter 2. The Escape of the Dead. A sense of delicious dreaminess overcame me. My muscles relaxed, and I was on the point of giving my way to the desire to sleep when the sound of approaching horses reached my ears. I attempted to spring to my feet, but was horrified to discover that my muscles refused to respond to my will. I was now thoroughly awake, 
but as unable to move a muscle as though turned to stone. It was then, for the first time, that I noticed a slight vapor filling the cave. It was extremely tenuous and only noticeable against the opening which led to daylight. There also came to my nostrils a faintly pungent odor, and I could only assume that I had been overcome by some poisonous gas. But why should I retain my mental faculties and yet be unable to move? I could not fathom. I lay facing the opening of the cave where I could see the short stretch of trail which lay beyond the cave and the turn of the cliff around which the trail led. The noise of the approaching horses had ceased, and I judged the Indians were creeping stealthily upon me along the little ledge which led to my living doom. I remember that I hoped that they would make short work of me, as I did not particularly relish the thought of the innumerable things that they might do to me if the spirit prompted them. I had not long to wait before a stealthy sound apprised me of their nearness, and then a war-bonneted, paint-streaked face was thrust cautiously around the shoulder of the cliff. The Apache's eyes looked into mine. That he could see me in the dim light of the cave, I was sure, for the early morning sun was falling upon me through the opening. The fellow, instead of approaching, merely stood and stared, his eyes bulging and his jaw dropped. And then another Apache's face appeared, and a third and a fourth and a fifth, craning their necks over their shoulders of their fellows whom they could not pass upon the narrow ledge. Each face was a picture of awe and fear, but for what reason I did not know, nor did I learn until ten years later that there were still other braves behind those who regarded me was apparent from the fact that the leaders passed back whispered words from those behind them. Suddenly, a low but distinct moaning sound issued from the recesses of the cave behind me, and as it reached the ears of the Indians, they turned and fled in terror, panic-stricken. So frantic was their effort to escape from the unseen thing behind me that one of the braves was hurled headlong from the cliff to the rocks below. Their wild cries echoed in the canyon for a short time, and then all was still once more. The sound which had frightened them was not repeated, but it had been sufficient as it was to start me speculating on possible horror which lurked in the shadows at my back. Fear is a relative term, and so I can only measure my feelings at that time by what I had experienced in previous positions of danger and by those that I have passed through since. But I can say, without shame, that if the sensations I endured during the next few minutes were fear, then may God help the coward, for cowardice is a surety its own punishment. To be held paralyzed, with one's back towards some horrible and unknown danger from a very sound of which the ferocious Apache warriors turned in wild stampede, as a flock of sheep would madly flee from a pack of wolves, seems to me last word in fearsome predicament for a man who had ever been used to fighting for his life with all energy and powerful physique. Several times I thought I heard faint sounds behind me, as if somebody moving cautiously. But eventually, even these ceased, and I was left to the contemplation of my position without interruption. I could but vaguely conjecture that the cause of my paralysis, and my only hope lay in that it might pass off as suddenly as it had fallen upon me. Late in the afternoon, my horse, which had been standing with the dragging rain before the cave, started slowly down the trail. Evidently, 
in search of food and water, and I was left alone with my mysterious unknown companion and the dead body of my friend, which lay just within my range of vision upon the ledge where I had placed it in the early morning. From then until possibly midnight, all was silent, in the silence of the dead. Then suddenly, the awful moan of the morning broke upon my startled ears, and there came from the black shadow the sound of a moving thing, and a faint rustling as of dead leaves. This shock to my already overstrained nervous system was terrible in the extreme, and with a superhuman effort I strove to break my awful bonds. It was an effort of the mind, of the will, of the nerves, not muscular, for I could not move even so much as a little finger, but nonetheless mighty for all of that. And then something gave. There was a momentary feeling of nausea, a sharp click as if a snapping of steel wire, and I stood with my back against the wall of the cave, facing my unknown foe. And then the moonlight flooded the cave, and there before me lay my own body, as it had been lying all these hours, with the eye staring towards the open ledge and the hands resting limply upon the ground. I looked first at my lifeless clay there upon the floor of the cave, and then down at myself in utter bewilderment. For there I lay clothed, and yet here I stood but naked as the minute of my birth. The transition had been so sudden and so unexpected that it left me for a moment forgetfulness of aught else than my strange metamorphosis. My first thought was, is this then death? Have I indeed passed over forever into that other life? But I could not well believe this, as I could feel my heart pounding against my ribs from the exertion of my effort to release myself from the senescences which had held me. My breath was coming in quick, short grasp cold sweat out of every pore of my body, and the ancient experiment of pinching revealed the fact that I was anything other than a wraith. Again, I was suddenly recalled to my immediate surroundings by the repetition of the weird moan from the depths of the cave. Naked and unarmed as I was, I had no desire to face the unseen thing which menaced me. My revolvers were strapped to my lifeless body, which, uh, for some unfathomable reason, I could not bring myself to touch. My carbine was in its boot, strapped to my saddle, and as my horse had wandered off, I was left without means of defense. My only alternative seemed to lie in flight, and my decision was crystallized by the recurrence of the rustling sound of the thing which now seemed, in the darkness of the cave and to my distorted imagination, to be creeping stealthily upon me. Unable to longer resist the temptation to escape this horrible place, I leapt quickly through the opening into the starlight of the clear Arizona night. The crisp, fresh mountain air outside of the cave acted as an immediate tonic, and I felt new life and new courage coursing through me. Pausing upon the brink of the ledge, I upbraided myself for what now seemed like a wholly unwarranted apprehension. I reasoned with myself that I had lain helpless for many hours within the cave, yet nothing had molested me, and my better judgment, when permitted in the direction of clear and logical reasoning, convinced me that the noises I had heard must have been resulted from a purely natural and harmless causes. Probably the conformation of the cave was such a slight breeze that had caused the sounds I heard. 
I decided to investigate. But first I left my head to fill my lungs with the pure, invigorating night air of the mountains. As I did so, I saw the stretching far below me a beautiful vista of rocky gorge. Moonlight and level, cacti studded flat, wrought with the moonlight into a miracle of soft splendor and wondrous enchantment. Few western wonders are more inspired than the beauties of the Arizona moonlit landscape. The silvered mountains in the distance, the strange lights and shadows upon the hogback and arroyo, and the grotesque details of the stiff yet beautiful cacti form a picture at once enchanting and inspiring. As though one were catching for the first time a glimpse of some dead and forgotten world, so different is it from the aspect of any other spot upon our earth. As I stood there, thus meditating, I turned my gaze from the landscape to the heavens where the myriad of stars formed a gorgeous and fitting canopy, while the wonders of the earthly scene. My attention was quickly riveted by a large red star close to the distant horizon. As I gazed upon it, I felt a spell of overpowering fascination. It was Mars, the god of war, and for me, the fighting band, it had always held the power of irresistible enchantment. As I gazed at it on that far-gone night, it seemed to call across the unthinkable void to lure me to it, to draw me as a lodestone attracts a particle of iron. My longing was beyond the power of opposition. I closed my eyes, stretched out my arms towards the god of my vocation, and felt myself drawn with the suddenness of thought through the trackless immensity of space. There was an instant of extreme cold, and utter darkness. End of chapter. Chapter 3. My Advent on Mars. I opened my eyes upon a strange and weird landscape. I knew that I was on Mars, not once that I questioned either my sanity or my wakefulness. I was not asleep, no need for pinching here. My inner consciousness told me as plainly as that I was upon Mars as your conscious mind tells you that you are upon Earth. You do not question the fact, neither did I. I found myself prone upon a bed of yellowish, moss-like vegetation which stretched in all directions for interminable miles. I seemed to be living in a deep, circular basin, along the outer verge of which I could distinguish as irregularities in the low hills. It was midday, the sun was shining full upon me, and the heat of it was rather intense upon my naked body. Yet no greater than would have been true under similar conditions in the Arizona desert. Here and there were slight outcroppings of quartz-bearing rock, which glistened in the sunlight. And a little to my left, perhaps a hundred yards, appeared a low, walled enclosure about four feet in height. No water and no other vegetation than moss was in evidence, and as I was somewhat thirsty, I determined to do a little exploring. Springing to my feet, I received my first Martian surprise, for the effort which on earth would have brought me a standing upright carried me into the Martian air to a height of about three yards. I lighted softly upon the ground, however, without appreciable shock or jar. Now commenced a series of evolutions, which even then seemed ludicrous in the extreme. I found that I must learn to walk all over again, as the muscular exertion which carried me easily and safely upon the earth 
played strange antics with me upon Mars. Instead of progressing in a sane and dignified manner, my attempts to walk resulted in a variety of hops which took me closer to the ground a couple feet at each step and landed me sprawling upon my face or back at the end of each second or third hop. My muscles, perfectly attuned and accustomed to the force of gravity on Earth, played the mischief with me at attempting for the first time to cope with a lesser gravitation and a lower air pressure on Mars. I was determined, however, to explore the low structure which was the only evidence of habitation in sight, and so I hit upon the unique plan of reverting to the first principles of locomotion, creeping. I did fairly well at this, and in a few moments had reached the low, encircling wall of this enclosure. There appeared to be no doors or windows upon the side nearest to me, but as the wall was but four feet high, I cautiously gained my feet and peered over the top upon the strangest sight it had ever been given me to see. The roof of the enclosure was solid glass about four to five inches in thickness, and beneath us were several hundred large eggs, perfectly round and snowy white. The eggs were nearly uniform in size, being about two and one half feet in diameter. Five or six had already hatched, and the grotesque caricatures which sat blinking in the sunlight were enough to cause me doubt my sanity. They seemed mostly head, with little scrawny bodies, long necks and six legs, or, as I was afterward learned, two legs and two arms with an intermediary pair of limbs, which could be used at will either as arms or legs. Their eyes were set at the extreme sides of their heads, a trifle above the center, and protruded in such a manner that they could be directed either forward or backward, and also independently of each other, thus permitting the square animal to look in any direction, or in two directions at once, without the necessity of turning its head. The ears, which were slightly above the eyes and closer together, were small, cup-shaped antennae protruding not more than an inch on this young specimen. Their noses were but longitudinal slits inside of their faces, midway between their mouths and ears. There was no hair on their bodies, which were of very light yellowish-green color. In the adults, as I was to learn quite soon, this color deepens to an olive green and is darker in the male than the female. Further, the heads of the adults are not so out of proportion to their bodies as in the case of the young. The iris of the eyes is blood red, as in albinos, while the pupil is dark. The eyeball itself is very white, as are the teeth. These latter add a most ferocious appearance to an otherwise fearsome and terrible countenance, as the lower tusks curve upward to sharp points which end about where the eyes and earthly human beings are located. The whiteness of the teeth is not that of ivory, but of the snowiest and most gleaming of China. Against the dark background of their olive skins, their tusks stand out in the most striking manner, making these weapons present and singularly formidable appearance. Most of these details I noted later, for I was given but a little time to speculate on the wonders of my new discovery. I'd seen that the eggs were in the process of hatching, and I was stood watching the hideous little monsters break from their shells. I failed to note the approach of a score of full-grown Martians from behind me. Coming, as they did, 
over the soft and soundless moss, which covers practically the entire surface of Mars with the exception of the frozen areas at the poles and the scattered cultivated districts. They might have captured me easily, but their intentions were far more sinister. It was the rattling of the encounterments for the foremost warrior which warned me. On such a little thing my life hung and I often marvel that I escaped so easily. Had not the rifle of the leader of the party swung from its fastening beside his saddle in such a way as to strike against the butt of his great metal-shod spear, I should have snuffed out without ever knowing that death was near me. But the little sound calls me to turn, and there upon me, not ten feet from my breast, was the point of that large spear, a spear forty feet long, tipped with gleaming metal, and howled low at the sight of a mounted replica of the little devils that I'd been watching. But how puny and harmless they now looked besides this huge and terrific incarnation of hate, vengeance, and of death. The man himself, for such I may call him, was fully fifteen feet in height, and, on earth, would have weighed some four hundred pounds. He sat his mount as he was set a horse, grasping the animal's barrel with his lower limbs, while the hands on his two right arms held his immense spear low at the side of his mount. His two left arms were outstretched laterally to help preserve his balance. The thing he rode, having neither bridle or reins of any description or guidance. And his mount, how can earthly words describe it? It towered ten feet at the shoulder, had four legs on either side, a broad flat tail, larger at the tip than at the root, and which it held straight out, behind, well running. A gaping mouth which split in its head from its snout to its long, massive neck. Like its master, it was entirely devoid of hair, but was of a dark slate color and exceedingly smooth and glossy. Its belly was white, and its legs shaded from the slate to its shoulders and hips to a vivid yellow at its feet. The feet themselves were heavily padded and nailless, which fact had also contributed to the noiselessness of their approach, and, in common with the multiplicity of legs, is a characteristic feature of the fauna of Mars. The highest type of man and one other animal, the only animal existing on Mars, alone have well-formed nails, and there are absolutely no hoofed animals in existence there. Behind the first charging demon trailed nineteen others, similar in all respects but, as I learned later, bearing individual characteristics peculiar to themselves, precisely as no two of us are identical, although we all cast in a similar mold. This picture, or rather materialized nightmare, which I have described at length, made but one terrible and swift impression on me as I turned to beat it. Unarmed and naked as I was, the first law of nature manifested itself in the only possible solution of my immediate problem, and that was to get out of the vicinity of the point of the charging spear. Consequently, I gave a very earthly and, at the same time, superhuman leap to reach the top of the Martian incubator, for such I determined it must be. My effort was crowned with success which appalled me no less than it seemed to surprise the Martian warriors for it carried me fully thirty feet into the air and landed me a hundred feet from my pursuers and on the opposite side of the enclosure. I alighted upon the soft moss easily and without mishap, and turning, 
saw my enemies line up on the further wall. Some were surveying me with expressions which I afterward discovered marked extreme astonishment, and the others were evidently satisfying themselves that I had not molested their young. They were conversing together in low tones and gesticulating and pointing towards me. Their discovery that I had not harmed the little Martians and that I was unarmed must have caused them to look upon me with less ferocity. But, as I was to learn later, the thing which weighed most in my favor was my exhibition of hurdling. While the Martians are immense, their bones are very large and our muscles only proportionate to the gravitation which they must overcome. The result is that they are infinitely less agile and less powerful, in proportion to their weight, than an Earthman. And I doubt that where one of them suddenly would transport it to Earth, he could lift his own weight from the ground. In fact, I am convinced that he could not do so. My feet, then, was as marvelous upon Mars as it would have been upon Earth. And from desiring to annihilate me, they suddenly looked upon me as a wonderful discovery to be captured and exhibited amongst their fellows. The respite my unexpected agility had given me permitted me to formulate plans for the immediate future and to note more closely the appearance of the warriors. For I could not disassociate these people in my mind from those other warriors who, only the day before, had been pursuing me. I noted that each was armed with several other weapons in addition to the huge spear which I have described. The weapon which caused me to decide against an attempt at escape by flight was what was evidently a rifle of some description, and which I felt, for some reason, they were particularly efficient at handling. These rifles were of white metal stocked with wood, which I learned later was a very light and intensely hard growth much prized on Mars, and entirely unknown to us denizens of Earth. The metal of the barrel is an alloy composed principally of aluminium and steel, which they learned to temper to a hardness far exceeding that of the steel with which we are familiar. The weight of these rifles is comparatively little, and with small caliber, explosives, and radium projectiles which they use, and the great length of the barrel, they are deadly in the extreme and at ranges which would be unthinkable on Earth. The theoretic effective radius of this rifle is 300 miles, but the best they can do in actual service when equipped with their wireless finders and sighters is but a trifle over 200 miles. This is quite far enough to imbue me with a great respect for the Martian firearm, and the telepathic force must have warned me against the attempt to escape in broad daylight from under the muzzles of twenty of these death-dealing machines. The Martians, after conversing for a short time, turned and rode away in the direction from which they had come, leaving one of their number alone by the enclosure. When they had covered perhaps two hundred yards, they halted, and turning their mounts towards us, sat watching the warrior by the enclosure. He was the one whose spear had so nearly transfixed me, and was evidently the leader of the band. As I noted, they had seemed to have moved to their present position at his direction. When his force had come to a halt, he dismounted, threw down his spear and small arms, and came around the end of the incubator towards me, entirely unarmed and as naked as I, except for the ornaments strapped upon his head, limbs, and breast. 
When he was within about 50 feet of me, he unclasped an enormous metal armlet and holding it towards me in the open palm in his hand, addressed me in a clear, resonant voice. But in a language, it is needless to say, I could not understand. He then stopped as though waiting for my reply. Breaking up his antenna like ears and cocking his strange looking eyes still further towards me. As the silence became painful, I concluded to hazard a little conversation on my own part, as I guessed that he was making overtures of peace. The throwing down of his weapon and the withdrawing of his troops before his advance towards me would have signified a peaceful mission anywhere on Earth. So why not then on Mars? Placing my hand over my heart, I bowed low to the Martian and explained to him that while I did not understand his language, his actions spoke of peace and friendship that at present moment were most dear to my heart. Of course, I might have been babbling brook for all the intelligence my speech carried to him, but he understood the action with which I immediately followed my words. Stretching my hand towards him, I advanced and took the armlet from his palm, clasping it upon my arm above my elbow smiled at him, and stood waiting. His wide mouth spread into an answering smile, and locking one of his intermediary arms in mine, turned and walked back towards his mount. At the same time, he motioned his followers to advance. They started towards us on a wild run, but were checked by a signal from him. Evidently, he feared that were I to really frightened again, I might jump entirely out of the landscape. He exchanged a few words with his men, motioned to me that I would ride behind one of them and then mounted his own animal. The fellow designated reached down two or three hands and lifted me from behind him onto the glossy back of his mount, where I hung on as best I could by the belts and straps which held the Martian's weapons and ornaments. The entire cavalcade then turned and galloped away towards the ranger hills in the distance. End of chapter Chapter 4 a prisoner. We had gone perhaps ten miles when the ground began to rise very rapidly. We were, as I was later to learn, nearing the edge of one of Mars's long dead seas, in the bottom of which my encounter with the Martians had taken place. In a short time we gained the foot of the mountains, and after traversing a narrow gorge, came upon an open valley, at the far extremity of which was a low tableland, upon which I beheld an enormous city. Towards this we galloped, entering it by what appeared to be a ruined roadway leading out of the city, but only to the edge of the tableland, where it ended abruptly in a fright on broad steps. Upon closer observation, I saw as we passed them that the buildings were deserted, and while not greatly decayed, had the appearance of not having been tenanted for years, possibly ages. Towards the center of the city was a large plaza, and upon this and the buildings immediately surrounding it were camped some nine or ten hundred creatures of the same breed as my captors. For such, I now considered them despite of the suave manner in which I had been trapped. With the exception of the ornaments, all were naked. The women varied in appearance, but little from the men, except that their tusks were much larger in proportion to their height. In some instances, curving nearly to the high-set ears. Their bodies were smaller and lighter in color, and their fingers and toes bore rudiments of nails, which were entirely lacking amongst the males. 
The adult females ranged in height from 10 to 12 feet. The children were light in color, even lighter than the women, and all looked precisely alike to me, except that some were taller than others, older, I presumed. I saw no signs of extreme age amongst them, nor is there any appreciable difference in their appearance from the age of maturity, about 40, until about the age of 1,000 years. They go voluntarily upon their last strange pilgrimage down to the river Is, which leads no living Martian knows whither and form whose bosom no Martian has ever returned, or would be allowed to live did he return after once embarking upon its cold, dark waters. Only about one Martian in a thousand dies of sickness or disease, and possibly twenty take the voluntary pilgrimage. The other 979 die violent deaths in duels, hunting, in aviation, and in war. But perhaps by far the greatest death loss came from the age of childhood, when vast numbers of little Martians fall victims to the great white apes of Mars. The average life expectancy of a Martian after the age of maturity is about 300 years, but would be nearer to the 1,000 mark were it not for the various means leading to violent death. Owing to the waning resources of the planet, it evidently became necessary to counteract the increasing longevity with their remarkable skill in therapeutics and surgery produced. And so human life has come to be considered but lightly on Mars, as is evidenced by their dangerous sports and their almost continual warfare between the various communities. There are other and natural causes tending towards the diminution of the population, but nothing contributes so greatly to this end as the fact that no male or female Martian is ever voluntarily without a weapon of destruction. As we neared the plaza and my presence was discovered, we were immediately surrounded by hundreds of the creatures who seemed anxious to pluck me from my seat behind my guard. A word from the leader of the party stilled their clamor, and we proceeded to trot across the plaza to the entrance of the magnificent an edifice as a mortal eye has rested upon. The building was low, but covered in an enormous area. It was constructed of gleaming white marble inlaid with gold and brilliant stones specked, sparkled, and scintillated in the sunlight. The main entrance was some hundred feet in width, and projected from the building proper to form a huge canopy above the entrance hall. There was no stairway, but a gentle incline to the first floor of the building, opened to an enormous chamber encircled by galleries. On the floor of this chamber, which was dotted with highly carved wooden desks and chairs, were assembled about forty or fifty male Martians around the steps of the rostrum. On the platform proper squatted an enormous warrior heavily loaded with metal ornaments, colored feathers, and beautifully wrought leather trappings ingeniously set with precious stones. From his shoulders depended a short cape and white fur lined with brilliant scarlet silk. What struck me as most remarkable about this assemblage and the hall in which they were congregated was the fact that the creatures were entirely out of proportion to the desks, chairs, and other furnishings these being of a size adapted to human beings such as I, whereas the great bulks of the Martians could scarcely have squeezed into the chairs, nor was there room beneath the desks for their long legs. Evidently then, there were other denizens on Mars than the wild and grotesque creatures into whose hands I had fallen. But the evidence of extreme antiquity which showed all around me indicated 
that these buildings might have belonged to some long extinct and forgotten race in the dim antiquity of Mars. Our party had halted at the entrance of the building, and at the sign from their leader I had been lowered to the ground, again locking his arm in mine. We proceeded into the audience chamber. There were few formalities observed in approaching the Martian chieftain. My captor merely strode up to the rostrum, and the others making way for him as he advanced. The chieftain rose to his feet and uttered the name of my escort, who, in turn, halted and repeated the name of the ruler followed by his title. At the time, the ceremony and the words that they uttered meant nothing to me, but later I came to know that this was the customary greeting between green Martians. Had the men been strangers and therefore unable to exchange names, they would have silently exchanged ornaments, had their missions been peaceful. Otherwise, they would have exchanged shots or have fought out their introduction with some other of their various weapons. My captor, whose name was Tars Tarkas, was virtually the vice-chieftain of this community, and a man of great ability as a statesman and a warrior. He evidently explained briefly the incidents connected with his expedition, including my capture, and when he had concluded, the chieftain addressed me at some length. I replied in our good old English tongue merely to convince him that neither of us could understand the other. But I noticed that when I smiled slightly on concluding, he did likewise. This fact and the similar occurrence during my first talk with Tars Tarkin convinced me that we had at least something in common. The ability to smile. Therefore, to laugh, denoting a sense of humor. But I was to learn that the Martian smile is merely perfunctory and the Martian laugh is a thing to cause strong men to blanch in horror. The ideas of humor amongst the green men of Mars are wildly at variance with the conceptions of incidents to merriment. The death agonies of fellow beings are, to these strange creatures, provocative of the wildest hilarity, while their chief form of commonest amusement is to inflict death on their prisoners of war in various ingenious and horrible ways. The assembled warriors and chieftain examined me closely, feeling my muscles and the texture of my skin. The principal chieftain then evidently signified a desire to see me perform and, motioning me to follow, he started with Tars Tarkas for the open plaza. Now I had made no attempt to walk since my first signal failure, except while tightly grasping Tars Tarkas' arm. And so now I went skipping and flittering about amongst the desks and chairs like some monstrous grasshopper. After bruising myself severely, much to the amusement of the Martians, I again had recourse to creeping, but this did not suit them and I was roughly jerked to my feet by a towering fellow who had laughed most heartily at my misfortunes. As he banged me down upon my feet, his face was bent close to mine and I did the only thing a gentleman might do under the circumstances of brutality, boorishness, and a lack of consideration for a stranger's rights. I swung my fist squarely to his jaw, and he went down like a felled ox. As he sunk to the floor, I wheeled around with my back towards the nearest desk, expecting to be overwhelmed by the vengeance of his fellows, but determined to give them a good fist battle as unequal odds would permit before I gave up my life. My fears were groundless, however, as the other Martians had first struck dumb with wonderment, finally broke into wild peals of laughter and applause. I did not recognize the applause as such, but later, 
When I had become acquainted with their customs, I learned that I had won what they seldom accord a manifestation of approbation. The fellow whom I had struck lay there where he had fallen, nor did any of his mates approach him. Dars Tarkas advanced towards me, holding out one of his arms, and we thus proceeded to the plaza without further mishap. I did not, of course, know the reason for which we had come to the open, but I was not long in being enlightened. They first repeated the word suck a number of times, and then Tars Tarkas made several jumps, repeating the same word before each leap. Then turning to me, he said, suck. I saw what they were after, and gathering myself together, I sucked with such marvelous success that I cleared a good hundred and fifty feet. Nor did I, this time, lose my equilibrium, but landed squarely upon my feet without falling. I then returned by easy jumps of twenty-five or thirty feet to the little group of warriors. My exhibition had been witnessed by several hundred lesser Martians, and they immediately broke into demands for repetition, which the chieftain then ordered me to make. But I was both hungry and thirsty, and determined on the spot that my only method of salvation was to demand the consideration from these creatures which they evidently would not voluntarily accord. I therefore ignored the repeated command to sack, and each time they were made, I motioned to my mouth and rubbed my stomach. Tars Tarkas had the chief exchanged a few words, and the former, calling to a younger female amongst the throng, gave her some instructions and motioned me to accompany her. I grasped her proffered arm, and together we crossed the plaza towards the large building on the far side. My fair companion was about eight feet tall, having just arrived at maturity, but not yet at a full height. She was a light olive-green color with smooth, glossy hide. Her name, as I afterwards learned, was Sola, and she belonged to the retinue of Tars Tarkas. She conducted me to a spacious chamber in one of the buildings fronting the plaza, and which, from the litter of silks and furs upon the floor, I took to be sleeping quarters of several of the natives. The room was well lighted by a number of large windows and a beautifully decorated with mural paintings and mosaics but upon all there seemed to rest an indefinable touch of a finger of antiquity, which convinced me that the architects and builders of these wondrous creations had nothing in common with the crude half-brutes which now occupied them. Sola motioned me to be seated upon a pile of silks near the center of the room, and turning, she made a peculiar hissing sound, as though signaling to someone in the adjoining room. In response to her call, I obtained my first sight of a new Martian wonder. It waddled in on ten short legs and squatted down before the girl like an obedient puppy. The thing was about the size of a Shetland pony, but its head bore a slight resemblance to that of a frog, except that its jaws were equipped with three rows of long, sharp tusks. End of chapter. Chapter 5. I elude my watchdog. Solem stared into the brute's wicked-looking eyes, muttered a word or two of command, pointed to me, and left the chamber. I could not but wonder what this ferocious-looking monstrosity might do when left with such close proximity to such a relatively tender morsel of meat. But my fears were groundless, as the beast, after surveying me intently for a moment, crossed the room to the only exit which led to the street, and lay down full length across the threshold. This was my first experience with a Martian dog, 
but it was destined not to be my last. For the Spanner guarded me carefully during the time I remained a captive amongst these green men, twice saving my life and never voluntarily being away from me a moment. While Sola was away, I took the occasion to examine more minutely the room in which I found myself captive. The mural painting depicted scenes of rare and wonderful beauty. Mountains, rivers, lakes, oceans, meadows, trees, and flowers, winding roadways, sun-kissed gardens, scenes which might have portrayed earthly views but for the different colorings of the vegetation. The work had evidently been wrought by a master hand. So subtle the atmosphere, so perfect the technique. Yet nowhere was there a representation of a living animal, either human or brute, by which I could guess the likeness of those others and perhaps extinct denizens of Mars. While I was allowing my fancy to run right in wild conjecture on the possible explanation of the strange anomalies which I had so far met with on Mars, Sola returned bearing both food and drink. These she placed on the floor beside me and seated herself a short ways off, regarding me intently. The food consisted of about a pound of some solid substance of a consistency of cheese and almost tasteless, while the liquid was apparently milk of some animal. It was not unpleasant to the taste, though slightly acidic, and I learned in a short time to prize it very highly. It came, as I later discovered, not from an animal, as there is only one mammal on Mars, and that one is very rare indeed but from a large plant which grows practically without water, but seems to distill its plentiful supply of milk from the produce of the soil, the moisture of the air, and the rays of the sun. A single plant of the species will give eight to ten quarts of milk per day. After I had eaten and was greatly invigorated, but feeling the need to rest, I stretched out upon the silks and was soon asleep. I must have slept for several hours, as it was dark when I awoke, and I was very cold. I noticed that someone had thrown a fur over me, but it had become partially dislodged, and in the darkness I could not see to replace it. Suddenly, a hand reached out and pulled the fur over me, shortly afterwards, adding another to my covering. I presumed that my watchful guardian was Sola, nor was I wrong. The girl alone, amongst all the green Martians with whom I came into contact, disclosed characteristics of sympathy, kindness, and affection. Her ministrations to my bodily wants were unfailing, and her salacious care saved me from much suffering and many hardships. As I was to learn, the Martian nights are extremely cold, and as there is practically no twilight at dawn, the changes in temperature are sudden and most uncomfortable, as are the transitions from brilliant daylight to darkness. The nights are either brilliantly illuminated or very dark, for if neither of the two moons of Mars happen to be in the sky, almost total darkness results. Since the lack of atmosphere, or rather, the very thin atmosphere, fails to diffuse the starlight to any great extent. On the other hand, if both moons are in the heavens at the night, the surface of the ground is brightly illuminated. Both of Mars's moons are vastly nearer to her than our moon to Earth, the nearer moon being about 5,000 miles distant, while the further is but a little more than 14,000 miles away, against the nearly one-quarter million miles at which separates us from our moon. The nearer moon on Mars makes a complete revolution around the planet in a little over seven and one-half hours, 
so that she may be seen hurtling through the sky like some huge meteor two or three times each night, revealing to all her phases during each transit of the heavens. The further moon revolves around Mars in something over thirty and one quarter hours, and with her sister satellite makes the nocturnal Martian scene one of splendid and weird grandeur. And it is well that nature has so graciously and abundantly lightened the Martian night, for the green men of Mars, being a nomadic race without high intellectual development, have but crude means for artificial lighting, depending principally upon torches, a kind of candle, and a peculiar oil lamp which generates a gas and burns without a wink. This last device produces an intensely brilliant far-reaching white light, but as the natural oil which it requires can only be obtained by mining in one of the several wildly separated and remote localities, it is seldom used by these creatures whose only thought is for today, and whose hatred for manual labor has kept them in semi-barbaric state for countless ages. After Sola had replenished my coverings, I again slept, nor did I awaken until daylight. The other occupants of the room, five in number, were all females, and they were still sleeping, piled high with a motley array of silks and furs. Across the threshold lay stretched the sleepless guardian brute, just as I had last seen him in preceding day. Apparently, he had not moved a muscle. His eyes were fairly glued upon me, and I fell to wondering just what might befall me should I endeavor to escape. I have ever been prone to seek adventure, and to investigate an experiment where wiser men would have left well enough alone. It therefore now occurred to me that the surest way of learning the exact attitude of this beast towards me would be to attempt to leave the room. I felt fairly secure in my belief that I could escape him should I pursue me once I was outside the building, for I had begun to take great pride in my ability as a jumper. Furthermore, I could see from the shortness of his legs that the brute himself was no jumper and probably no runner. Slowly and carefully, therefore, I gained my feet, only to see that my watcher did the same. Cautiously, I advanced towards him, finding that by moving with the shuffling gait that I could retain my balance as well as make reasonably rapid progress. As I neared the brute, he backed cautiously away from me, and when I had reached the open, he moved to one side to let me pass. Then he fell in behind me and followed about ten paces to my rear as I made my way along the deserted street. Evidently, his mission was to protect me only, I thought, but when we reached the edge of the city, he suddenly sprang before me, uttering strange sounds and bearing his ugly, ferocious tusks. Thinking to have some amusement at his expense, I rushed towards him, and when almost upon him sprang into the air, alighted far beyond him and away from the city. He wheeled instantly and charged me with the most appalling speed that I had ever beheld. I had thought his short legs a bar to swiftness, but had he been coursing with greyhounds, the latter would have appeared as though asleep on a doormat. As I was to learn, this was the fleetest animal on Mars. And owing to its intelligence, loyalty, and ferocity, is used in hunting, in war, and as a protector of the Martian man. I quickly saw that I would have difficulty in escaping the fangs of the beast on a straightway course, and so I met his charge by doubling my tracks and leaping over him as he was almost upon me. This maneuver 
gave me a considerable advantage, and I was able to reach the city quite a bit ahead of him. And as he came tearing after me, I jumped for a window about 30 feet from the ground in face of one of the buildings overlooking the valley. Grasping the sill, I pulled myself up into a sitting posture without looking into the building and gazed down at the baffled animal beneath me. My exhalation was short-lived, however, for scarcely had I gained a secure seat upon the sill than a huge hand grasped me by the neck from behind and dragged me violently into the room. Here, I was thrown upon my back and beheld standing over me a colossal ape-like creature, white and hairless, except for an enormous shock of bristly hair upon its head. End of chapter Chapter 6 The Fight That Won Friends The thing, which more nearly resembled our earthly men than it did the Martians I had seen, held me pinned to the ground with one huge foot. While it jabbered and gesticulated, had some answering creature behind me. This other, which was evidently its mate, soon came towards us, bearing a mighty stone cudgel with which it evidently intended to brain me. The creatures were about ten or fifteen feet tall, standing erect, and had, like the green Martians, an intermediary set of arms or legs, midway between their upper and lower limbs. Their eyes were close together and non-protruding. Their ears were high-set, but more laterally located than those of the Martians, while their snouts and teeth were strikingly like those of our African gorilla. Altogether, they were not unlovely when viewed in comparison with the green Martians. The Gajo was swinging in an arc which ended upon my upturned face when a bolt of a myriad-legged horror hurled itself through the doorway full upon the beast, my executioner. With a shriek of fear, the ape which held me leapt through the open window, but its mate closed in a terrific death struggle with my preserver, which was nothing less than my faithful watch thing. I cannot bring myself to call this hideous creature a dog. As quickly as possible, I gained my feet, and backing against the wall, I witnessed such a battle as it is vouchsafed few beings to see. The strength, agility, and blind ferocity of these two creatures is approached by nothing known to earthly men. My beast had an advantage in his first hold, having sunk his mighty fangs far into the breast of his adversary. But the great arms and paws of the ape, backed by muscles far transcending those of Martian men I had seen, had locked the throat of my guardian, and slowly were choking out his life, and bending back his head and neck upon his body, where I momentarily expected the former to fall limp at the end of the broken neck. In accomplishing this, the ape was tearing away the entire front of its breast, which was held in a vice-like grip of the powerful jaws. Back and forth upon the floor they rolled, neither one emitting a sound of fear or pain. Presently, I saw the great eyes of my beast bulging completely from their sockets and blood flowing from its nostrils. That he was weakening perceptibly was evident, but so also was the ape, whose struggles were growing momentarily less. Suddenly, I came to myself, and, with the strange instinct which seems ever prompt me to my duty, I seized the cudgel which had fallen on the floor as the commencement of the battle, and swinging it with all the power in my earthly arms, I crashed it full into the head of the ape, crushing his skull as though it had been an eggshell. Scarcely had the blow descended when I was confronted with a new danger, the ape's mate, 
recovered from its first shock of terror, had returned to the scene of the encounter by way of the interior of the building. I glimpsed him just before he reached the doorway, and the sight of him, now roaring as he perceived his lifeless fellow, stretched upon the floor, and frothing at the mouth, in the extremity of his rage, filled me, I must confess, with dire forebodings. I am ever willing to stand and fight when the odds are not too overwhelming against me, but in this instance I perceived neither glory nor profit in putting my relative puny strength against the iron muscles and brutal ferocity of this enraged denizen of an unknown world. In fact, the only outcome of such an encounter, so far as I might be concerned, seemed sudden death. I was standing near the window and knew that once in the street I might gain the plaza and safety before the creature could overtake me. At least it was a chance of safety in flight. Against almost certain death should I remain and fight, however desperately. It is true that I held the cudgel, but what could I do with it against the small great arms? Even should I break one of them with my first blow, for I figured that he would attempt to ward off the cudgel. He could reach out and annihilate me with the others before I could recover for a second attack. In an instant that these thoughts passed through my mind, I had turned to make for the window. But my eyes alighted on the form of the erstwhile guardian through all sorts of flight to the four winds. He lay gasping upon the floor of the chamber, his great eyes fastened upon me in what seemed a pitiful appeal for protection. I could not withstand that look, nor could I, on second thought, have deserted my rescuer, having given as good an account of myself in his behalf as he had in mine. Without more ado, therefore, I turned to meet the charge of the infuriated bull-ape. He was now too close upon me for the cudgel to prove of any effective assistance. So I merely threw it as heavily as I could at his advancing bulk. It struck him just below the knees, eliciting a howl of pain and rage, and so throwing him off balance that he lunged full upon me, with arms wide stretched to easy small. Again, as on the preceding day, I had recourse to earthly tactics, and swinging my right fist full upon the point of his chin, I followed it with a smashing left of the pit of his stomach. The effect was marvelous, for, as I lightly sidestepped, after delivering the second blow, he reeled and fell to the floor, doubled up with pain and gasping for wind. Leaving over his prostrate body, I seized the cudgel and finished the monster before he could regain his feet. As I delivered the blow, a low laugh rang out behind me, and turning, I beheld Tars Tarkas, Sola, and three or four warriors standing in the doorway of the chamber. As my eyes met theirs, I was, for the second time, the recipient of their zealously guarded applause. My absence had been noted by Sola on her awakening and she had quickly informed Tars Tarkas, who had set out immediately with a handful of warriors to search for me. As they had approached the limits of the city, they had witnessed the actions of the pool ape as he bolted into the building, frothing with rage. They had followed immediately behind him, thinking it barely possible that his actions might prove to clue on my whereabouts, and had witnessed my short but decisive battle with him. This encounter together with my set to with the Martian warrior on the previous day, and my feats of jumping placed me upon the high pinnacle in their regard. Evidently, devoid of all the finer sentiments of friendship, love, or affection, these people fairly worship physical prowess and bravery, 
and nothing is too good for the object of their adoration as long as he maintains his position by repeated examples of his skill, strength, and courage. Sola, who had accompanied the searching party with her own volition, was the only one of the Martians whose face had not been twisted in laughter as I battled for my life. On the contrary, was sober with apparent solicitude and, as soon as I had finished the monster, rushed to me and carefully examined my body for possible wounds and injuries. Satisfying herself that I had come off unscathed, she smiled quietly, and taking my hand, started towards the door of the chamber. Tarstarkus and the other warriors had entered and were standing over the now rapidly reviving brute which had saved my life, and whose life I, in turn, had rescued. They seemed to be in deep argument, and finally one of them addressed me, but remembering my ignorance of these language turned back to Tarstarkus, who, with a word and a gesture, gave some command to his fellow and turned to follow us from the room. This seemed to be something menacing in their attitude towards my beast, and I hesitated to leave until I had learned the outcome. It was well I did so, for the warrior drew an evil-looking pistol from his holster and was on the point of putting an end to the creature when I sprang forward and struck up his arm. The bullet striking the wooden casing of the window exploded, blowing a hole completely through the wood and masonry. I then knelt beside the fearsome-looking thing and raising it to its feet motioned for it to follow me. The looks of surprise which my actions elicited from the Martians were ludicrous. They could not understand, except in a feeble and childish way, that such attributes as gratitude and compassion. The warriors whose gun I had struck looked up inquiringly at Tarstarkus, but the latter sighed that I be left to my own devices and so we returned to the plaza with my great beast following close at my heel, and the solar grasping me tightly by the arm. I had at least two friends of Mars, a young woman who watched over me with a motherly solicitude, and a dumb brute which, as I later came to know, held in its poor ugly carcass more love, more loyalty, and more gratitude than could have been found in the entire five million green Martians who roved the deserted cities and dead sea bottoms of Mars. End of chapter. Chapter 7. Child Raising on Mars After breakfast, which was an exact replica of the meal the preceding day, and an index of practically every meal which followed while I was in the Green Men of Mars. Soda escorted me to the plaza, where I found the entire community engaged in watching or helping in the harnessing of a huge Mastodonian animals to great three-wheeled chariots. There were about 250 of these vehicles, each drawn by a single animal, any one of which, from the appearance, might easily have drawn the entire wagon train when fully loaded. These chariots themselves were large, commodious, and gorgeously decorated. In each was seated a female Martian loaded with ornaments of metal, with jewels and silks and furs, and upon the back of each of the beasts which drew the chariots was perched a young Martian driver. Like the animals upon which the warriors were mounted, the heavier draft animals wore neither bit nor bridle, but were guided entirely by telepathic means. This power is wonderfully developed in all Martians and accounts largely for the simplicity of their language and the relatively few spoken words exchanged even in long conversations. 
It is the universal language of Mars, through the medium of which the higher and lower animals of this world of paradoxes are able to communicate to a greater or lesser extent, depending upon the intellectual sphere of the species and the development of the individual. As the cavalcade took up the line in march and single file, Sola dragged me into an empty chariot and we proceeded with the procession towards the point by which I had entered the city the day before. At the head of the caravan rode some two hundred warriors, five abreast, and a like number brought up the rear, while twenty-five or thirty-armed riders ranked us on either side. Every one of us but myself, men, women, and children, were heavily armed, and at the tail of each chariot trotted a Martian hound, my own beast following closely behind ours. In fact, the faithful creature never left me voluntarily during our entire ten years that I spent on Mars. Our way led up across the little valley before the city, through the hills and down into the Dead Sea bottom, which I had traversed on my journey from the incubator to the plaza. The incubator, as it proved, was the terminal point of our journey this day, and as the entire cavalcade broke into a mad gallop, as soon as we reached the level expanse of the sea bottom, we soon were in sight of our goal. On reaching it, the chariots were parked with military precision on our four sides of the enclosure, and half a score of warriors headed by the enormous chieftain, and including Tars Tarkin and several other lesser chiefs, dismounted and advanced towards it. I could see Tars Tarkas explaining something to the principal chieftain, whose name, by the way, as nearly as I could translate it into English, Lorquas Petomol, Jed, Jed being his title. I was soon appraised of the subject of their conversation, as, calling to Sola, Tarstarkas signed for her to send me to him. I had, by this time, mastered the intricacies of walking under the Martian conditions, and quickly responding to his command, I advanced to the side of the incubator, where the warriors stood. As I reached the site, a glance showed me that all but very few eggs had hatched, the incubator being fairly alive with the hideous little devils. They ranged in height from three to four feet, and were moving restlessly about the enclosure as those searching for food. As I came to a halt before him, Tars Tarkas pointed over to the incubator and said, Duck. I saw that he wanted me to repeat my performance of yesterday for the edification of Loquas Potomol, and, as I must confess, that my prowess gave me no little satisfaction. I responded quickly, leaping entirely over the parked chariots on the far side of the incubator. As I returned, Loquas Potomol grunted something at me, and turning to his warriors gave a few words of command relative to the incubator. They paid no further attention to me, and I was thus permitted to remain close and watch their operations which consisted in breaking and opening in the wall of the incubator, large enough to permit the exit of the young Martians. On either side of this opening, the woman and the younger Martians, both male and female, formed two solid walls leading out through the chariots and quite away into the plain beyond. Between these walls, the little Martians scampered, wild as deer, being permitted to run the full length of the aisle where they were captured one at a time by the woman and older children, the last in line capturing the first little one to reach the end of the gauntlet, her opposite in the line capturing the second, and so on until the little fellows had left the enclosure had been appropriated by some youth or female. 
As the woman called the young, they fell out of the line and returned to their perspective chariots. While those who fell into the hands of the young men were later turned over to some of the women. I saw that the ceremony of it, if it could be dignified by such a name, was over. And seeking out Soda, I found her in our chariot with a hideous little creature held tightly in her arms. The work of rearing young green Martians consists solely of teaching them to talk and to use the weapons of warfare with which they were loaded down from the very first year of their lives. Coming from eggs in which they had lain for five years, the period of incubation, they step forth into the world perfectly developed, except in size. Entirely unknown to their mothers, who, in turn, would have difficulty in pointing out the fathers of any degree of accuracy. They are common children of the community, and their education devolves upon the females who chance to capture them as they leave the incubator. Their foster mothers may not even have had an egg in the incubator, as was the case with Sola, who had not commenced to lay until less than a year before she became the mother of another woman's offspring. But this counts for little amongst the green Martians, as perennial and filial love is unknown to them as it is common among us. I believe this horrible system, which has been carried on for ages, is a direct cause of loss of all of the finer feelings of higher humanitarian instincts amongst these poor creatures. From birth, they know no father or mother love. They know not the meaning of the word home. They are taught that they are only suffered to live until they can demonstrate by their physique and veracity that they are fit to love. Should they prove deformed or defective in any way, they are promptly shot. Nor do they see a tear shed for a single one as the many cruel hardships they pass through from the earliest infancy. I do not mean that as adult Martians are unnecessarily or intentionally cruel to the young, but theirs is a hard and pitiless struggle for existence upon a dying planet, the natural resources of which have dwindled to the point where the support of each additional life means an added tax upon the community into which it is thrown. By careful selection, they rear only the hardest specimens of each species, and with almost supernatural foresight, they regulate the birth rate to merely offset the loss by death. Each adult Martian female brings forth about 13 eggs each year, and those which meet the size, weight, and specific gravity tests are hidden in the recesses of some subterranean vault where the temperature is too low for incubation. Every year, these eggs are carefully examined by the Council of Twenty Chieftains, and all but about 100 of the most perfect are destroyed out of the each yearly supply. At the end of five years, about 500 almost perfect eggs have been chosen from the thousands brought forth. These are then placed in the almost airtight incubators to be hatched by the sun's rays after a period of another five years. The hatching is what we had witnessed today was a fairly representative event of its kind. All about 1% of the eggs hatching in two days. If the remaining eggs ever hatch, we knew nothing of their fate, of the little Martians. They were not wanted, as their offspring might inherit or transmit the tendency to prolonged incubation, and thus upset the system which has maintained for ages and which permits the adult Martians to figure the proper time for return to the incubators, almost to the hour. 
Incubators are built in remote fastness, where there is little or no likelihood of their being discovered by other tribes. The results of such a catastrophe would mean no children in the community for another five years. I was later to witness the result of the discovery of an alien incubator. The community, of which the Green Martians with whom my lot was cast, formed a part that was composed of some 30,000 souls. They roamed an enormous tract of arid and semi-arid land between 40 and 80 degrees south latitude, and bounded on the east and west of two large fertile tracts. Their headquarters laid in the southwest corner of the district, near the crossing of two of the so-called Martian canals. As the incubator had been placed far north of their own territory, in a supposedly uninhabited and unfrequented area, we had before us a tremendous journey, concerning which I, of course, knew nothing. After our return to the dead city, I passed several days in comparative idleness. On the day following our return, all of the warriors had ridden forth early in the morning and had not returned until just before darkness fell. As I later learned, they had been to the subterranean vaults in which the eggs were kept and had transported them to the incubator, which they had then walled up for another five years, and which, in all probability, would not be visited again during that period. The vaults which had the eggs until they were ready for the incubator were located many miles south of the incubator, and would be visited yearly by the Council of Twenty Chieftains. Why they did not arrange to build their vaults and incubators nearer home has always been a mystery to me, and, like many other Martian mysteries, unsolved and unsolvable by earthly reasoning and customs. Sola's duties were now doubled, as she was compelled to care for the young Martian as well as for me, but neither one of us required much attention and as we were both about equally advanced in Martian education, Sola took it upon herself to train us together. Her prize consisted in a male of about four feet tall, very strong and physically perfect. Also, he learned quickly, and we had considerable amusement, at least I did, over the keen rivalry we displayed. The Martian language, as I have said, is extremely simple and in a week I could make all my wants known and understand nearly everything that was said to me. Likewise, under Soda's tutelage, I developed my telepathic powers, so that I shortly could sense practically everything that went on around me. What surprised Soda most in me was that while I could catch telepathic messages easily from others, and often when they were not intended for me, no one could read a jot of my mind under any circumstances. At first this vexed me, but later I was very glad of it, as it gave me an undoubted advantage over the Martians. End of chapter Chapter 8 A Fair Captive from the Sky On the third day after the incubator ceremony, we set forward toward Homer, but scarcely had the head of the procession debauched into the open ground before the city than other orders were given for an immediate and hasty return. As though trained for years in this particular evolution, the green Martians melted like mist into the spacious doorways of the nearby buildings, until in less than three minutes, the entire cavalcade of chariots, mastodons, and mounted warriors was nowhere to be seen. Solar and I had entered a building upon the front of the city, in fact, the same one in which I had my encounter with the apes, and, wishing to see what had caused the sudden retreat, I mounted to the upper floor and peered from the window out over the valley 
and the hills beyond. And there I saw the cause of our sudden scurry to cover. A huge craft, long, low, and grey painted, swung slowly over the crest of the nearest hill. Following it came another, and another, and another, until twenty of them, swinging low above the ground, sailed slowly and majestically towards us. Each carried a strange banner, swung from stem to stern above the upper works, and upon the prow of each was painted some odd device that gleamed in the sunlight and showed plainly even at the distance at which we were from the vessels. I could see figurines crowding the forward decks and the upper works of the aircraft. Whether they had discovered us or simply were looking at the deserted city, I could not say. But, in any event, they received a rude reception. For, suddenly and without warning, the green Martian warriors fired a terrific volley from the windows of the buildings facing the little valley, across which the great ships were so peacefully advancing. Instantly, the scene changed by us by magic. The foremost vessel swung broadside towards us, and bringing her guns into play, returned our fire. At the same time, moving parallel to our front for a short distance, and then turning back with an evident intention of completing a great circle which would bring her up to position once more opposite our firing line. The other vessels followed in her wake, each one opening upon us as she swung into position. Our own fire never diminished, and I doubt if 25% of our shots went wild. It had never been given to me to see such a deadly accuracy of aim, and it seemed as though a little figure in one of the crafts dropped at the explosion of each bullet, while the banners and the upper works dissolved in spurts of flame as the irresistible projectiles of our warriors mowed through them. The fire from the vessels was most ineffectual, owing, as I afterward learned, to the unexpected suddenness of the first body which caught the ship's crews entirely unprepared and the sighting apparatus of the guns unprotected from the deadly aim of our warriors. It seems that each green warrior has certain objective points for his fire under relative identical circumstances of warfare. For example, a proportion of them, always the best marksmen, direct their fire entirely upon the wireless finding and sighting apparatus of the big guns of an attacking naval force. Another detail attends to a smaller guns in the same way. Others pick off gunners, still others the officers, while certain other quotas concentrate their attention upon the other members of the crew, upon the upper works, and upon the steering gear and propellers. Twenty minutes after the first body, the great fleet swung, trading off in a direction from which they had first appeared. Several of the craft were limping perceptibly, and seemed but barely under the control of the depleted crews. Their fire had ceased entirely, and all their energies seemed focused upon the escape. Our warriors then rushed up the roofs to the buildings which we occupied, and followed the retreating armada with a continuous felicide of deadly fire. One by one, however, the ships managed to dip below the crests of the outlying hills until only one barely moving craft was in sight. This had received the brunt of our fire and seemed to be entirely unmanned, as not a moving figure was visible upon her decks. Slowly she swung from her course, circling back towards us in an erratic and pitiful manner. Instantly, the warriors ceased firing, for it was quite apparent that the vessel was entirely helpless, 
and far from being in a position to inflict harm upon us, she could not even control herself sufficiently to escape. As she neared the city, the warriors rushed up on the plain to meet her, but it was evident that she was still too high for them to hope to reach her decks. From my vantage point in the window, I could see the bodies of a crew strewn about, although I could not make out what manner of creatures they might be. Not a sign of life was manifest upon her as she drifted slowly with a light breeze on the southeasterly direction. She was drifting some fifty feet above the ground, followed by all but some hundred of the warriors who had been ordered back to the roofs to cover the possibility of a return of the fleet, or of reinforcements. It soon became evident that she would strike the face of the building about a mile south of our position, and, as I watched the progress of the chase, I saw a number of warriors gallop ahead, dismount and enter the building she seemed destined to touch. As the craft neared the building, and just before she struck, the Martian warriors swarmed upon her from the windows, and with their great spears eased the shock of the collision, and in a few moments they had thrown out grappling hooks and the big boat was being hauled to the ground by the fellows below. After making her fast, they swarmed the sides and searched the vessel from stem to stern. I could see them examining the dead satyrs, evidently for signs of life, and presently a party of them appeared below, dragging a little figure amongst them. The creature was considerably less than half as tall as the green Martian warriors, and from my balcony, I could see that it walked erect upon two legs and surmised that it was some new and strange Martian monstrosity with which I had not yet become acquainted. They removed their prisoner to the ground and then commenced a systematic rifling of the vessel. This operation required several hours. During this time, a number of the chariots were requisitioned to transport the loot, which consisted in arms, ammunition, silks, furs, jewels, strangely carved stone vessels, and a quantity of solid foods and liquids, including many casks of water, the first I had seen since my advent upon Mars. After the last load had been removed, the warriors made alliance fast to the craft and towed her far out into the valley in a southwesterly direction. A few of them then boarded her and were busily engaged in what appeared, from my distant position, as emptying of the contents of various carboys upon the dead bodies of sailors and over the decks and works of the vessel. This operation concluded. They hastily clambered over her sides, sliding down the guide ropes to the ground. The last warrior to leave the deck turned and threw something back upon the vessel, waiting an instant to note the outcome of his act. As a faint spurt of flame rose from the point where the missile struck, he swung over the side and was quickly upon the ground. Scarcely had he alighted than the guy ropes were simultaneously released and the great warship, lightened by the removal of the loot, soared majestically into the air, her decks and upper works a mass of roaring flames. Slowly she drifted to the southeast, rising higher and higher, as the flames ate away her wooden parts and diminished the weight upon her. Ascending to the roof of the building, I watched her for hours, until finally she was lost to the dim vistas of the distance. The sight was awe-inspiring and extreme as one contemplated this mighty, floating funeral pyre, drifting unguided and unmanned through the lonely wastes of the Martian heavens. A derelict of death and destruction, typifying the life story of these strange and ferocious creatures into whose unfriendly hands fate had carried them. Much depressed and, to me, uncountably so, 
I slowly descended to the street. The scene I had witnessed seemed to mark a defeat and annihilation of forces of a kindred people, rather than the routing by our green warriors of the horde of similar, though unfriendly, creatures. I could not fathom the seeming hallucination, nor could I free myself from it. But somewhere in the innermost recesses of my soul, I felt a strange yearning towards these unknown foemen, and a mighty hope surged through me that the fleet would return and demand a ragging from the green warriors who so ruthlessly and wantonly attacked them. Close at my heel, in his now accustomed place, followed Wula, the hound. And as I emerged upon the street, Sola rushed up to me as though I had been the object of some search on her part. The cavalcade was returning to the plaza, the homeward march having been given up that day, nor, in fact, was it recommended for more than a week, owing to the fear of a return attack by the aircraft. Lorquas Betoma was too astute an old warrior to be caught upon the open plains with a caravan of chariots and children, and so we remained at the deserted city until the danger seemed to pass. As Sola and I returned to the plaza, a sight met my eyes which filled my whole being with a great surge of mingled hope, fear, exhalation, and depression. Then yet, most dominant, was a subtle sense of relief and happiness. For just as we neared the throng of Martians, I caught a glimpse of the prisoner from the battlecraft, who was being roughly dragged by a nearby building by a couple of green Martian females. And the sight which met my eyes was of a slender girlish figure, similar in every detail to the earthly woman of my past life. She did not see me at first, but just as she was disappearing through a portal of the building which was to be her prison, she turned and her eyes met mine. Her face was oval and beautiful in the extreme. Her every feature was finely chiseled and exquisite. Her eyes large and lustrous, and her head surmounted by a mass of coal-black waving hair, caught loosely into a strange yet becoming coiffure. Her skin was of light reddish copper color, against which the crimson glow of her cheeks and ruby of her beautifully molded lips shone with a strangely enhancing effect. She was a destitute of clothes as green Martians who accompanied her. Indeed, save for her highly wrought ornaments, she was entirely naked. Nor could any apparel have enhanced the beauty of a perfect and symmetrical figure. As her gaze rested on me, her eyes opened wide in astonishment, and she made a little sign with a free hand, a sign which I did not, of course, understand. Just a moment we gazed upon each other, and then the look of hope and renewed courage which had glorified her face as she discovered me faded into one of utter dejection, mingled with loathing and contempt. I realized I had not answered a signal, and ignorant as I was of martial customs, I intuitively felt that she had made an appeal for succor and protection, which my unfortunate ignorance had prevented me from answering. And she was dragged out of my sight, into the depths of the deserted edifice. End of chapter. Chapter 9 As I came back to myself, I glanced at Sola, who had witnessed the encounter, and I was surprised to note their strange expression upon a usually expressionless countenance. What her thoughts were, I did not know, for as yet I had learned but very little of the Martian tongue, enough only to suffice for my daily needs. As I reached the doorway of our building, a strange surprise awaited me. A warrior approached, bearing arms, ornaments, and full accoutrements of his kind. 
These he presented to me with a few unintelligible words, and a bearing at once respectful and menacing. Later, Sona, with the aid of several of the other women, remodeled the trappings to fit my lesser proportions, and after they completed the work, I went about garbed in all panoply of war. From then on, Solar instructed me in the mysteries of the various weapons, and with the Martian young I spent several hours each day practicing upon the plaza. I was not yet proficient with all the weapons, but my great familiarity with similar earthly weapons made me unusually apt pupil, and I progressed in a very satisfactory manner. The training of myself and the young Martians was conducted solely by the woman, who not only attended to the education of the young in the arts of individual defense and offense, but are also the artisans who produce every manufactured article wrought by the green Martians. They make the powder, the cartridges, the firearms. In fact, everything of value is produced by the females. In time of actual warfare, they form a part of the reserves, and when the necessity arises, fight with an even greater intelligence and ferocity than the men. The men are trained in the higher branches of the art of war, in strategy and the maneuvering of large bodies of troops. They make the laws as they are needed, a new law for each emergency. They are unfettered by precedent in the administration of justice. Customs have been handed down by ages of repetition, but the punishment for ignoring a custom is a matter for individual treatment by a jury of the corporate's peers. And I might say that justice seldom misses fire, but seems rather to rule an inverse ratio to ascendancy of law. In one respect, at least, the Martians are a happy people. They have no lawyers. I did not see the prisoner again for several days subsequent to our first encounter, and then only to catch a fleeting glimpse of her as she was being conducted to a great audience chamber, where I had my first meeting with Locus Potomo. I could not but note the unnecessary harshness and brutality with which her gods treated her, so different from the almost maternal kindness which Sola manifested towards me, and the respectful attitude of the few green Martians who took the trouble to notice me at all. I had observed one of two occasions when I had seen her that the prisoner exchanged words with her guards, and this convinced me that they spoke, or at least could make themselves understood by a common language. With this added incentive, I nearly drove Sola distracted by my importunities to hasten on my education, and within a few more days, I had mastered the Martian tongue sufficiently well to enable me to carry a possible conversation, and to fully understand practically all that I heard. At this time, our sleeping quarters were occupied by three of the four females and a couple of the recently hatched young. Besides Sola and a youthful ward, myself and Wula the Hound, after they had retired for the night, it was customary for the adults to carry on with desultory conversation for a short time before lapsing into sleep, and now that I can understand their language, I was always a keen listener, although I never proffered any remarks myself. On the night following the prisoner's visit to the audience chamber, the conversation finally fell upon the subject, and I was all ears in an instant. I had feared to question Sola relative to the beautiful captive, as I could not but recall the strange expression I had noted upon her face after my first encounter with the prisoner. That it denoted jealousy, I could not say, and yet, judging all things by mundane standards as I still did, I felt it safer to affect indifference in the matter until I learned more surely Sola's attitude towards the object of my solicitude. 
Sokoja, one of the older women who shared our domicile, had been present in the audience as one of the captive's guards, and it was towards her the question turned. When, uh, one of the women asked, will we enjoy the death throes of the Red One, or does Lokos Potobal Jed intend holding her for ransom? They have decided to carry her with us back to Thark and exhibit her last agonies at the Great Games before Tal Hajus, replied Sokoja. What will be the manner of her going out? inquired Sola. She is very small and very beautiful. I had hoped that they would hold her for ransom. Sokoja and the other woman grunted angry at this evidence of weakness on the part of Sola. It is sad, Sola. That you were not born a million years ago, snapped Sokoja, when all the hollows of the land were filled with water, and the peoples were soft as the stuff they sailed upon. In our day, we have progressed to the point where such sentiments mark weakness and atavism. It'll not be well for you to permit Tars Tarkas to learn that you hold such degenerate sentiments, as I doubt that he would care to entrust such as you with the grave responsibilities of eternity." I see nothing wrong with my question of interest in this red woman, retorted Sola. She has never harmed us, nor would she should we have fallen into her hands. It is only the men of her kind who war upon us, and I have ever thought that their attitude towards us is but a reflection of ours towards them. They live at peace with all their fellows, except when duty calls upon them to make war, while we are at peace with none forever warring amongst our own kind as well as upon the red men, and even in our own communities, the individual fight amongst themselves. Oh, it is one continual awful period of bloodshed from the time we break the shell until we gladly embrace the bosom of the river of mystery. The dark and ancient is which carries us to the unknown, but at least no more frightful and terrible existence. Fortunate indeed, is he who meets his end in an early death. Say what you please to Tarstarkas. He can meet out no worse fate than me and the continuation of a horrible existence that we are forced to lead in this life. This wild outbreak on the part of Sola so greatly surprised and shocked the other woman that, after a few words of general reprimand, they all lapsed into silence and would soon asleep. One thing the episode had accomplished was to assure me of Sola's friendliness towards the poor girl and also to convince me that I had been extremely fortunate into falling into her hands rather than some of the other females. I knew that she was fond of me, and now that I had discovered that she hated cruelty and barbarity, I was confident that I could depend on her to aid me and the girl captive to escape, provided, of course, that such things were within range of possibilities. I did not even know that there were any better conditions to escape to but I was more than willing to take my chances amongst the people fashioned out of my own mold rather than remain longer amongst the hideous and bloodthirsty green men of Mars. But where to go and how was as much of a puzzle to me as an age-old search for the spring of eternal life has been to earthly men since the beginning of time. I decided that at first opportunity I would take Soda into my confidence and openly ask her to aid me, and with this resolution strong upon me, I turned among my silks and furs and slept the dreamless and refreshing sleep of Mars. End of chapter. Chapter 10. Champion and Chief. Early the next morning, I was astir. 
considerable freedom was allowed to me, as Sola had informed me that so long as I did not attempt to leave the city, I was free to go and come as I pleased. She had warned me, however, against venturing forth unarmed, as the city, like all other deserted metropolises of ancient Martian civilization, was peopled by great white apes of my second day's adventure. In advising me that I must not leave the boundaries of the city, Sola had explained that Wula would prevent this anyway, should I attempt it, and she warned me most urgently not to arouse his fierce nature by ignoring his warnings should I venture too close to the forbidden territory. His nature was such, she said, that he would bring me back into the city, dead or alive, should I persist in opposing him, preferably dead, she added. On this morning, I had chosen a new street to explore when suddenly I found myself at the limits of the city. Before me were low hills pierced by narrow and inviting ravines. I longed to explore the country before me, and, like the pioneer stock from which I sprang, to view what landscape beyond the encircling hills might disclose from the summits which shut out my view. It also concerned me that this would prove an excellent opportunity to test qualities of Wula. I was convinced that the brute loved me. I had seen more evidence of affection in him than any other Martian animal, man or beast, and I was sure that gratitude for the acts that I had twice saved his life would more than outweigh his loyalty to the duty imposed on him by a cruel and loveless master. As I approached the boundary line, Wooler ran anxiously before me and thrust his body against my legs. His expression was pleading rather than ferocious. Nor did he bear his great tusks or utter his fearful glutteral warnings. Denied the friendship and companionship of my kind, I had developed considerable affection for Wula and Sola, for the normal earthly man must have some outlet for his natural affections, and so I decided upon an appeal to a like instinct in the great brute, sure that I would not be disappointed. I had never petted nor fondled him, but now I sat upon the ground, putting my arms around his heavy neck, I stroked and coaxed him, talking in my newly acquired Martian tongue as I would have my hound at home, as I would have talked to any other friend amongst the lower animals. His response to my manifestation of affection was remarkable to a degree. He stretched his great mouth till its full width, bearing his entire expanse of his upper tusks and wrinkling his snout until his great eyes were almost hidden by the folds of flesh. If you have ever seen a collie smile, then you may have the idea of Wooler's facial distortion. He threw himself upon his back and fairly wallowed at my feet, jumped up and sprang upon me, rolling me upon the ground by his great weight, then wriggling and squirming around me like a playful puppy, presenting its back for the petting it craves, I could not resist the ludicrousness of the spectacle, and holding my sights, I rocked back and forth in the first laughter which had passed my lips in many days. The first, in fact, since Powell had left camp when his horse, long unused, had precipitately and unexpectedly bucked him off, head foremost into a pot of Riolis. My laughter frightened Wooler as his antics ceased and he crawled pitifully towards me, poking his ugly head far into my lap and then I remembered what laughter signified at Mars. Torture, suffering, and death. Quieting myself, I rubbed the poor old fellow's head and back, and talked to him for a few minutes, and then, in an authoritative tone, commanded him to follow me, and arising, started for the hills. 
There was no further question of authority between us. Wooler was my devoted slave from that moment hence, and I was only an undisputed master. My walk to the hills occupied but a few minutes, and I found nothing of particular interest to reward me. Numerous brilliantly colored and strangely formed wildflowers started the ravines, and from the summit of the first hill, I saw still other hills stretching off to the north, and rising, one range above another, until lost in the mountains of quite respectable dimensions. Though I afterward found that only a few peaks on all of Mars exceeded 4,000 feet in height, the suggestion of magnitude was merely relative. My morning's walk had been large with importance to me, for it had resulted in a perfect understanding with Wooler, upon whom Tars Tarkas relied for my life safe keeping. I now knew that while theoretically a prisoner, I was virtually free, and I hastened to gain the city limits before the defection of Wooler could be discovered by his erstwhile masters. The adventure decided me never again to leave the limits of my prescribed stamping grounds until I was ready to venture forth for good and all, as it would certainly result in the curtailment of my liberties, as well as the probable death of Wula, were we to be discovered. On regaining the plaza, I had my third glimpse of the captive girl. She was standing with the guards before the entrance of the audience chamber and as I approached, she gave me one haughty glance and turned her back full upon me. The act was so womanly, so earthly womanly, that though it stung my pride, it also warmed my heart with a feeling of companionship. It was good to know that someone else in Mars, besides myself, had human instincts of a civilized order, even though the manifestation of them was so painful and mortifying. And a green Martian woman desired to show dislike or contempt she would, in all likelihood, have done it with a sword thrust or a movement or a trigger finger. But as their sentiments are mostly atrophied, it would have required a serious injury to have aroused such passions in them. Sola, let me add, was an exception. I never saw her perform a cruel or uncouth act, or fail in uniform kindness and good nature. She was indeed, as her fellow Martians had said of her, an atavism, a dear and precious reversion of former type of loved and loving ancestor. Seeing that the prisoner seemed the center of attraction, I halted to view the proceedings. I had not long to wait, for presently Locus Patomal and his retinue of chieftains approached the building and, signing the guards to follow with the prisoner, entered the audience chamber. Realizing that I was somewhat favored character, and also convinced that the warriors did know of my proficiency in their language, as I had pleaded with Sola to keep it a secret on the guards that I did not wish to be forced to talk with men until I had perfectly mastered the Martian tongue. I chanced an attempt to enter the audience chamber and listen to the proceedings. The council squatted on the steps of the rostrum, while below them stood the prisoner and her two guards. I saw that one of the women was Sukoja, and thus understood how she had been present at the hearing of the preceding day, the results of which she had reported to the occupants of our dormitory last night. Her attitude towards the captive was most harsh and brutal. When she held her, she sunk her rudimentary nails into the poor girl's flesh, or twisted her arm in an almost painful manner. When it was necessary to move from one spot to another, she either jerked her roughly or pushed her headlong before her. She seemed to be venting upon this poor defenseless creature all the hatred, cruelty, ferocity, and spite of her 900 years, backed by unguessable ages of fierce and brutal ancestors. 
The other woman was less cruel because she was entirely indifferent. If the prisoner had been left to her alone, unfortunately, she was at night, she would have received no harsh treatment, nor, by the same token, would she have received any attention at all. As Locus Potomo had raised his eyes to address the prisoner, they fell on me as he turned to Tarstarkus with a word, and a gesture of impatience. Tarstarkus made some reply which I could not catch, but which caused Locus Potomo to smile, after which they paid no further attention to me. What is your name? asked Locus Potomo, addressing the prisoner. Dijah Thoris, daughter of Morskajak of Helium. And the nature of your expedition, he continued. I was purely a scientific research party sent out by my father's father, the Jeddak of Helium, to rechart the air currents and to take atmospheric density tests, replied the fair prisoner in a low, well-modulated voice. We were unprepared for battle, she continued, as we were on a peaceful mission, as our banners and colors of our craft denoted the work we were doing was as much in your interest as it is in ours. For you know full well that if we were not for our labors and the fruits of our scientific operations, there would not be enough air or water on Mars to support a single human life. For ages we have maintained the air and water supply at particularly the same point without an appreciable loss. And we have done this in the face of a brutal and ignorant interference of you green men. Why, oh why, would you not learn to live in amity with your fellows? Must you ever go down the ages to your final extinction, but little above the plane of the dumb brutes that serve you? Me people without a written language, without art, without homes, without love. The victims of eons of horrible community idea. Owning everything in a common, even your woman and children, has resulted in you owning nothing in common. You hate each other as you hate all else except yourselves. Come back to the ways of our common ancestors. Come back to the light kindness of fellowship. The way is open to you. You will find the hands of Redmond stretched out to aid you. Together we may still do more to regenerate our dying planet. The granddaughter of the greatest and mightiest of the Red Judaks has asked you. Will you come? Locus, Batobo, and the warriors sat looking silently and intently at the young woman for several moments after she had ceased speaking. What was passing in their minds no man may know, but that they were moved I truly believe, and if one man high amongst them had been strong enough to rise above custom, that moment would have marked a new and mighty era for Bars. I saw Tarstarkus rise to speak and on his face was such an expression as I had never seen upon the countenance of a green martial warrior. It bespoke of an inward and mighty battle with self, with his hereditary, with old age custom, and as he opened his mouth to speak, a look of benignity and kindlessness, and momentarily lighted upon his fierce and terrible countenance. What words a moment were to have fallen from his lips were never spoken, as just then a young warrior, evidently sensing a trend of thought amongst the older men, leapt down from the steps of the rostrum and striking the frail captive a powerful blow across the face, which bowed her to the floor, placed a foot upon her prostrate form and turning towards the assembled council, broke into pearls of horrid, mirthless laughter. For an instant, I thought that Tarstarkus would strike him dead, nor did the aspect of Locus paternal augur any too favorably for the brute. But the mood passed, their old souls reasserted their ascendancy, and they smiled. 
It was portentous, however, that they did not laugh aloud, for the brute's acts constituted a side-splitting witticism according to the ethics of the rural green Martian humor. That I have taken moments to write down a part of what occurred as the blow fell does not signify that I remained inactive for any such length of time. I think I must have sensed something of what was coming, for I realize now that I was crouching as for a spring as I saw the blow aimed at a beautiful, upturned, bleeding face, and the ear of the hand descended, I was halfway across the hall. Scarcely had the hideous laugh rang out but once when I was upon him. The brute was twelve feet in height and armed to the teeth, but I believe that I could have accounted for the whole roomful in a terrific intensity of my rage. Springing upward, I struck him full in the face as he turned at my warning cry, and then, as he drew his short sword, I drew mine and sprang up again upon his breast. Hooking one leg over the butt of his pistol and grasping one of his huge tusks with my left hand, while delivering a blow after blow to his enormous chest. He could not use his short sword to advantage because I was too close to him, nor could he draw his pistol, which he attempted to do in direct opposition to Martian custom, which says that you may not fight a fellow warrior in private combat with anything other than the weapon which you were attacked. In fact, he could do nothing but make a wild and futile attempt to dislodge me. With all of his immense bulk, he was little, if any, stronger than I, and it was but a matter of a moment or two before he sank, bleeding and lifeless, to the floor. Deja Thoris had raised herself upon one elbow and was watching the battle with wide, staring eyes. When I regained my feet, I raised her in my arms and bore her to one of the benches at the side of the room. Again, no Martian interfered with me, and tearing a piece of silk from my cape, I endeavored to staunch the flow of blood from her nostrils. I was soon successful, as her injuries amounted to little more than an ordinary nosebleed. And when she could speak, she placed her hand upon my arm, and looking up into my eyes, said, Why did you do that? You, who refused even friendly recognition in the first hour of my peril, and now you risk your life and kill one of your companions for my sake. I cannot understand. What strange manner of man are you, that you consort with the green men, though your form is that of my race, while your color is a little darker than that of the white ape? Tell me, are you human, or are you more than human? It is a strange tale, I replied, too long to attempt to tell you now, and one which I so much doubt the credibility of myself that I fear to hope that others will believe it. Suffice it for the present that I am your friend, and, so far as our captors will permit, your protector and your servant. Then you too are a prisoner. But why then those arms and regalia of the Tharkian chieftain? What is your name? Where is your country? Yes, Dejah Thoris, I am too a prisoner. My name is John Carter, and I claim Virginia, one of the United States of America, Earth, as my home. But why am I permitted to wear arms? I do not know. Nor was I aware that my regalia was that of a chieftain. We were interrupted at this juncture by the approach of one of the warriors bearing arms, a countenance, and ornaments, and in a flash one of her questions was answered and a puzzle cleared up for me. I saw that the body of my dead antagonist had been stripped, and I read that the menacing yet respectful attitude of the warrior who had brought me his trophies of the kill the same demeanor as that evinced by the other who had brought me my original equipment. And now, for the first time, I realized that my blow on the occasion of my first battle 
in the audience chamber had resulted in the death of my adversary. The reason for the whole attitude displayed towards me was now apparent. I had won my spurs, so to speak, and in the crude justice which always marks Martian dealings and which, amongst other things, has caused me to call her the planet of paradoxes, I was accorded the honors due to a conqueror, the trappings and the position of a man that I killed. In truth, I was a Martian chieftain, and this I learned later was the cause of my great freedom and my toleration of the audience chamber. As I had turned to receive the dead warrior's chattels, I had noticed that Tars Targus and several others had pushed forward towards us, and the eyes from the former rested upon me in the most quizzical manner. Finally, he addressed me. You speak the tongue of Barsoom quite readily for one who was deaf and dumb to us a few short days ago. Where did you learn it, John Carter? You yourself are responsible, Tars Tarkis, I replied, in that you furnish me with an instructionist of a remarkable ability. I have to thank Soda for my learnings. She has done well, he answered, but your education in other respects needs considerable polish. Do you know what your unprecedented termity would have cost you had you failed to kill either of the two chieftains whose metal you now wear? I presume that the one whom I failed to kill would have killed me, I answered, smiling. No, you are wrong. Only in the last extremity of self-defense would a Martian warrior kill a prisoner. We like to save them for other purposes. And his face bespoke of possibilities that were not pleasant to dwell upon. But one thing can save you now, he continued, should you, in recognition of your remarkable valor, ferocity, and prowess, be considered by Tal Hodges as worthy of his service, you may be taken into the community and become a full-fledged Tharkian. Until we reach the headquarters of Thal Hodges, it is a will of Locus Potomal that you be accorded the respect that acts have earned you. You will be treated by us as a Tharkian chieftain. But you must not forget that every chief that ranks you is responsible for your safe delivery to our mighty and most ferocious ruler. I am done. I hear you, Tarstarkus, I answered. As you know, I am not a Barsoom. Your ways are not my ways, and I can only act in the future as I have in the past. In accordance with the dictates of my conscience and guided by the standards of my own people, if you will leave me alone, I'll go in peace. But if not, let the individual Barsoomians with whom I must deal with either respect my rights as a stranger amongst you, or take whatever consequence may befall. Of one thing, let us be sure. Whatever may be your ultimate intentions towards this unfortunate young woman, whoever would offer her injury or insult in the future must figure on making a full accounting to be. I understand that you belittle all sentiment of generosity and kindness. But I do not, and I can convince your most doughty warrior that these characteristics are not incompatible with the ability to fight. Ordinarily, I am not given to long speeches, nor ever before had I descended to bombast, but I had guessed at the keynote which would strike an answering chord in the breast of the Creed Martians. Nor was I wrong, for my Harengu eventually deeply impressed them and their attitudes towards me thereafter were still further respectful. Tars Tarkas himself seemed pleased with my reply, but his only comment was more or less an enigmatical, and I think I know Tal Hajus, Jeddak of Thark. I now turned my attention to Deja Thoris, and assisted her to her feet. I turned with her towards the exit, 
ignoring her hovering guardian harpies as well as the inquiring glances of the chieftains. Was I not now a chieftain also? Well then, I would assume the responsibilities of one. They did not molest us, and so Dejah Thoris, Princess of Helium, and John Carter, Gentleman of Virginia, followed by a faithful Wooler, passed through utter silence from the audience chamber of Lorcus Petermo, Jed amongst the thocks of Basum. End of chapter. Chapter 11. With Dejah Thoris. As we reached the open, the two female guards who had been detailed to watch over Dejah Thoris hurried up and made as though to assume custody of her once more. The poor child shrank against me, and I felt her two little hands fold tightly over my arm. Waving the woman away, I informed them that Sola would attend to the captive hereafter, and I further warned Sokoja that any more of the cruel attentions bestowed upon Deja Thoris would result in Sokoja's sudden and painful demise. My threat was unfortunate and resulted in more harm than good to Deja Thoris, for... As I learned later, men do not kill women upon Mars, nor women men. So Sokoja merely gave us an ugly look and departed to hatch up the devil trees against us. I soon found Sola and explained to her that I wished her to guard Deja Thoris, as she had guarded me. That I wished her to find other quarters where they would not be molested by Sokoja, and I finally informed her that I myself would take up my quarters amongst the men. Sona glanced at the accountments which were carried in my hand and slung across my shoulder. You are a great chieftain now, John Carter, she said, and I must do your bidding, though indeed I am glad to do it under any circumstances. The man whose medal you carry was young, but he was a great warrior, and had by his promotions and kills won his way close to the rank of Tarstarkus, who, as you know, is second to Locus Batomal only. You are the eleventh. There are but ten chieftains in this community who rank you in prowess. And uh, if I should kill Locus Potomo, I asked. You would be first, John Carter, but you may only win that honor by the will of the entire council that Locus Potomo meet you in combat, or should he attack you, you may kill him in self-defense and thus win first place. My laugh and changed the subject. I had no particular desire to kill Locus Potomo, and less to be jed amongst the Tharks. I accompanied Sola and Dejah Thoris in a search for a new quarters, which we found in a building nearer the audience chamber, and of far more pretentious architecture than our former habitation. We also found in this building real sleeping apartments, with ancient beds of highly wrought metal swinging from enormous gold chains, depending from the marble ceiling. The decorations from the ceilings were most elaborate, and, unlike the frescoes in the other buildings I had examined, portrayed many human figures in the compositions. These were of people like myself, and of a much lighter color than Dejah Thoris. They were clad in graceful, flowing robes, highly ornamented with metal and jewels, and their luxuriant hair was of a beautiful golden and reddish bronze. The men were beardless, and only a few wore arms. The scenes depicted for most part a fair-skinned, fair-haired people at play. Dejah Thoris clasped her hands with an exclamation of rapture as she gazed upon the magnificent work of art, wrought by people long extinct, while Sona, on the other hand, apparently did not see them. We decided to use this room on the second floor and overlooking the plaza, for Dejah Thoris and Sona, and another room adjoining and in the rear for cooking and supplies. 
I then dispatched Sola to bring the bedding and such food and utensils as she might need, telling her that I would guard Deja Thoris until her return. As Sola departed, Deja Thoris turned to me with a faint smile. And where are to, whether then would a prisoner escape should you leave her, unless it was to follow you and crave your protection, and ask your pardon for the cruel thoughts she has harbored against you for the past few days? You are right, I answered. There is no escape for either of us, unless we go together. I heard your challenge to the creature you call Tarstarkus, and I think I understand your position amongst these people. But what I cannot fathom is your statement that you are not a Barsoom. In the name of my first ancestor, then, she continued, where may you be from? You are like unto my people, and yet so unlike. You speak my language, and yet I heard you tell Tarstarkus that you had but learned it recently. Old Barsoomians speak the same tongue from the ice-clad south to the ice-clad north, though their written languages differ. Only in the valley door where the river is empties into the lost sea of Chorus is there supposed to be a different language spoken, and, except in the legends of our ancestors, there is no record of a Barsoomian returning up the river Is, from the shores of the Chorus into the valley of Dor. Do not tell me that you have thus returned. They would kill you horribly anywhere upon the surface of Basum if that were true. Tell me it not. Her eyes were filled with a strange, weird light. Her voice was pleading, and her little hands reached up upon my breast, were pressed against me as though to wring a denial from my very heart. I do not know your customs, Stegothorus, but in my own Virginia, a gentleman does not lie to save himself. I am not of Dor. I have never seen a mysterious Is. The lost sea of Chorus is still lost, so far as I am concerned. Do you believe me? And then it struck me suddenly that I was very anxious that she should believe me. It was not that I feared the result which would follow a general relief that I had returned from the Bothunian heaven or hell, or whatever it was. Why was it then? Why should I care what she thought? I looked down at her, her beautiful face upturned, and her wonderful eyes opening up the very depths of her soul. And as my eyes met hers, I knew why. But I shuddered. A similar wave of feeling seemed to stir in her. She drew away from me with a sigh, and with her earnest, beautiful face turned up to mine, she whispered, I uh, believe you, John Carter. I do not know what a gentleman is, nor have I ever heard before of Virginia, but on Barsoom no man lies. If he does not wish to speak the truth, he is silent. Where is this Virginia, your country, John Carter? She asked, and it seemed that this fair name of my fair lad had never sounded more beautiful than it fell from the perfect lips on the far gone day. I am from another world, I answered. The great planet Earth, which revolves about our common sun and next within the orbit of your Barsoom, which we know as Mars. How I came to be here, I cannot tell you, for I do not know. But here I am, and since my presence has permitted me to serve Deja Thoris, I am glad to be here. She gazed at me with troubled eyes, long and questioningly, that it was difficult to believe my statement I well knew, nor could I hope that she would do so, however much I craved her confidence and respect. I would much rather not have told her anything of my antecedents, but no man could look into the depths of those eyes and refuse the slightest behest. Finally, she smiled, and rising said, I shall have to believe even though I cannot understand. 
I can readily perceive that you are not of the Balsoom of today. You are like us, yet different. But why should I trouble my poor head with such a problem when my heart tells me that I believe because I wish to believe? It was good logic, good, earthly, feminine logic, and if it satisfied her, I certainly could pick no flaws in it. As a matter of fact, it was about the only kind of logic that could be brought to bear upon my problem. We fell into a general conversation then, asking and answering many questions on each side. She was curious to learn of the customs of my people and displayed a remarkable knowledge of the events on earth. When I questioned her closely on this seeming familiarity with earthly things, she laughed and cried out, Why, every schoolboy in Unbarsoom knows the geography and much concerning the fauna and flora as well as the history of your planet fully as well as his own. Can we not see everything which takes place upon earth, as you call it? Is it not hanging there in the heavens in plain sight? This baffled me, I must confess, fully as much as my statement had confounded her. I told her so. She then explained in general that instruments her people had used and been perfecting for ages, which permit them to throw upon the screen a perfect image of what was transpiring upon any planet and upon many of the stars. These pictures are so perfect in detail that when photographed and enlarged, the objects no greater than a blade of grass may be distinctly recognized. I afterward, in Hedium, saw many of these pictures, as well as the instruments which produced them. If then you are so familiar with earthly things, I asked, why is it that you do not recognize me as identical to the inhabitants of that planet? She smiled again as one might abhorred indulgence of a questioning child. Because, John Carter, she replied, Nearly every planet and star having atmospheric conditions at all approaching those of Basum shows forms of animal life almost identical with you and me. And further, Earthmen almost without exception cover their bodies with strange, unsightly pieces of cloth, and their heads with hideous contraptions the purpose of which we have been unable to conceive. While you, when found by the Tharkian warriors, were entirely undisfigured and unadorned. The fact that you wore no ornaments is a strong proof that you are unbarsoonian origin, while the absence of grotesque coverings might cause a doubt to your earthliness. I then narrated the details of my departure from the earth, explaining that my body there lay fully clothed in all the, to her, strange garments of mundane dwellers. At this point, Sola returned with our meager belongings, and her young Martian protege, who, of course, would have to share the quarters with them. Solo asked us if we had a visitor during her absence, and seemed much surprised when we answered in the negative. It seemed that as she had mounted the approach to the upper floors where the quarters were located, she had met Sokoja descending. We decided that she must have been eavesdropping, but as we could recall nothing of importance that had been passed between us, we dismissed the matter as of little consequence, merely promising ourselves to be warned to the utmost caution in the future. Degitaurus and I fell into examining the architecture and decorations of the beautiful chamber the building that we were occupying. She told me that these people had presumably flourished over a hundred thousand years before. They were the earthly progenitors of her race, but had mixed with the other great race of the early Martians, who were very dark, almost black, and also with a reddish-yellow face which had flourished at the same time. 
These three great divisions in the higher Martians had been forced into mighty alliance as the drying up of the Martian seas had compelled them to seek the comparatively few and always diminishing fertile areas, and to defend themselves under new conditions of life against the wild hordes of the Green Men. Ages of close relationship and intermarrying had resulted in the race of Red Men, of which Dejithorus was a fair and beautiful daughter. During the ages of hardship and incessant warring between their own various races, as well as with the Green Men, and before they had fitted themselves to the changed conditions, much of the high civilizations and many of the arts of the fair-haired Martians had become lost. But the Red Race of today has reached the point where it feels that it has made up in new discoveries and a more practical civilization for all that lies irrevocably buried with the ancient Barsoonians beneath the countless intervening ages. These ancient Martians had been a highly cultivated and literary race, but during the vicissitudes of those trying centuries of readjustment to new conditions, not only did their advancement and production cease entirely, but practically all of their archives, records, and literature were lost. Dejithorus related many interesting facts and legends concerning this lost race of noble and kindly people. She said that the city in which we were camping was supposed to have been the center of commerce and culture known as Korad. It had been built upon a beautiful natural harbor, landlocked by magnificent hills. The little valley on the west front of the city, she explained, was all that remained of the harbor while the pass through the hills to the old sea bottom had been a channel through which the shipping passed up to the city's gates. The shores of the ancient seas were dotted with just such cities, and lesser ones in diminishing numbers, were to be found converging towards the center of the oceans, as the peoples had found it necessary to follow the receding waters until necessity had forced upon them their ultimate salvation, the so-called Martian Canals. We had been so engrossed in exploration of the building and in our conversation that it was late into the afternoon before we realized it. We were brought back to the realization of our present conditions by a messenger, bearing a summons from Locus Potomal directing me to appear before him forthwith, bidding Dejit Thoris and Sola farewell, and commanding Buddha to remain on guard. I hastened to the audience chamber, where I found Locus Potomal and Tarstarkas seated on the rostrum. End of chapter. Chapter 12. A Prisoner with Power. As I entered and saluted, Loquus Potomal signaled me to advance, and fixing his great hideous eyes upon me, addressed me as thus. You have been with us a few days, yet during that time you have by your prowess won a high position among us. Be that as it may, you are not one of us, you owe us no allegiance. Your position is a peculiar one, he continued. You are a prisoner, and yet you give commands which must be obeyed. You are an alien, yet you are a Tharkian chieftain. You are a midget, and yet you kill a mighty warrior with one blow of your fist. And now you are reported to have been plotting to escape with another prisoner of another race. A prisoner... A prisoner who, from her own admission, half believes that you are returned from the Valley of Dor. Either one of these accusations, if proved, would be sufficient grounds for your execution. But we are a just people, 
and you shall have a trial upon the return to Thuk, if Tal Hajus so commands. But, he continued, his fierce collateral turns, if you run off with the Red Gill, it is I who shall have to account to Tal Hajus. It is I who shall have to face Tars Tarkas and either demonstrate my right to command, or the metal of my dead carcass will go to a better man, for such is the custom of the Tharks. I have no quarrel with Tars Tarkas. Together we rule supreme the greatest of the lesser communities amongst the green men. We do not wish to fight between ourselves, and so, if you were dead, John Carter, I should be glad. Under two conditions only, however, may you be killed by us without orders from Tull Hodges. In personal combat in self-defense, you should attack one of us, or where you were apprehended in an attempt to escape. As a matter of justice, I must warn you that we only await one of these two excuses for ridding ourselves with so great a responsibility. The safe delivery of the Red Girl to Tell Hodges is of the greatest importance. Not in a thousand years have the Tharks made such a capture. She is the granddaughter of the greatest of the Red Jeducks, who is also thou bitterest enemy. I have spoken. The Red Girl told us that we were without the softer sentiments of humanity, but we are just and truthful race. You may go. Tony, I left the audience chamber, so this was the beginning of Sokoja's persecution. I knew that none other could be responsible for this report, which had reached the ears of Locus Potomble so quickly, and now I recalled those portions of our conversation which had touched upon the escape and of my origin. Sokoja was at this time Tars Tarkas's oldest and most trusted female. As such, she was a mighty power behind the throne, for no warrior had the confidence of Locus Potobol to such an extent as his ablest lieutenant, Tars Tarkas. However, instead of putting thoughts of possible escape from my mind, my audience with Locus Potobol only served to center my every faculty on the subject. Now, more than ever, the absolute necessity for escape insofar as Dejah Thoris was concerned was oppressed upon me for I was convinced that some horrible fate awaited her at the headquarters of Tull Hargis. As described by Soda, this monster was exaggerated personification of all the ages of cruelty, ferocity, and brutality from which he had descended. Cold, cunning, calculating, he was also, in marked contrast to most of his fellows, a slave to that brute passion which the waning demands of procreation upon their dying planet as almost still in the Martian breast. The thought of that divine Dejathoris might fall into the clutches of such an abysmal atavism started the cold sweat upon me. Far better that we save friendly bullets for ourselves at the last moment, as did those brave frontier women of my last land, who took their own lives rather than fall into the hands of the Indian braves. As I wandered about the plaza, lost in my gloomy forbearings, Tars Tarkas approached me on his way from the audience chamber. His demeanor towards me was unchanged, and he greeted me as though he had not just parted a few moments ago. Where are your quarters, John Carter? he asked. I've selected none, I replied. It seemed best that I courted either by myself or amongst the other warriors. 
and I was awaiting an opportunity to ask your advice. As, you know, and I smiled, I'm not yet familiar with all the customs of Tharks. Come with me, he directed, and together we moved off across the plaza to a building, which I was glad to see adjoined that occupied by Sola and her charges. My quarters are on the first floor of this building, he said, and the second floor also is fully occupied by warriors, but the third floor and the floors above are vacant. You may take your choice of these. I understand, he continued, that you have given up your woman to the red prisoner. Well, as you have said, your ways are not our ways, but you can find well enough to do about it as you please. And so, if you wish to give your woman to a captive, it is your own affair. But as a chieftain, you should have those to serve you, and, in accordance with our customs, you may select any or all the females from the retinues of the chieftains whose metal you now wear. I thanked him, but assured him that I could get along very nicely without assistance, except in the matter of preparing food. And so he promised to send a woman to me for this purpose, and also for the care of my arms and the manufacture of my ammunition, which he said would be necessary. I suggested that they might also bring some sleeping silks and furs which belonged to me as the spoils of combat, for the nights were cold, and I had none of my own. He promised to do so and departed. Left alone, I ascended the winding corridor to the upper floors in search of a suitable quarters. The beauties of the other buildings were repeated in this, and, as usual, I was soon lost in a tour of investigation and discovery. I finally chose a front room on the third floor because that brought me nearer to Doja Thoris, whose apartment was on the second floor of the adjoining building, and it flashed upon me that I could rig up some means of communication whereby she might signal me in case she needed either my services or my protection. Adjoining my sleeping apartment were baths, dressing rooms, and other sleeping and living apartments. In all some ten rooms on this floor, the windows of the back rooms overlooked an enormous court, which formed the center of the square made by the buildings which faced the four contiguous streets, and which was now given over to quartering of the various animals belonging to the warriors occupying the adjoining buildings. While the court was entirely overgrown with the yellow moss-like vegetation, which blankets practically the entire surface of Mars, yet numerous fountains, statuary, and benches, and pagoda-like contraptions bore witness to the beauty which the court must have presented in bygone times. When graced by the fair-haired, laughing people, whom stern and unintelligible cosmic laws had driven not only from their homes, but from all except the vague legends of their descendants. One could easily picture the gorgeous foliage of the luxuriant Martian vegetation, which once filled the scene with life and color. The graceful figures of beautiful women, the straight and handsome men, the happy, frolicking children, all sunlight, happiness, and peace. It was difficult to realize that they had gone down through the ages of darkness, cruelty, and ignorance, until their hereditary instincts of culture and humanitarianism had risen ascendant once more in a final composite race which now was dominant upon Mars. My thoughts were cut short by the advert of several young females bearing loads of weapons, silks, furs, jewels, cooking utensils, and casks of food and drink, including considerable loot from the aircraft. All this, it seemed, had been the property of the two chieftains I had slain, and now, by the customs of Tharks, it had become mine. 
At my direction, they placed the stuff in one of the back rooms and then departed, only to return with a second load, which they advised me constituted the balance of my goods. On the second trip, they were accompanied by ten or fifteen other women and youths, who, it seemed, formed the retinues of the two chieftains. They were not their families, nor their wives, nor their servants. The relationship was peculiar, and so unlike anything known to us and the most difficult to describe. All property amongst the green Martians is owned in common by the community, except the personal weapons, ornaments, and sleeping silks and furs of the individuals. These alone can one claim undisputed right to, nor may he accumulate more of these than are required for his actual needs. The surplus he holds merely as custodian, and it is passed on to the younger members of the community as necessity demands. The woman and children of a man's retinue may be likened to a military unit for which he is responsible in various ways, as in matters of instruction, discipline, sustenance, and the exigencies of their continual roamings and their unending strife with other communities and with the Red Martians. His women are in no sense wives. The Green Martians use no word corresponding in meaning with that earthly word. Their mating is a matter of community interest solely and is directed without reference to natural selection. The council of chieftains of each community control the matter as surely as the owner of a Kentucky racing stud directs the scientific breeding of his stock for the improvement of the whole. In theory, it may sound well, as is often the case with theories, but the results of ages of this unnatural practice, coupled with a community interest in the offspring being held paramount to that of the mother, is shown in the cold, cruel creatures and their gloomy, loveless, mirthless existence. It is true that the Green Martians are absolutely virtuous, both men and women, but the exception of such degenerates as Tull Hodges, but better far a finer balance of human characteristics even at the expense of a slight and occasional loss of chastity. Finding that I must assume responsibilities for these creatures, whether I would or not, I made the best of it and directed them to find quarters on the upper floors leaving the third floor to me. One of the girls I charged with the duties of my simple cuisine, and directed the others to take up the various activities which had formerly constituted their vocations. Thereafter, I saw little of them, nor did I care to. End of chapter Chapter 13 Lovemaking on Mars Following the battle with the airships, the community remained within the city for several days, abandoning the homeward march until they could feel reasonably assured that the ships would not return. For to be caught on the plains with a cavalcade of chariots and children was far from the desire of even so warlike a people as the Green Martians. During our period of inactivity, Tars Tarkas had instructed me in many of the customs and arts of war familiar to the Tharks, including lessons in riding and guiding the great beasts which bore the warriors. These creatures, which are known as Thouts, are as dangerous and vicious as their masters. But when once subdued are sufficiently tractable for the purpose of the Greek Martians. Two of these animals had fallen to me from the warriors whose metal I wore, and in a short time I could handle them quite as well as the native warriors. The method was not all too complicated. If the Thouts did not respond with sufficient celerity to the telepathic instructions of the riders, they were dealt a terrific blow between the ears with the butt of a pistol, 
and if they showed fight, this treatment was continued until the brutes either were subdued or had unseated their riders. In the latter case, it became a life-and-death struggle between the man and the beast. If the former were quick enough with the pistol, he might live to ride again. No, upon some other beast. If not, his torn and mangled body was gathered up by his woman and burned in accordance with the Tharkian custom. My experience with Wula determined me to attempt to experiment with kindness in my treatment of oats. First, I taught them that they could not unseat me, and even wrapped them sharply between the ears to impress upon them my authority and mastery. Then, by degrees, I won their confidence in much the same manner as I had adopted countless times with many mundane mounts. I was never a good hand with animals, and by inclination, as well as because I brought more lasting and satisfactory results, I was always kind and humane in my dealings with the lower orders. I could take a human life, if necessary, with far less compunction than that of a poor, unreasoning, irresponsible brute. In the course of a few days, my thoughts were a wonder of the entire community. They would follow me like dogs, rubbing their great snouts against my body in awkward evidence of affection, and respond to my every command with alacrity and docility, which caused the Martian warriors to ascribe to me the possession of some earthly power unknown to Mars. How have you bewitched them? asked Tarstarchus one afternoon, when he had seen me run my arm far between the great jaws of one of my thoats, which had wedged a piece of stone between two of its teeth, while feeding on the moss-like vegetation within the courtyard. By kindness, I replied, you see, Tarstarchus, the softer sentiments have their value, even to a warrior. In the height of battle as well as upon a march, I know that my thoats will obey my every command, and therefore my fighting efficiency is enhanced, and I am a better warrior for the reason that I am a kind master. Your other warriors would find it to the advantage of themselves as of the community to adopt my methods in this respect. Only a few days since you, yourself, told me that these great brutes, by the uncertainty of their tempers, often were the means of turning victory into defeat, since, at a crucial moment, they might elect to unseat and rend their riders. Show me how you accomplish these results, was Tars Tarkas's only rejoinder. And so I explained as carefully as I could the entire method of training I had adopted with my beasts, and later... He had me repeated before Locus Patavo and the assembled warriors. That moment marked the beginning of a new existence for the poor Thoats. And before I left the community of Locus Patavo, I had the satisfaction of observing a regiment of tractable and docile mounts as one might care to see. The effects on the precision and celerity of the military movements were so remarkable that Locus Patavo presented me with a massive anklet of gold from his own leg as a sign of his appreciation of my service to the Horde. On the seventh day, following the battle with the aircraft, we again took up the march towards Thark, all probability of another attack being deemed remote by Locus Pithomo. During the days just preceding our departure, I had seen but little of Deja Thoris, as I had been kept very busy by Tars Tarkas with my lessons in the art of martial warfare, as well as the training of my thoughts. The few times I had visited her quarters, she had been absent, walking upon the streets with Sola, or investigating the buildings in the near vicinity of the plaza. 
I had warned them against venturing far from the plaza for fear of the great white apes, whose ferocity I was only too well acquainted with. However, since Wula accompanied them on all their excursions, and as Solo was as well armed, there was comparatively little cause for fear. On the evening before our departure, I saw them approaching along one of those great avenues which led into the plaza from the east. I advanced to meet them, and telling Sora that I would take responsibility for Deja Thoros' safekeeping. I directed her to return to her quarters on some trivial errand. I liked and trusted Sora, but for some reason I desired to be alone with Deja Thoros, who represented to me all that I had left upon Earth in agreeable and congenial companionship. There seemed bonds of mutual interest between us, as powerful as though we had been born under the same roof rather than different planets, hurtling through space at some 48 million miles apart. That she shared my sentiment in this respect, I was positive, for on my approach the look of pitiful hopelessness left her sweet countenance to be replaced by a smile of joyful welcome as she placed a little right hand upon my left shoulder in a true Red Martian salute. Sir Gorgia told me that you had become a true Thark, she said, and that I would now see no more of you than any of the other warriors. Sir Gorgia is a liar of the first magnitude, I replied, notwithstanding the proud claim of the Thorks to absolute verity. Dejan Thoris laughed. I knew that even though you became a member of the community, you would not cease to be my friend. A warrior may change his metal, but not his heart, as the saying is upon Barsoom. I think that they have been trying to keep us apart, she continued, for whenever you have been off duty, one of the older women of Tars Tarkas's retinue has always arranged to trump up some excuse to get Sola and me out of sight. They have had me down in the pits below the building, helping them mix the awful radium powder and make the terrible projectiles. You know that these have to be manufactured by artificial light, as exposure to sunlight always results in an explosion. You have noticed that their bullets explode when they strike an object. Well, the opaque outer coating is broken by the impact, exposing a glass cylinder, almost solid. In the forward end, which is a minute particle of radium powder, the moment the sunlight, even though diffused, strikes this powder, it explodes with a violence that nothing can withstand. If you ever witness a night battle, you will note an absence of explosions. Well, the morning following the battle will be filled with sunrise with the sharp detonations of exploding missiles fired the preceding night. As a rule, however, non-exploding projectiles are used at night. I've used the word radium in describing this powder because in the light of the recent discoveries on Earth, I believe it to be a mixture of what radium is the base. The Captain Carter's manuscript is mentioned always by name used in the written language of helium and is spelled in hieroglyphs, which it would be difficult and useless to reproduce. While I was much interested in Deja Thoris' explanation of this wonderful adjunct to Martian warfare, I was more concerned by the immediate problem of their treatment of her. They were keeping her away from me was not a matter of surprise, but that they should subject her to dangerous and arduous labor filled me with rage. Have they ever subjected you to cruelty and ignominy, Deja Thoris? I asked, feeling the hot blood of my fighting ancestors leap into my veins as I waited a reply. 
Only in little ways, John Carter, she answered. Nothing that can harm me outside my pride. They know that I am the daughter of 10,000 Jeddaks, that I trace my ancestry straight back without a break to the builder of the first great waterway, and they, who do not even know their own mothers, are jealous of me. At heart, they hate their horrid fates, and so wreak their poor spite on me who stands for everything that they have not, and for all they must crave and never can attain. Let us pity them, my chieftain. For even though we die at their hands, we can afford them pity, since we are greater than they, and they know it. Had I known the significance of those words, my chieftain, as applied by the Red Martian woman to a man, I should have been the surprise of my life. But I did not know at the time, nor for many months thereafter. Yes, I still had much to learn upon Barsu. I resume it is the better part of wisdom that we bow to our fate with as good a grace as possible, Dejathoris. But I hope, nevertheless, that I may be present the next time that any Martian, green, pink, red, or violet, has the temetry to even so much as frown on you, my princess. Dejathoris caught her breath at my last words and gazed upon me with dilated eyes and quickening breath. And then, with an odd little laugh which brought roguish dimples to the corners of her mouth. She shook her head and cried, What child? A great warrior, and yet a stumbling little child. What have I done now? I asked, in sore perplexity. Someday you'll know, John Carter, if we live. But I may not tell you, and I, the daughter of Moors Kojak, son of Tardis Moors, have listened without anger. She soliloquized in conclusion. Then she broke out again into her grey, happy, laughing moods, joking with me on my prowess as dark warrior, and as contrasted with my soft heart and natural kindness. I presume that should you accidentally wound an enemy, you would take him home and nurse him back to health, she laughed. That is precisely what we do on earth, I answered, at least amongst civilized men. This made her laugh again. She could not understand it, for, with all of her tenderness and womanly sweetness, she was still a Martian, and to a Martian, the only good enemy is a dead enemy. For every dead foeman means so much more to divide between those who love. I was curious to know what I had said or done to cause her so much perturbation a moment before, and so I continued to importune her to enlighten me. No, she exclaimed, it is enough that you have said it and that I have listened. And when you learn, John Carter, and if I be dead, as likely as I shall be, here, the further moon has circled Barsoom another twelve times. Remember that I listened and that I smiled. It was all Greek to me, but the more I begged her to explain, the more positive became her denials of my request, and so, in very hopelessness, I desisted. Day had now given way to night, and as we wandered along the great avenue lighted by the two moons of Barsoom, and with Earth looking down upon us from her luminous green eye, it seemed that we were alone in the universe, that I, at least, was content that it should be so. The chill of the Martian night was upon us, and removing my silks, I threw them across the shoulders of Dejah Taurus. As my arm rested for an instant upon her, I felt the thrill pass through every fiber of my being, such as a contact with no other mortal had ever produced, and it seemed to me that she had leaned slightly towards me. But of that, I was not sure. Only I knew 
that as my arm rested there across her shoulders, longer than the act of adjusting the silk required, she did not draw away, nor did she speak. And so, in silence, we walked the surface of the dying world. But in the breast of one of us, at least had been born that which was ever oldest, yet ever new. I loved Deja Thoris. The touch of my arm upon her naked shoulder had spoken to me in words I would not mistake, and I knew that I had loved her since the first moment that my eyes had met hers, that first time in the plaza of the dead city of Gorad. End of chapter. Chapter 14. A Duel to the Death. My first impulse was to tell her of my love, and then I thought of the helplessness of her position wherein I alone could lighten the burdens of her captivity, and protect her in my poor way against the thousands of hereditary enemies she must face upon the arrival at dark. I could not chance causing her additional pain or sorrow by declaring my love which, uh, in all probability, she did not return. Should I be so indiscreet, her position would be even more unbearable than now. And the thought that she might feel that I was taking advantage of her hopelessness to influence her decision was the final argument which sealed my lips. Why are you so quiet, Deja Thoris? I asked. Possibly you would rather return to Sola and your quarters. No, she murmured. I'm happy here. I do not know why it is that I should always be happy and contented with you, John Carter. A stranger. You are with me, yet at such times it seems that I am safe and that, with you, I shall soon return to my father's court and feel his strong arms about me and my mother's tears and kisses on my cheek. Do people kiss then upon Barsoom? I asked when she had explained the word she used in answer to my inquiry as to its meaning. Parents, brothers, and sisters, yes, and, um, she added in a low, thoughtful tone. Lovers. And you, Deja Thoris, have parents and brothers and sisters? Yes. And a lover? She was silent, nor can I venture to repeat the question. The man, how soon, she finally ventured, does not ask personal questions of women, except his mother and the woman he has fought for and won. But I have fought, I started, and then I wished my tongue had been cut from my mouth. For she turned even as I caught myself and ceased, and drawing my silks from her shoulders, she held them out to me, and without a word, and with head held high, she moved with the carriage of a queen, she was, towards the plaza and the doorway of her quarters. I did not attempt to follow her, other than to see that she reached the building in safety, but directing Wooler to accompany her, I turned disconsolately and entered my own house. I sat for hours cross-legged and cross-tempered, upon my silks meditating upon the queer freak's chance plays, upon the poor devils of mortals. So, this was love. I had escaped it for all these years that I had roamed the five continents and their encircling seas, in spite of beautiful women and urging opportunity, in spite of a half-desire for love and a constant search for my ideal. It had remained for me to fall furiously and hopelessly in love with a creature from another world, of a species similar possibility, yet not identical with mine, the woman who was hatched from an egg and whose span of life might cover thousands of years, whose people had strange customs and ideas. A woman 
whose hopes, whose pleasures, whose standards of virtue and of right and wrong might vary as greatly from mine as did those of the Greek Martians. Yes, I was a fool. But I was a fool in love, and though I was suffering the greatest misery that I had ever known, I would not have had it otherwise for all the riches of Basum. Such is love, and such are lovers wherever love is known. To me, Deja Thoris was all that was perfect, and that was virtuous, and beautiful, and noble, and good. I believed that from the bottom of my heart. From the depths of my soul then that night in Korat, as I sat cross-legged upon my silks, while the nearer moon of Barsoom raced through the western sky towards the horizon, and lighted up the gold and marble and jeweled mosaics of my world old chamber. And I believed it today, as I sat at my desk and a little sturdy overlooking the Hudson, twenty years have intervened. For ten of them I lived and fought with Deja Thoris and her people, and for ten I've lived upon her memory. The morning of our departure for Thok dawned clear and hot, as do all Martian mornings except for the six weeks when the snow melts at the poles. I sought out Deja Thoris in the throng of departing chariots, but she turned her shoulder to me, and I could see the red blood mount in her cheek. With a foolish inconsistency of love, I held my peace when I might have pled ignorance of the nature of my offense, or at least the gravity of it and so affected, at worst, a half-consolation. I sought out Deja Thoris in the throng of departing chariots. I sought out Deja Thoris in the throng of departing chariots. In my duty dictated that I mean to see that she was comfortable, and so I glanced into her chariot and rearranged silks and furs. In doing so, I noted with horror that she was heavily chained by one ankle to the side of the vehicle. What does this mean? I cried, turning to Sola. Sokoja thought it best, she answered, her face betokening her disapproval of the procedure. Examining the manacles, I saw that they fastened with a massive spring lock. Where is the key, Sola? Let me have it. Sokoja, where is it, John Carter? She answered. I turned without further word and sought out Tars Tarkas, to whom I vehemently objected to his unnecessary humiliations and cruelties. As they seemed to my lover's eyes, they were being heaped upon Deja Thoris. John Carter, he answered, if ever you and Deja Thoris escape the Thoks, it'll be upon this journey. We know that you will not go without her. You have shown yourself a mighty fighter, and we do not wish to manacle you. So we hold you both in the easiest way that will yet ensure security. I have spoken. I saw the strength of his reasoning at a flash, and knew that it was a futile to appeal to his decisions. But I asked that the key be taken from Sokoja, and that she be directed to leave the prisoner alone in future. This much, Tarstarkus, you may do for me in return for the friendship that I must confess I feel for you. Friendship, he replied. There is no such thing, John Carter. But have your will... I shall direct Sokoja cease to annoy the girl, and I myself will take custody of the key. Unless you wish me to assume the responsibility, I said, smiling. He looked at me for long and earnestly before he spoke. May you give me your word that neither you or Deja Thoris would attempt to escape until after we have safely reached the court of Tull Arches. You might have the key and throw the chains into the river Is. 
It were better that you held the key, Tarstarkus, I replied. He smiled and said no more. But that night, as we were making camp, I saw him unfasten Jejothoros' betters himself. With all his scroll ferocity and coldness, there was an undercurrent of something in Tarstarkus which he seemed ever battling to subdue. Could it be a vestige of some human instinct come back from an ancient forebear to haunt him with the horror of his people's ways? As I was approaching Dejothorus' chariot, I passed Sokoja, and the black, venomous look she accorded me was the sweetest part that I had felt in many hours. Lord, how she hated me. It bristled from her so palpably that one might almost have cut it with a sword. A few moments later, I saw her deep in conversation with a warrior named Zad, a big, hulky, powerful brute, but one who had never made a kill amongst his own chieftains, and so was still an Omad, or man with our one name. He could win a second name only with the medal of some chieftain. It was this custom which entitled me to the names of either the chieftains that I had killed. In fact, some of the warriors addressed me as Dota Sojit, a combination of the surnames of the two warrior chieftains whose metal I had taken, or, in other words, whom I'd slain in fair fight. As the Koja talked with Zad, he cast occasional glances in my direction. While she seemed to be urging him very strongly to action, I paid little attention at the time. But the next day, I had good reason to recall the circumstances and at the same time gain a slight insight into the depths of Sokoja's hatred and the lengths to which she was capable of going to wreak her horrid vengeance upon me. Dejathoris would have none of me again on this evening, and though I spoke her name, she neither replied nor conceded by so much as a flutter of an eyelid that she realized my existence. In my extremity, I did what most other lovers would have done. I sought word from her through an intimate and in this instance, it was Solo whom I intercepted with another part of the camp. What is the matter with Dejathoris? I blurted out to her. Why she still not speak to me? Solo seemed puzzled herself, as though such strange actions on the part of the two humans were quite beyond her. As indeed, they were. Poor child. She says you have angered her, and that is all she will say. Except that she is the daughter of a Jed and the granddaughter of a Jadak and she has been humiliated by a creature who could not polish the teeth of her grandmother's Sorak. I pondered over this report for some time, finally asking, Why might a Sorak be, Sola? A little animal about as big as my hand, which the rent Martian woman keep to play with, explained Sola. Not fit to polish the teeth on a grandmother's cat. I must rank pretty low in the consideration of Dejathoris, I thought but I could not help laughing at the strange figure of speech, so homely and in its respect so earthly. It made me homesick, for it sounded very much like a not-fit-to-polish-her-shoes, and then commenced a train of thought quite new to me. I began to wonder what my people at home were doing. I had not seen them for years. There was a family of Carters in Virginia who claimed close relationship with me. I was supposed to be a great-uncle, or something of the kind equally foolish. I could pass anywhere for twenty-five or two thirty years of age, and the great-uncle always seemed a height of incongruity, for my thoughts and feelings were those of a boy. There were two little kiddies in the Carter family whom I'd loved and who had thought there was no one on earth like Uncle Jack. 
I could see them just as plainly as I stood there under the moonlit skies of Barsoom. And I longed for them, as I'd never longed for any mortals before. By nature, a wanderer, I had never known the true meaning of the word home. But the Great Hall of Carters had always stood for all that would mean to me. And now my heart turned towards it from the cold and unfriendly peoples I had been thrown amongst. For did not even Dejithoros despise me? I was a low creature, so low in fact, that I was not even fit to polish the teeth of a grandmother's cat. And then my saving sense of humor came to my rescue. And laughing, I turned into my silks and furs and slept upon the moon-haunted ground, the sleep of the tired and healthy fighting man. We broke camp the next day at an early hour and marched with only a single halt until the fore dark. Two incidents broke the tediousness of the march. About noon, we espied far to our right what was evidently an incubator, and Locus Potomal directed Tars Tarkas to investigate. The latter took a dozen warriors, including myself, and we raced across the velvety carpeting of the moss to the little enclosure. It was indeed an incubator, but the eggs were very small in comparison to those that I had seen hatching in owls at the time of my arrival on Mars. Tars Tarkas dismounted and examined the enclosure minutely, finally announcing that it belonged to the green men of the Wahood and that the cement was scarcely dry where it had been walled up. There cannot be a day's march ahead of us, he said, the light of the battle leaping to his fierce face. The work at the incubator was short indeed. The warriors tore open the entrance and a couple of them, crawling in, soon demolished all the eggs with their short swords. Then, remounting, we dashed back to join the cavalcade. During the ride, I took occasion to ask Tars Tarkas if these warhoons, whose eggs we had destroyed, were smaller people than Tarks. I noticed that their eggs were much smaller than those I saw hatching in your incubator, I added. He explained that the eggs had just been placed there, but like all green Martian eggs, they would grow during the five-year period of incubation until they obtained the size of those that I had seen hatching on the day of my arrival on Barsoom. This was indeed an interesting piece of information, for it always seemed remarkable to me that the green Martian women, large as they were, could bring forth such enormous eggs as I'd seen the four-foot infants emerging from. As a matter of fact, the new laid eggs is but a little larger than an ordinary goose egg, and as it does not commence to grow until subjected to the light of the sun, the chieftains have very little difficulty in transporting several hundred of them at one time, from the storage vaults to the incubators. Shortly after the incident with the Wahoom eggs, we halted to rest the animals, and it was during this halt that the second of the day's interesting episodes occurred. I was engaged in changing my riding clothes from one of my thoats to the other, for I divided the day's work between them. When Zad approached me, and without word struck my animal with a terrific blow with the longsword, I did not need a manual of green Martian etiquette to know what reply to make, for, in fact, I was so wild with anger that I could scarcely refrain from drawing my pistol and shooting him down with the brute was but he stood waiting with a drawn longsword, and my only choice was to draw my own and meet him in a fair fight with his choice of weapon or a lesser one. This latter alternative is always permissible. Therefore, I could have used my short sword, my dagger, my hatchet, or my fists had I wished, and been entirely within my rights. But I could not use a firearm or a spear while he held only his longsword. 
I chose the same weapon he had drawn because I knew he prided himself upon his ability with it, and I wished, if I worsted him at all, to do it with his own weapon. The fight that followed was a long one and delayed the resumption of the march for an hour. The entire community surrounded us, leaving a clear space about 100 feet in diameter for our battle. Zat first attempted to rush me down as a bull might a wolf, but I was much too quick for him, and each time I sidestepped his rushes he would go lunging past me, only to receive a nick from my sword upon his arm or back. He was soon streaming blood from a half a dozen minor wounds, but I could not obtain an opening to deliver an effective thrust. Then he changed his tactics, and fighting warily with one extreme dexterity, he tried to do by science what he was unable to do by brute strength. I must admit that he was a magnificent swordsman, and had it not been for my greater endurance and the remarkable agility of the lesser gravitation of Mars lent me, I might not have been able to put up a credible fight I did against him. We circled for some time without doing much damage on either side. The long, straight, needle-like swords flashing in the sunlight and ringing out upon the stillness as they crashed together with each effective parry. Finally, Zad, realizing that he was tiring more than I, evidently decided to close in and end the battle in a final blaze of glory for himself. Just as he rushed me, a blinding flash of light struck full in my eyes so that I could not see his approach and could only leap blindly to one side in an effort to escape the mighty blade that it seemed that I could already feel at my vitals. I was only partially successful, as a sharp pain in my left shoulder attested. But in the sweep of my glance, I sought to again locate my adversary. A sight meant my astonished gaze, which paid me well for the wound the temporary blindness had caused me. Thereupon, Dejathoros's chariot stood three figures for the purpose, evidently, of witnessing the encounter above the heads of the intervening thoks. There were Dejathoros, Solom, and Sokocha. And as my fleeting glance swept over them, my little tableau was presented, which still stands graven in my memory to the day of my death. As I looked, Dejathoros turned upon Sokocha with the fury of a young tigress and struck something from her upraised hand. Something which flashed in the sunlight as it spun to the ground. Then I knew what had blinded me at that crucial moment in the fight, and how Sokoja had found a way to kill me without herself delivering a final thrust. Another thing I saw, too, which almost lost my life for me then and there, for it took my mind from a fraction of an instant entirely from the antagonist. For, as Dejathora struck the tiny mirror from her hand, Sokoja, her face livid with hatred and baffled rage, whipped out her dagger and aimed a terrific blow at Dejathoris. And then Sola, our dear and faithful Sola, sprang between them. The last I saw was the great knife descending upon her shielding breast. My enemy had recovered from his thrust and was making it extremely interesting for me, so I reluctantly gave my attention to the work at hand, but my mind was not upon the battle. We rushed each other furiously time after time till suddenly, feeding a sharp point of his sword at my breast in a thrust that I could neither parry nor escape, I threw myself upon him with an outstretched sword and with all the weight of my body, determined that I would not die alone if I could prevent it. I felt the steel tear into my chest. All went black before me. My head whirled in dizziness and I felt my knees giving out beneath me. End of... Chapter
Chapter 15 Sola Tells Me Her Story When consciousness returned, and as soon as I learned, I was down but a moment. I sprang quickly to my feet, searching for my sword. And there I found it, buried to the hilt in the green breast of Zad, who lay stone dead upon the ochre moss on the ancient sea bottom. As I regained my full senses, I found his weapon piercing my left breast, but only through the flesh and muscle which cover my ribs, entering near the center of my chest and coming out below the shoulder. As I had lunged, I had turned so that his sword would merely pass beneath the muscles, inflicting a painful but not dangerous wound. Removing the blade from my body, I also regained my own, and turning my back on his ugly carcass, I moved sick, sore, and disgusted towards the chariots which bore my retinue and my belongings. A murmur of Martian applause greeted me, but I cared not for it. Bleeding and weak, I reached my woman, whom, accustomed to such happenings, dressing my wound, applying the wonderful healing and remedial agents, which make only the most instantaneous of death blows fatal. Give a Martian woman a chance, and death must take the back seat. They soon had me patched up so that, except for my weakness from loss of blood and a little soreness around the wound, I suffered no great distress from my thrust which, under earthly treatment, undoubtedly would have put me flat on my back for days. As soon as they were through with me, I hastened to the chariot of Deja Thoris, where I found my poor Sora on her chest swathed in bandages. But, apparently, little the worse for her encounter with Sokoja, whose dagger it seemed had stuck to the edge of one of Sola's metal breast ornaments and, thus deflected, had been inflicted by a slight flesh wound. As I approached, I found Digithorus lying prone upon her silks and furs with a lithe form racked with sobs. She did not notice my presence, nor did she hear me speaking with Sola, who was standing a short distance from the vehicle. Is she injured? I asked of Sola, indicating Dejithoros by inclination of my head. No, she answered. She thinks that you are dead. And that her grandmother's cafe now have no one to polish its teeth, I queried, smiling. I think you wrong her, John Carter, said Sola. I do not understand either her ways or yours, but I'm sure the granddaughter of a ten thousand Judaks would never grieve like this over any who held but the highest claim upon her affections. They are a proud race, but they are just, as are all Barsoomians. And you have hurt or wronged her grievously that she will not admit your existence living, though she mourns your dead. Tears are a strange sight upon Barsoom, she continued, and so it is difficult for me to interpret them. I have seen but two people weep in all my life, other than Doja Thoris. One wept from sorrow, the other from baffled rage. The first was my mother, Years ago before they killed her, the other was Skoja, when they dragged her from me today. Your mother, I exclaimed, but, uh, Sola, you could not have known your mother, child. But I did, and my father also, she added. If you would like to hear the strange but unbarsoonian story, come to the chariot tonight, John Carter, and I will tell you that which I've never spoken in all my life before. And now, the signal has been given to resume the march. You must go. I will come tonight, Sola, I promised. Be sure to tell Dejithoris I'm alive and well. I shall not force myself upon her, and be sure that you do not let her know that I saw her tears. If she would speak with me, I but await her command. Sola mounted the chariot, which was swinging into its place in line. 
and I hastened to my waiting thought and galloped to my station beside Tars Tarkas at the rear of the column. We made a most imposing and awe-inspiring spectacle as we strung out across the yellow landscape. The 250 ornate and brightly colored chariots, preceded by and advanced the guards of some 200 mounted warriors and chieftains, riding five abreast and 100 yards apart, and followed by the like number of same formation, with a score of more of flankers on either side, the 50 extra mastodons or heavy draft animals known as Zitatars, and the five or six hundred extra thouts of the warriors running loose within the hollow square formed by the surrounding warriors. The gleaming metal and jewels upon the gorgeous ornaments of the men and the women, duplicated in the trappings of the Zitatars and thouts, and interspersed with the flashing colors of magnificent silks and furs and feathers, lent a barbaric splendor to the caravan, which would have turned an East Indian potentate green with envy. The enormous broad tires of the chariots and the padded feet of the animals brought forth no sound from the moss-covered sea bottom, and so we moved in utter silence, like some huge phantasmagoria, except when the stillness was broken by a glutteral growl of a goaded zitatar, or the squeeding of fighting thoughts. The green Martians converse but little, and then usually in monosyllables, low and like a faint rumble of distant thunder. We traversed a waste of moss which, bending to the pressure of broad tire or padded foot, rose up again behind us, leaving no sign that we had passed. We might indeed have been the wraiths of departed dead upon the dead sea of that dying planet for all the sound or sign that we made in passing. It was the first march of a large body of men and animals that I had ever witnessed, which raised no dust and left no spoor. For there is no dust upon Mars except the cultivated districts during the winter months, and even then the absence of high wind renders it almost unnoticeable. We camped that night at the foot of the hills that we had been approaching for two days and which marked the southern boundary of this particular sea. Our animals had been two days without drink, nor had they water for nearly two months, not since shortly after leaving Thark. But... As Tars Tarkas explained to me, they require but little and can live almost indefinitely upon the moss which covers Barsoom, and which, he told me, holds in tiny stems sufficient moisture to meet the limited demands of the animals. After partaking in my evening meal of cheese-like food and vegetable milk, I sought out Soda, whom I found working by the light of a torch upon some of Tars Tarkas's trappings. She looked up at my approach her face lighting with pleasure and with welcome. I'm glad you came, she said. Dejithora sleeps and I am lonely. My own people do not care for me, John Carter. I am too unlike them. It is a sad fate, since I must live my life amongst them, and I too often wish that I were true green marshed woman, without love and without hope. But I have known love, and so I am lost. I promise to tell you my story or rather the story of my parents. From what I have learned of you and the ways of your people, I'm sure the tale will not seem strange to you. But among green Martians, it has no parallel within memory of the oldest living Thark, nor do our legends hold many similar tales. My mother was rather small, in fact, too small to be allowed the responsibilities of maternity, as our chieftains breed principally for size. She was also less cold and cruel than most green Martian women, 
and caring little for their society. She often roamed the deserted avenues of Thark alone, or went and sat amongst the wild flowers that decked the nearby hills, thinking thoughts and wishing wishes which I believe I alone amongst Tharkian women today may understand. For am I not the child of my mother? And there amongst the hills she met a young warrior, whose duty it was to guard the feeding zitadars and thoughts and see that they roamed not beyond the hills. They spoke at first only of such things as interest a community of thoks, but gradually, as I came to meet more often, and, as was now quite evident to both, no longer by chance, they talked about themselves, their likes, their ambitions, and their hopes. She trusted him and told him of the awful repugnance that she felt for the cruelties of their kind, for the hideous, loveless lives that they ever lead, and then she waited for the storm of denunciation to break from his cold, hard lips. But instead he took her in his arms and kissed her. They kept their love a secret for six long years. She, my mother, was of a retinue of the great Tal Hodges, while her lover was a simple warrior, wearing only his own medal. Had their defection from the traditions of the Tharks been discovered, both would have paid a penalty in a great arena before Tal Hodges and assembled hordes. The egg I came from was hidden beneath the great glass vessel upon the highest and most inaccessible of the partially ruined towers of ancient Thark. Once each year my mother visited it for five long years it lay there, in the process of incubation. She dared not come oftener, for in the mighty guilt of her conscience she feared that her every move was watched. During this period, my father gained great distinction as a warrior and had taken the medal from several chieftains. His love for my mother had never diminished, and his own ambition in life was to reach the point where he might wrest the metal from Tal Hodges himself, and thus, as ruler of the Tharks, be free to claim her as his own, as well as, by the might of his power, protect the child which otherwise would be quickly dispatched should the truth be known. It was a wild dream, that of wresting the metal from Tal Hodges in five short years, but his advance was rapid and he soon stood high in the councils of Thark. But one day the chance was lost forever, in so far as it could come in the time to save his loved ones, for he was ordered away upon a long expedition to the ice-clad south, to make war upon the natives there and despoil them of their furs, for such is the manner of the green Barsumian. He does not labor for what he can rest in battle from others. He was gone for four years, and when he returned, all had been over for three. For about a year after his departure, and shortly before the time for his return of the expedition which had gone forth to fetch the fruits of the community incubator, the egg had hatched. Thereafter, my mother continued to keep me in the old tower, visiting me nightly and lavishing upon me the love the community life would have robbed us both of. She hoped, upon the return of the expedition from the incubator, to mix me in with the other young assigned to the quarters of Tal Hargis, and thus escape the fate that would surely follow the discovery of her sin against the ancient traditions of the green men. She taught me rapidly the language and customs of my kind, and one night she told me the story I have told you upon this point, impressing upon me the necessity for absolute secrecy and the great caution I must exercise after she had placed me with the other young thoks to prevent no one to guess that I was further advanced in education than they, nor by any sign to diverge in the presence of others my affection for her, 
all my knowledge of my parentage. And then, drawing me close to her, she whispered in my ear the name of my father. And then a light flashed upon the darkness of the tower chamber, and there stood Sokoja, her gleaming, baleful eyes fixed in a frenzy of loathing and contempt upon my mother. The torrent of hatred and abuse she poured out upon her turned my young heart cold in terror. That she had heard the entire story was apparent, and that she had suspected something wrong from my mother's long nightly absences from her quarters accounted for her presence there on that fateful night. One thing that she had not heard, nor did she know the whispered name of my father. This was apparent from her repeated demands upon my mother to disclose the name of a partner it sinned, but no amount of abuse or threats would wring this from her, and to save me from needless torture, she lied, for she told Sokoja that she alone knew, nor would she ever tell her child. With final imprecations, Sokoja hastened away from Tull Hodges to report her discovery, and while she was gone, my mother wrapped me in silks and furs with her night coverings, so that I was scarcely noticeable, descended to the streets and ran wildly away towards the outskirts of the city, in the direction which led to the far south, out towards the man whose protection she might not claim, but on whose face she wished to look once more before she died. As we neared the city's southern extremity, a sound came to us from across the mossy flat, from a direction of the only pass through the hills which led to the gates, the path by which caravans from either north or south or east or west would enter the city. The sounds we heard were the squealing of thoats and the grumbling of zitadars, with the occasional clank of arms and the announced approach of the body of warriors. The thought uppermost in her mind was that it was my father returned from his expedition, but the cunning of the thok held her from headlong and precipitate flight to greet him. Retreating into the shadows of a doorway, she awaited the coming of the cavalcade, which shortly entered the avenue, breaking its formation and thronging the thoroughfare from wall to wall. As the head of the procession passed and the lesser moon swung clear in the overhanging roofs and lit up the scene with all the brilliancy of her wondrous light, my mother shrank further back into the friendly shadows, and from her hiding place saw that the expedition was not that of my father, but the returning caravan bearing the young thoks. Instantly, her plan was formed, and as the chariot swung close to our hiding place, she slipped stealthily in upon the trailing tailboard, crouching low in the shadow of the high side, straining me to her bosom in a frenzy of love. She knew, but I did not, that never again after that night would she hold me to her breast, nor was it likely that we would ever look upon each other's face again. In the confusion of the plaza, she mixed me in with the other children, whose guardians during the journey were now free to relinquish their responsibility. We were herded together in a great room, fed by women who had not accompanied the expedition, and the next day we were parceled out amongst the retinue of chieftains. I never saw my mother after that night. She was imprisoned by Tal Hodges at every effort, including the most horrible and shameful torture, was brought to bear upon her to wring from her lips the name of my father, but she remained steadfast and loyal, dying at last amongst the laughter of Tal Hodges and his chieftains during some awful torture that she was undergoing. I learned afterwards that she had told them that she had killed me to save me from the like fate at their hands, and that she had thrown my body to the white apes. Sokoja alone disbelieved her, and I feel that to this day that she had suspects my true origin, 
but does not dare expose me. At present, at all events, because she also guesses, I am sure, the identity of my father. When he returned from his expedition and learned the story of my mother's fate, I was present and told Hodges told him, but never by the quiver of a muscle did he betray the slightest emotion. Only he did not laugh as Tull Hodges gleefully described his death struggles. From that moment on, he was the cruelest of cruel, and I am awaiting the day when he shall win the goal of his ambition and feel the carcass of Tull Hodges beneath his foot. For I am as sure that he but waits the opportunity to wreak a terrible vengeance, and that his great love is as strong in his breast as when he first transfigured him nearly forty years ago. As I am that we are here upon the edge of a world old ocean, while sensible people sleep, John Carter. And your father, Sola, is he with us now? I asked. Yes, she replied, but he does not know me for what I am, nor does he know who betrayed my mother to tell Hodges. I alone know my father's name, and only I and Tal Hodges and Sokoja know that it was she who carried the tale that brought the death and torture upon her he loved. We sat silent for a few moments. She wrapped the gloomy thoughts of her terrible past, and I, in pity for the poor creatures whom the heartless, senseless customs of their race had doomed the loveless lives of cruelty and of hate. Presently, she spoke. John Carter, if ever a real man walked the cold, dead bosom of Barsoon, you are one. I know that I can trust you, and because the knowledge may someday help you or him or danger Thoris or myself. I am going to tell you the name of my father, nor place any restrictions or conditions upon your tongue. When the time comes, speak the truth if it seems best to you. I trust you because I know that you are not cursed with the terrible trait of absolute and unswerving truthfulness. That you could lie like one of your own Virginia gentlemen if a lie would save others from sorrow or suffering. My father's name is Tars Tarkas. End of chapter. Chapter 16. We plan escape. The remainder of our journey to Thok was uneventful. We were twenty days upon the road, crossing two sea bottoms and passing through or around a number of ruined cities, mostly smaller than Korad. Twice we crossed the famous Martian waterways, or canals, so-called by the earthly astronomers, when we approached these points, a warrior would be sent far ahead with a powerful field glass, and if no great body of red Martian troops was in sight, we would advance as close as possible without chance of being seen and then camp until dark. When we would slowly approach the cultivated track, and locating one of the numerous broad highways which crossed these areas at regular intervals, creep silently and stealthily across to the arid lands upon the other side. It required five hours to make one of these crossings without a single halt, and the other consumed the entire night, so that we were just leaving the confines of the high-walled fields when the sun broke out upon us. Crossing in the darkness as we did, I was unable to see but little, except as the nearer moon, in her wild and ceaseless hurtling through the Barsoonian heavens, lit up the little patches of the landscape from time to time disclosing walled fields and low, rumbling buildings, presenting much the appearance of earthly farms. There were many trees, methodically arranged, and some of them were enormous of height. There were animals in some of the enclosures, 
and they announced their presence by terrifying squealings and snortings as they scented our queer wild beasts and wilder human beings. Only once did I perceive a human being, and that was at the intersection of our crossroad with the wide white turnpike which cuts each cultivated district longitudinally at its exact center. The fellow must have been steeping beside the road, for, as I came abreast of him, he raised upon one elbow and after a single glance at the approaching caravan, leapt shrieking to his feet and fled madly down the road, scaling a nearby wall with the agility of a scared cat. The fox paid him no slightest attention. They were not upon the warpath, and the only sign that I had that they had seen him was a quickening of the pace of the caravan as we hastened towards the bordering district which marked our entrance into the realm of Tulhajus. Not once did I have speech with Deja Thoris, as she sent no word to me that I would be welcome at a chariot, and my foolish pride kept me from making any advances. I verily believe that a man's way to a woman is in inverse ratio to his prowess amongst men. The weakling and the saphead have often great ability to charm the fair sex, while the fighting man, who can face a thousand real dangers unafraid, sits hiding in the shadows like some frightened child. Just thirty days after my advent on Barsoom, we entered the ancient city of Thark, from whose long-forgotten people these horde of green men had stolen even their name. The hordes of Thark number some thirty thousand souls, and are divided into 25 communities. Each community has its own Jed and lesser chieftains, but all are under the rule of Tal Hargis, Jeddak of Thark. Five communities make their headquarters at the city of Thark, and the Balans are scattered amongst the deserted cities of ancient Mars throughout the district claimed by Tal Hargis. We made our entry into the great central plaza early in the afternoon, there were no enthusiastic friendly greetings for the returned expedition. Those who chanced to be in sight spoke the names of the warriors or women with whom they came in direct contact, in the formal greeting of their kind. But when it was discovered that they brought two captives, a greater interest was aroused, and Dejatharis and I were the centers of inquiring groups. We were soon assigned to new quarters and the balance of the day was devoted to settling ourselves to the changed conditions. My home now was upon an avenue leading into a plaza from the south, the main artery down which we had marched from the gates of the city. I was at a far end of the square and had an entire building to myself, the same grandeur of architecture which was so noticeable a characteristic of Korad was in evidence here, only, if that were possible, on a larger and richer scale. My quarters would have been suitable for housing the greatest of earthly emperors. But to these queer creatures, nothing about the building appealed to them, but its size and its enormity of its chambers. The larger the building, the more desirable. And so Tal Hodges occupied what must have been an enormous public building, the largest in the city, but entirely unfitted for residence purposes. The next largest was reserved for Locus Potomal, the next for the Jed of the lesser rank, and so on to the bottom of the list of the five Jeds. The warriors occupied the buildings with the chieftains to whose retinues they belonged, or, if they preferred, sought shelter among any of the thousands of unattended buildings in their own quarter of town, each community being assigned to a certain section of the city. 
The selection of buildings had to be made in accordance with these divisions, except in so far that the jets were concerned, they all occupying edifices which front upon the plaza. When I finally put my house in order, or rather seen that it had been done, it was nearing sunset, and I hastened out to the intention of locating Sola and her charges. As I had determined upon having a speech with Deja Thoris and trying to impress on her the necessity of our at least patching up our truce until I could find some way of aiding her to escape. I searched in vain until the upper room of the great red sun was just disappearing behind the horizon, and then I spied the ugly head of Wula, peering from the second-story window on the opposite side of the very street that I was quartered, but nearer the plaza. Without waiting for a further invitation, I bolted up the winding runway which led to a second floor and entering a great chamber at the front of the building was greeted by the frenzied Wula, who threw its great carcass upon me, nearly hurling me to the floor. The poor old fellow was so glad to see me that I thought that he would devour me. His head split from ear to ear, showing his three rows of tusks and his hobgoblin smile. Quieting him with a word of command and a caress, I looked hurriedly through the approaching gloom for a sign of Deja Taurus. And then, not seeing her, I called her name. There was an answering murmur from the far corner of the apartment, and with a couple of quick strides, I was standing beside her where she crouched amongst the furs and silks upon the ancient carved wooden seat. As I waited, she rose to her full height and looked me straight in the eyes. What would Dota Sojat, Thok of Dejathorus, his captive? Dejathorus, I do not know how I have angered you, it was furthest from my desire to hurt or offend you, whom I had hoped to protect and comfort. Have none of me if it's your will, but that you must aid me in effecting your escape, if such a thing is possible, is not my request, but my command. When you are safe once more at your father's court, you may do with me as you please. But from now on until that day, I am your master, and you must obey and aid me. She looked at me long and earnestly, and I thought that she was softening towards me. I understand your words, Dutar Sojit, she replied, but you do not understand. You are a queer mixture of child and man, of brute and noble. I only wish that I might read your heart. Look down at your feet, Deja Taurus. It lies there now, where it has lain since the other night in Korad, and where it will ever lie, beating alone for you, until death stills forever. She took a little step towards me, her beautiful hands outstretched in a strange, groping gesture. What do you mean, John Carter? she whispered. What are you saying to me? I am saying what I have promised myself that I would not say to you, at least until you are no longer a captive amongst the green men. What, from your attitude towards me for the past twenty days, I had thought never to say to you. I am saying, Dejathoris, that I am yours, body and soul, to serve you, to fight for you, and to die for you. Only one thing I ask for you in return, and that is that you make no sign either of condemnation or of approbation of my words until you are safe amongst your own people, and that whatever sentiments you harbor towards me, they be not influenced or colored by gratitude. Whatever I may do to serve you will be prompted solely from selfish motives, since it gives me more pleasure to serve you than not. I respect your wishes, John Carter, because I understand the motives which prompt them, and I accept your service no more willingly than I bow to your authority. 
Your word shall be my law. I have twice wronged you in the thoughts, and again I ask for your forgiveness. But the conversation of a personal nature was prevented by the entrance of Sona, who was much agitated and wholly unlike her usual calm and possessed self. That horrible Sokoja has been before Talhachis, she cried, and from what I heard upon the plaza there is a little hope for either of you. What do they say? inquired Dejah Thoris. That you will be thrown to the wild calots, dogs, in the great arena, as soon as the hordes have assembled for the yearly games. Sora, I said, you are a Thark, but you hate and loathe the customs of your people as much as we do. Will you not accompany us in this supreme effort to escape? I'm sure the Dejathoras can offer you a home and protection amongst her people, and your fate can be no worse amongst them than it has ever been here. Yes, cried Dejathoras, come with us, Sola. You will be better off amongst the red men of Helium than you are here, and I can promise you not only a home with us, but the love and affection your nature craves, and which must always be denied to you by the customs of your own race. Come with us, Sola. Come with us, Sola. We might go without you, but your fate would be a terrible if they thought that you had connived to aid us. I know that even that fear would not tempt you to interfere in our escape, but we want you with us. We want you to come to a land of sunshine and happiness, amongst the people who know the meaning of love, of sympathy, and of gratitude. Say that you will, Sona. Tell me that you will. The great waterway that leads to Helium is but fifty miles to the south, murmured Sola, half to a south. A swift thought might make it there in three hours, and then to Helium in five hundred miles, most of the way through thinly settled districts. They would know, and they would follow us. We might hide amongst the great trees for a time, but the chances are small indeed for escape. They would follow us to the very gates of Helium, and they would take the toll of life with every step. You do not know them. Is there no other way that we might reach Helium? I asked. Can you not draw me a rough map of the country that we must traverse, Dejathoris? Yes, she replied, and taking a great diamond from her hair, she drew upon the marble floor the first map of Barsoonian territory that I had ever seen. It was crisscrossed in every direction with long, straight lines, something running parallel and sometimes converging towards some great circle. The lines, she said, were waterways, the circles, cities, and the one far to the northwest of us was pointed out with Sedium. There were other cities closer, but she said that she feared to enter many of them as they were not all friendly towards Helium. Finally, after studying the map carefully, in the moonlight which now flooded the room, I pointed out a waterway far to the north of us, which also seemed to lead to Helium. Does not this pierce your grandfather's territory? I asked. Yes, she answered. But it's 200 miles north of us. It is one of the waterways we crossed on the trip to Thark. They would never suspect that we would try for that distant waterway, I answered. And that is why I think that is the best route for our escape. Sona agreed with me, and it was decided that we should leave Thark at the same night, just as quickly, in fact, as I could find a saddle for my thoughts. Sona was to ride one and Dejathoris and I the other, each of us carrying sufficient food and drink to last us for two days, since the animals could not be urged too rapidly for too long a distance. I directed Sona to proceed with Dejathoris along one of the less frequented avenues to the southern boundary of the city. 
where I would overtake them with the thoats as quickly as possible, then leaving them to gather what food, silks, and furs that we would need. I slipped quietly to the rear of the first floor and entered the courtyard where our animals were moving restlessly about, as was their habit, before settling down for the night. In the shadows of the building and out beneath the radiance of the Martian moons moved the great herd of Thotzitadas, the later grunting their low glutterals and the former occasionally emitting a sharp squeal, which denotes the almost habitual state of rage in which these creatures pass their existence. They were quieter now, owing to the absence of man, but as they scented me they became more restless, and their hideous noise increased. It was risky business, this entering a paddock of thoughts alone and at night. Most, because their increasing noisiness might warn the nearby warriors that something was amiss, and also because of the slightest cause, or for no cause at all, some great bull thought might take it upon himself to lead a charge upon me. Having no desire to awaken their nasty tempers, upon which a night as this was so much dependent upon secrecy and dispatch, I hugged the shadows of the building, ready for an instant warning to leap into the safety of the nearby door or window. Thus, I moved silently to the great gates, which opened upon the street at the back of the court, and as I neared the exit I called softly to my two animals. How I thanked the kind providence which had given me the foresight to win the love and confidence of these wild, dumb brutes. For presently, from the far side of the court, I saw two huge bulks forcing their way towards me, through the surging mountains of flesh. They came quite close to me, rubbing their muzzles against my body, and nosing for bits of food that it was always my practice to reward them with. Opening the gates, I ordered the two great beasts to pass out, and then, slipping quietly after them, I closed the portals behind me. I did not saddle or mount the animals here, but instead walked quietly in the shadows of the buildings towards the unfrequented avenue which led towards the point that I had arranged to meet Dejathoris and Sola. With the noiselessness of disembodied spirits, we moved stealthily along the deserted streets, but not until we were within sight of the plain beyond the city did I commence to breathe freely. I was sure that Sola and Dejathoris would find no difficulty in reaching our rendezvous undetected. But with my great thoughts, I was not so sure for myself, as it was quite unusual for warriors to leave the city after dark. In fact, there was no place for them to go within any but a long ride. I reached the appointed meeting place safely, but as Dejah Thoris and Sola were not there, I led the animals into the entrance hall of one of the large buildings, presuming that the one or the other woman of the same household may have come in to speak to Sola and so delayed their departure. I did not feel any undue apprehension until nearly an hour had passed without the sight of them, and by the time another half an hour had crawled away, I was becoming filled with grave anxiety. Then there broke upon the stillness of the night a sound of approaching party, which, from the noise, I knew could be no fugitives creeping stealthily towards liberty. Soon the party was near me, and from the black windows of my entranceway, I perceived a score of mounted warriors, who, in passing, dropped a dozen words that fetched my heart clean into the top of my head. We would have likely have arranged to meet them just without the cities, and so uh, I heard no more. They had passed on, but it was enough. Our plan had been discovered, 
and the chances for escape from now on to the fearful end would be small indeed. My one hope now was to return undetected to the quarters of Dejithoris and learn what fate had overtaken her, but how to do it with the great monstrous thoughts upon my hands. Now that the city probably was aroused by the knowledge of my escape was a problem of no mean proportions. Suddenly, an idea occurred to me, and acting on my knowledge of the construction of the buildings of the ancient Martian cities, with the hollow court within the center of each square, I groped my way blindly through the dark chambers, calling the thoats after me. They had difficulty in negotiating some of the doorways, but as the buildings fronting to the city's principal exposures were all designed upon the magnificent scale, they were able to wriggle through without sticking fast. And thus, we finally made the inner court where I found, as I had expected, the usual carpet of moss-like vegetation, which would provide their food and drink until I could return them to their own enclosure. That they would be as quiet and contented here as elsewhere, I was confident. Nor was there but a remotest possibility that they would be discovered, as the green men had no great desire to enter these outlying buildings, which were frequented by the only thing, I believe, which caused them the sensation of fear, the great white apes of Arsum. Removing the saddle trappings, I hid them just within the rear door of the building through which we had entered the court, and turning the beasts loose, quickly made my way across the court to the rear of the buildings upon the furthest side, and thence to the avenue beyond. Waiting in the doorway of the building until I was assured that no one was approaching, I hurried across to the opposite side and through the first doorway to the court beyond. Thus, crossing through the court after court with only the slight chance of detection which the necessary crossing of the avenues entailed, I made my way in safety to the courtyard in the rear of Dejithoris's quarters. Here, of course, I found the beasts of the warriors who quartered in the adjacent buildings, and the warriors themselves I might expect to meet within if I entered. But fortunately for me, I had another and safer method of reaching the upper story where Dejithoris should be found, and, after first determining as nearly as possible which of the buildings she occupied, for I had never observed them before from the court side, I took advantage of my relatively great strength and agility, and sprang upward until I grasped the sill of the second-story window which I thought to be the rear of her apartment. Drawing myself inside the room, I moved stealthily towards the front of the building, and not until I had quite reached the doorway of a room was I made aware by voices that it was occupied. I did not rush headlong in, but listened without to assure myself that it was Dejithoris and that it was safe to venture within. It was well indeed that I took this precaution, for the conversation I heard was in the low glutterals of men, and the words which finally came to me proved the most timely warning. The speaker was a chieftain, and he was giving orders to four of his warriors. And when he returns to this chamber, he was saying, as he surely will when he finds she does not meet him at the city's edge, you four will spring upon him and disarm him. It will require the combined strength of all of you to do it if the reports they bring back from Korad are correct. When you have him fast-bound, bear him to the vaults beneath the Jeddak's quarters and chain him securely where he may be found when Talhajus wishes him. Allow him to speak with none, nor permit any other to enter this apartment before he comes. There will be no danger of the girl returning, for by this time she is safe in the arms of Talhajus and may all her ancestors have pity on her, for Dalhajus will have none, 
the great Sokoja has done a noble knight's work. I go, and if you fail to capture him when he comes, I commend your carcasses to the cold bosom of Is. End of chapter. Chapter 17. A Costly Recapture. As the speaker ceased, he turned to leave the apartment by the door where I was standing. But I needed to wait no longer. I had heard enough to fill my soul with dread, and stealing quietly away, I returned to the courtyard by the way I had come. My plan of action was formed upon an instant, and crossing the square and the bordering avenue upon the opposite side, I soon stood within the courtyard of Tal Hodges. A brilliantly lighted apartments of the first floor told me where to seek, and advancing to the windows, I peered within. I soon discovered that my approach was not to be as easy thing I had hoped, for the rear rooms bordering the court were filled with warriors and women. I then glanced up at the stories above, discovering that the third was apparently unlighted, and so decided to make my entrance to the building from that point. It was the work of but a moment for me to reach the windows above, and soon I had drawn myself within sheltering shadows of the unlighted third floor. Fortunately, the room I had selected was unattended, and creeping noiselessly to the corridor beyond, I discovered a light in the apartment ahead of me. Reaching what appeared to be a doorway, I discovered that it was but an opening upon the immense inner chamber, which towered from the first floor, two stories below me, to a dome-like roof of the building, high above my head. The floor of the great circular hall was thronged with chieftains, warriors, and women, and at the end was a great raised platform upon which squatted the most hideous beast that I had ever put my eyes upon. He had all the cold, hard, cruel, terrible features of the green warriors, but accentuated and debased by the animal passions to which he had given himself over many years. There was not a mark of dignity or pride upon his bestial countenance. Well, his enormous bulk was itself spread out upon the platform, where he squatted like some huge devilfish, his six limbs accentuating the similarity in a horrible and startling manner. But the sight that froze me with apprehension was that of Dejathorus and Sola standing there before him, and the fiendish leer of him as he let his great protruding eyes gloat upon the lines of their beautiful figure. She was speaking, but I could not hear what she said, nor could I make out the low grumbling of his reply. She stood there erect before him, her head held high, and even at the distance I was from them, I could read the scorn of disgust upon her face as she let her haughty glance rest without sign of fear upon him. She was indeed the proud daughter of a thousand janaks, every inch of her dear, precious little body. So small, so frail beside the towering warriors around her, but in her majesty dwarfing them into insignificance. She was the mightiest figure amongst them, and I verily believe that they felt it. Presently, Talhar just made a sign that the chamber be cleared, and that the prisoners be left alone before him. Slowly, the chieftains, the warriors, and the women melted away into the shadows of the surrounding chamber and Dejathoris and Sola stood alone before the Jeddak of the Tharks. One chieftain alone had hesitated before departing. I saw him standing in the shadows of a mighty column, his fingers nervously toying with the hilt of a great sword, and his cruel eyes bent an implacable hatred upon Tal Hargis. It was Tars Tarkas, and I could read his thoughts as they were an open book for an undisguised loathing upon his face. 
He was thinking of that other woman who, 43 years ago, had stood before this beast, and could I have spoken a word into his ear at that moment, the reign of Tal Hodges would have been over. But finally, he also strode from the room, not knowing that he left his own daughter at the mercy of the creature he most loathed. Tal Hodges rose, and I, half fearing, half anticipating his intentions, hurried to the winding runway which led to the falls below. No one was near to intercept me, and I reached the main floor of the chamber unobserved, taking my station in the shadows of the same column that Tal's Tarkas had just deserted. As I reached the floor, Tal Hodges was speaking. Princess Ahelium, I might wring my mighty ransom from your people, but I but return you to them unharmed. But a thousand times or rather would I watch a beautiful face writhe in agony and torture. It shall be a long drawn out. Not, I promise you. Ten days of pleasure were all too short to show the love I harbor for your race. The terrors of your death shall haunt the slumbers of the red man through the ages to come. They will shudder in the shadows of the night as their fathers tell them the awful vengeance of the great men. Of the power and might and hate and cruelty of Tal Hodges. But before the torture, you shall be mine for one short hour. That word of that too shall go forth to Tardis Moors, Jeddak of Helium, your grandfather, that he may grovel upon the ground in agony of his sorrow. Tomorrow the torture will commence. Tonight thou art Tarlargis's. Come. He sprang down from the platform and grasped her roughly by the arm, but scarcely had he touched her than I'd leapt between them. My short sword, sharp and gleaming, was in my right hand. I could have plunged it into his putrid heart before he realized that I was upon him. But as I raised my arm to strike, I thought of Tars Tarkas, and, with all my rage, with all my hatred, I could not rob him of that sweet moment with which he had lived and hoped all these long, weary years. And so, instead, I swung my good right fist full upon the point of his jaw. Without a sound, he slipped to the floor as one dead. In the same deathly silence, I grasped Edgethoris by the hand, and motioning Sola to follow, we sped noiselessly from the chamber and the floor above. Unseen, we reached a rear window with which the straps and leather of my trappings I lowered, both Sola and then Dejathoris to the ground below. Dropping lightly after them, I drew them rapidly around the court in the shadows of the buildings, and thus we returned over to the same course I had so recently followed from the distant boundary of the city. We finally came upon my thoughts in the courtyard where I had left them, and placing the trappings upon them, we hastened through the buildings to the avenue beyond, mounting Sola upon one beast and Dejathoris behind me upon the other. We rode from the city of Thok through the hills to the south. Instead of circling back around the city to the northwest and towards the nearest waterway which lay a so short a distance from us, we turned to the northeast and struck out upon the mossy waste across which, for two hundred dangerous and weary miles, lay another main artery leading to Helium. No word was spoken until we had left the city far behind, but I could hear the quiet sobbing of Dejathoris as she clung to me with her dear head resting against my shoulder. If we make it, my chieftain, 
The debt Helium will be a mighty one, greater than she can ever pay you, and should we not make it, she continued, the debt is no less, though Helium will never know, for you have saved the last of our line from worse than death. I did not answer, but instead reached to my side and pressed the little fingers of her I loved where they clung to me for support. And then, in unbroken silence, we sped over the yellow, moonlit moss, each of us occupied with his own thoughts. For my part, I could not be other than joyful had I tried. With Dejathoris's warm body pressed close to mine, and with all the unpassed danger, with my heart was singing as gaily as though they were already entering the gates of Helium. Our earlier plans had been so sadly upset that we now found ourselves without food or drink, and I alone was armed. We therefore urged our beasts to a speed that must tell on them sorry before that we could hope the sight of ending the first stage of our journey. We rode all night and all of the following day with only a few short rests. On the second night, both we and our animals were completely flagged, and so we lay down upon the moss and slept for some five or six hours, taking up the journey once more before the daylight. All the following day, we rode, and when, late in the afternoon, we found sighted no distant trees, the mark of the great waterway throughout all Barsoom, the terrible truth flashed upon us. We were lost. Evidently, we had circled by which way it was difficult to say, nor did it seem possible with the sun to guide us by day and the moons and stars by night. At any rate, no waterway was in sight, and the entire party was almost ready to drop from hunger, thirst, and fatigue. Far ahead of us and a trifle to the right, we could distinguish the outlines of lone mountains. These we decided to attempt to reach in the hope that from some ridge we might discern the missing waterway. Night fell upon us before we reached our goal, and... Almost fainting from weariness and weakness, we lay down and slept. I was awakened in the early morning by some huge body pressing close to mine. And opening my eyes with a start, I beheld my blessed old ruler snuggling close to me. The faithful brute had followed us across the trackless wastes to share our fate, whatever it might be. Putting my arms about his neck, I pressed my cheek close to his, nor am I ashamed that I did it nor of the tears that came to my eyes as I thought of his love for me. Shortly after this, Dejathoris and Sola awakened, and it was decided that we push on at once as the effort to gain the hills. We had gone scarcely a mile when I noticed that my throat was commencing to stumble and stagger in the most pitiful manner. Although we had not attempted to force them out of a walk since about noon of the preceding day, suddenly he lurched wildly to one side and pitched violently to the ground. Digitoris and I were thrown clear of him and fell upon the soft moss with scarcely a jar. But the poor beast was in a pitiful condition, not even being able to rise, although relieved of our weight. Sola told me that the coolness of the night, when it fell, together with the rest would doubtlessly revive him, and so I decided not to kill him, as was my first intention. As I had thought it cruel to leave him alone there to die in hunger, and thirst. Relieving him of his trappings, which I flung down beside him, we left the poor fellow to his fate, and pushed on with one throat as best we could. Solem and I walked, making Dejathoris ride, much against her will. In this way, we had progressed to within about a mile of the hills we were endeavouring to reach, when Dejathoris, from a point of vantage upon the throat, 
cried out that she saw a great party of mounted men filing down from the pass in the hills several miles away. Sol and I both looked in the direction she indicated, and there, plainly discernible, were several hundred mounted warriors. They seemed to be headed in the southwesterly direction, which would take them away from us. They doubtless were Thark warriors who had been sent to capture us, and we breathed a great sigh of relief that they were traveling in the opposite direction. Quickly lifting Dejothoris from the throat, I commanded the animal to lie down and we three did the same, presenting as small an object as possible for fear of attracting attention of the warriors towards us. We could see them as they filed out of the pass, just for an instant, before they were lost to view beyond Friendly Ridge. To us, a most providential ridge, since had they been in view for any great length of time, they scarcely could have failed to discover us, as what proved to be the last warrior came into view from the past. He halted and, to our consternation, threw his small but powerful field glass to his eye and scanned the sea bottom in all directions. Evidently, he was a chieftain, for in certain matching formations amongst the green men, a chieftain brings up the extreme rear of the column. As his claws swung towards us, our hearts stopped in our breasts, and I could feel the cold sweat start from every pore in my body. Presently, it swung full upon us and stopped. The tension in our nerves was near breaking point, and I doubt if any of us breathed for the few moments he held us covered by his claws. And then he lowered it, and we could see him shout a command to the warriors who had passed from our sight behind the ridge. He did not wait for them to join him. However, instead he wheeled his throat and came tearing madly in our direction. There was one but slight chance that we must take quickly. Raising my strange Martian rifle to my shoulder, I sighted and touched the button which controlled the trigger. There was a sharp explosion as a missile reached its goal. The charging chieftain pitched backwards from his flying mount. Springing to my feet, I urged the throat to rise and directed Sola to take Tejithoris with her upon him to make a mighty effort to reach the hills before the green warriors were upon us. I knew that in the ravines and gullies they might find a temporary hiding place, and even though they died there of hunger and thirst, it would be better so than they fell into the hands of the Tharks. Forcing my two revolvers upon them as a slight means of protection and, as a last result, as an escape for themselves from the horrid death which recapture would surely mean. I left a dead Jathoris in my arms and placed her upon the throat behind Sola, who had already mounted at my command. Goodbye, my princess, I whispered. We may meet in Helium yet. I have escaped from worse plights than this. And I tried to smile as I lied. What? she cried. Are you not coming with us? How may I, dear Jathoris? Someone must hold the fellows off for a while and I can better escape them alone than I could the three of us together. She sprang quickly from the throat and, throwing her arms about my neck, turned to Sola, saying with a quiet dignity, Fly, Sola, Dejithoris remains to die with the man she loves. Those words were engraved upon my heart. Ah, gladly would I give up my life a thousand times could I only hear them again. But I could not, then given the second, the rapture of a sweet embrace, and pressing my lips to hers for the first time, I picked her up bodily and tossed her to the seat behind Sola again, commanding the latter in peremptory tones to hold her there by force, and then slapping the throat upon the flank. I saw them borne away, Dejithoris struggling to the last to free herself from Sola's grasp. 
Turning, I beheld the green warriors mounting the ridge and looking for their chieftain. In a moment, they saw him, and then me. But scarcely had they discovered me than I commenced firing, lying flat upon my belly in the moss. I had an even hundred rounds in the magazine of my rifle and another hundred in the belt at my back, and I kept up a continuous stream of fire until I saw all of the warriors who had been first to return from behind the ridge either dead or scurry for cover. My respite was short-lived, however, for soon the entire party, numbering some thousand men, came charging into view, racing madly towards me. I fired until my rifle was empty and they were almost upon me, and then a glance showing me that Dejasaurus and Sola had disappeared amongst the hills. I sprang up, throwing down my useless gun, and started away in a direction opposite to that taken of Sola at a charge. If ever Martians had an exhibition of jumping, it was granted to those astonished warriors on that day long years ago. But while it led them away from Dejasaurus, it did not distract their attention from endeavoring to capture me. They raced wildly after me, finally, my foot struck the projecting piece of quartz, and down I went sprawling upon the moss. As I looked up, they were upon me, and although I drew my long sword in an attempt to sell my life as dearly as possible, it was soon over. I reeled beneath the blows which fell upon me in perfect torrents. My head swam. All was black, and I went down beneath them to oblivion. End of chapter. Chapter 18 Chained and Warhoon. It must have been several hours before I regained consciousness, and I well remembered the feeling of surprise which watched over me as I realized that I was not dead. I was lying among a pile of sleeping silks and furs in a corner of a small room in which were several green warriors, and bending over me was an ancient and ugly female. As I opened my eyes, she turned to one of the warriors, saying, He will live, O Jed. "'Tis well,' replied the one so addressed, rising and approaching my couch. "'He should render rare sport for the great games.' And now, as my eyes fell upon him, I saw that he was no thock, for his ornaments and metal were not of that horde. He was a huge fellow, terribly scarred about the face and chest, and with one broken tusk and a missing ear, Strapped on either breast were human skulls and depending on these number of dried human hands. His reference at the great game of which I had heard so much while amongst the thoks convinced me that I had jumped from purgatory into Gahana. After a few more words with the female, during which I assured him that I was not only fully fit to travel, the Jed ordered that we mount and ride after the main column. I was strapped security to as wild and unimaginable thoat as I had ever seen, and, with a mounted warrior on either side to prevent the beast from bolting, we rode forth at a furious pace in pursuit of the column. My wounds gave me but little pain. So wonderfully and rapidly had the applications and injections of the female exercised their therapeutic powers, and so deftly had she bound and plastered the injuries. Just before dark, we reached the main body of troops, shortly after they had made camp for the night. I was immediately taken before the leader, who proved to be the Jeddak of the hordes of Wahoon. Just like Jed, who had brought me, he was frighteningly scarred, and also decorated with a breastplate of human skulls and dried dead hands, which seemed to mark the all greater warriors amongst the Wahoons, as well as to indicate their awful ferocity 
which greatly transcends that of the Tharks. The Jeddak Barcomus was comparatively young, was the object of fierce and jealous hatred of his old lieutenant, Dak Kova, the Jed who had captured me, and I could not but note the almost studied effort which the latter made an affront to his superior. He entirely admitted the usual formal salutation as we entered the presence of the Jeddak, and as he pushed me roughly before the ruler, he exclaimed in a loud and menacing voice, I have brought the strange creature wearing metal of a thock, whom it is my pleasure to have battle with a wild thoat at the Great Games. He will die as Barcomus, your Jeddak, sees fit, if at all, replied the young ruler with emphasis and dignity. If at all, roared Dak Kova. By the dead hands of my throat, but he will die, Barcomus. No maudlin weakness on your part shall save him. Oh, would that Warhoon were ruled by a real Jeddak, rather than by a water-hearted weakling from that even old Dak Kova could tear a metal with his bare hands. Barcovas eyed the defiant and insubordinate chieftain for an instant, his expression one of haughty, fearless contempt and hate, and then without drawing a weapon or without uttering a word, he hurled himself at the throat of his defamer. I never before had seen two green Martian warriors battle with nature's weapons, and the exhibition of animal ferocity which ensued was as fearful thing, as the most disordered imagination could picture. They tore at each other's eyes and ears with their hands, and with the gleaming tusks repeatedly slashed and gored until both were cut fairly to ribbons from head to foot. Barcomus had much better of the battle as he was stronger, quicker, and more intelligent, it soon seemed that the encounter was done, saving only the final death thrust when Barcomus slipped and breaking away from a clinch. It was the one little opening that Dak Kova needed, and hurling himself at the body of his adversary, he buried his single mighty tusk into Barcomus's groin, and with a last power effort ripped young Jaddak wide open with the full length of his body, the great tusk finally wedging in the bones of Barcomus's jaw. Victor and vanquished rolled limp and lifeless upon the moss, a huge mass of torn and bloody flesh. Barcomus was stone dead, and only the most Herculean efforts on the part of Dak Kovas's females saved him from the fate he deserved. Three days later, he walked without assistance to the body of Barth Comus, which, by custom, had not yet been moved from where it fell, and placed his foot upon the neck of the erstwhile ruler he assumed the title of Jeddak of the Warhoon. The dead Jeddak's hands and head were removed to be added to the ornaments of his conqueror, and then his woman cremated what remained amid wild and terrible laughter. The injuries to Dak Kova had delayed the march so greatly that it was decided to give up the expedition, which was arrayed upon a small Thok community in retaliation for the destruction of the incubator, until after the Great Games and the entire body of warriors, ten thousand in numbers, turned back to Wahoon. My introduction to these cruel and bloodthirsty people was but an index to the scenes that I witnessed almost daily while with them. They were a smaller horde than the Tharks, but much more ferocious. Not a day passed, but the same members of the various Wahoon communities met in deadly combat. I've seen as high as eight mortal duels within a single day. 
We reached the city of Warhoon after some three days' march, and I was immediately cast into a dungeon and heavily chained to the floor and walls. Food was brought to me at intervals, but owing to utter darkness of the place, I did not know whether I lay there days, or weeks, or months. It was the most horrible experience of all my life, and that my mind did not give way to the terrors of that inky blackness has been a wonder to me ever since. The place was filled with creeping, crawling things. Cold, sinuous bodies passed over me when I lay down, and in the darkness, I occasionally caught glimpses of gleaming, fiery eyes fixed in horrible intentions upon me. No sound reached me from the world above, no word of my jailer vouchsafe when my food was brought to me, although I at first bombarded him with questions. Finally, all the hatred and maniacal loathing for these awful creatures who had placed me in this horrible place was centered on my tottering reason upon a single emissary who represented to me the entire horde of the Walhoons. I had noticed that he always advanced with his dim torch to where he could place the food within my reach, and as he stooped to place it on the floor, his head was but level with my breast. So, with the cunning of a madman, I backed into the far corner of my cell when next I heard him approaching, and gathering a little slack on the great chain which held me in my hand, I waited for his coming, crouching like some beast of prey. As he stooped to place my food upon the ground, I swung the chain above my head and crashed the links with all the strength upon his skull. Without a sound, he slipped to the floor, stone dead. Laughing and chattering like an idiot I was fast becoming, I fell upon his prostrate form, my fingers feeding for his dead throat. Presently, they came in contact with a small chain at the end of dangled a number of keys. The touch of my fingers on these keys brought back my reason with a suddenness of thought. No longer was I a gibbering idiot, but a sane, reasoning man with the means of escape within my very hands. As I was groping to remove the chain from about my victim's neck, I glanced up into the darkness to see six pairs of eyes gleaming, fixed, unwinking upon me. Slowly, they approached, and slowly I shrank back from the awful horror of them. Mac, into my corner, I crouched, holding my hands palm out before me, and stealthily on came the awful eyes until they reached the dead body at my feet. Then slowly, they retreated, but this time with a strange grating sound, and finally, they disappeared in some black and distant recesses of my dungeon. Chapter 19 Battling in the Arena Slowly, I regained my composure and finally essayed again the attempt to remove the keys from the dead body of my former jailer. But as I reached out in the darkness to locate it, I found to my horror that it was gone. Then the truth flashed on me. The owners of those gleaming eyes had dragged my prize away from me to be devoured in their neighboring lair. As they had been waiting for days, for weeks, for months, through all of this awful eternity of my imprisonment, to drag my dead carcass to their feast. For two days, no food was brought to me, but then a new messenger appeared and my incarceration went on as before. At not again did I allow my reason to be submerged by the horror of my position. Shortly after this episode, another prisoner was brought in and chained near me. By the dim of the torch, I saw that he was a red Martian 
and I could scarcely await the departure of his guards to address him. As their retreating footsteps died away in the distance, I called out softly to the Martian word of greeting, Kaua. Who are you that speaks out of this darkness? he asked. John Carter, a friend of the Red Men of Helium. I am of Helium, he said. I do not recall your name. And then I told him my story as I have written it here, omitting only a reference to my love for Deja Thoris. He was much excited by the news of Helium's princess, and seemed quite positive that she and Sola could easily have reached the point of safety from where they had left me. He said that he knew a place well because the defile through which the Warhoon warriors had passed when they discovered us was the only one ever used by them when marching to the south. Dejathoris and Sola entered the hills not five miles from the Great Waterway and are now probably quite safe, he assured me. My fellow prisoner was Kantos Khan, a Padois lieutenant in the Navy of Helium. He had been a member of the ill-fated expedition which had fallen into the hands of the Tharks at the time of Dejathoris's capture, and he briefly related the events which followed to defeat of the battleships. Badly injured and only partially manned, they had limped slowly towards Helium. But while passing near the city of Zadanga, the capital of Helium's hereditary enemies amongst the Red Men of Barsoom, they had been attacked by the great body of war vessels, and all but the craft to which Cantus Can belonged were either destroyed or captured. His vessel was chased for days by three Zodactan warships, but finally escaped during the darkness of a moonless night. Thirty days after capture of Dejathoris, or about the time of our coming to the Thark, his vessel had reached Hedium, with about ten survivors of the original crew and seven hundred officers and men. Immediately, seven great fleets, each one hundred mighty warships, had been dispatched in search of Dejathoris. And from these vessels, two thousand smaller craft had been kept out continuously in futile search of the missing princess. Two green Martian communities had been wiped off the face of Barsoom by the avenging fleets, but no trace of Dejathoris had been found. They had been searching amongst the northern hordes, and only within the past few days had they extended the quest to the south. Kantoskan had been detailed to one of the small one-man flyers, and had the misfortune to be discovered by the Warhoons while exploring their city. The bravery and daring of the man won my greatest respect and admiration. Alone, he had landed at the city's boundary, and on foot had penetrated the buildings surrounding the plaza. For two days and nights, he had explored their quarters and their dungeons in search for his beloved princess, only to fall into the hands of the party of Warhoons as he was about to leave, after assuring himself that Dejathoris was not a captive here. During the period of our incarceration, Cantus Can and I became well acquainted and formed a warm, personal friendship. A few days only elapsed, however, before we were dragged forth from our dungeon for the great games. We were conducted early one morning to an enormous amphitheater, which instead of having been built upon the surface of the ground was excavated below the surface. It had partially filled with debris, so how large it had originally been was difficult to say. In its present condition, it held the entire 20,000 warhoons of the assembled hordes. The arena was immense, but extremely uneven and unkempt. Around it, the Walhoons had piled building stone from some of the ruined edifices of the ancient city to prevent the animals and the captives from escaping into the audience. 
and at each end where they had constructed cages to hold them until their turns came to meet some horrible death upon the arena. Cantus Can and I were confined together in one of these cages, and the other was a wild calots, thoats, mad zitadars, green warriors, and women of other hordes, and many strange and ferocious wild beasts of the Barsu which I had never seen before. The din of their roaring, growling, and squealing was deafening, and the formidable appearance of any one of them was enough to make the stoutest of heart feel grave forebodings. Candace Can explained to me that at the end of the day, one of three's prisoners would gain freedom and the others would lie dead about the arena. The winners in the various contests of the day would be pitted against each other until only two remained alive, the victor in this last encounter being set free whether animal or man. The following morning, the cages would be filled with new consignment of victims, and so throughout the ten days of the games. Shortly after we had been caged, the amphitheater began to fill, and within an hour, every available part of the seating space was occupied. Dak Kova, with the judges and chieftains, sat at the center one side of the arena upon a large raised platform. At a signal from Dak Kova, the doors of the two cages were thrown open, and a dozen green Martian females were driven to the center of the arena. Each was given a dagger, and then, at the far end, a pack of twelve calots of wild dogs were loosed upon them. As the brutes, growling and foaming, rushed upon the almost defenseless woman, I turned my head that I might not see the horrid sight. The yells and laughter of the green horde bore witness to an excellent quality of sport, and when I turned back to the arena, as Cantus Can told me it was over, I saw three victorious cannots snarling and growling over the bodies of their prey. The women had given up a good account of their themselves. The mad Zedada was loosed amongst the remaining dogs, and so it went throughout the long, hot, and horrible day. During the day, I was put against first men, then beasts, but I was armed with a long sword and always outclassed my adversary in agility, and generally in strength as well. It proved but child's play to me. Time and time again I won the applause of the bloodthirsty multitude, and towards the end were cries that I be taken from the arena and be made a member of the hordes of Warhoon. Finally, there were but three of us left, a great green warrior of some far northern horde, Cantus Can, and myself. The other two were to battle, then I fight the conqueror for liberty, which was accorded to the final winner. Candace Can had fought several times during the day, like myself, and always proven victorious, but occasionally by the smallest margins, especially when pitted against the green warriors. I had little hope that he could best the giant adversary who'd mowed down all before him during the day. The fellow towered nearly sixteen feet in height, Volcantus Can was some inches under six feet. As they advanced to meet one another, I saw for the first time a trick of Martian swordsmanship which centered Cantus Can's every hope of victory and life on the cast of the dice. For, as he came to within about twenty feet of the huge fellow, he threw his sword arm far behind him over his shoulder, and with a mighty sweep hurled his weapon point foremost at the green warrior. It flew true as an arrow, and piercing the poor devil's heart, laid him dead upon the arena. Candace Can and I were now pitted against each other, but we approached to the encounter. I whispered to him to prolong the battle until nearly dark, in the hope that we might find some means of escape. 
The horde evidently guessed that we had no hearts to fight each other, and so they howled in rage, and neither of us placed a fatal thrust. Just as I saw a sudden coming of the dark, I whispered to Cantus Can to thrust his sword between my left arm and my body. As he did so, I staggered back, collapsing the sword tightly in my arm and thus fell to the ground with the weapon apparently protruding from my chest. Cantus Can perceived my coup and stepped quickly to my side as he placed a foot upon my neck, and withdrawing his sword from my body gave me a final death blow upon the neck which is supposed to sever the jugular vein. But in this instant, the cold blade slipped harmlessly into the sand of the arena. In the darkness which had now fallen, none could tell but he really finished me. I whispered him to go and claim his freedom, and then look for me in the hills east of the city. And so, he left me. When the amphitheatre had cleared, I crept stealthily to the top, and, as the great excavation lay far from the plaza, and in the unattended portion of the great dead city, I had little trouble in reaching the hills beyond. End of chapter. Chapter 20 In the Atmosphere Factory For two days I waited for Cantus Can, but as he did not come, I started off on foot in a northwesterly direction towards the point where he had told me lay the nearest waterway. My only food consisted of vegetable milk from the plants which gave so bounteously of the priceless fluid. Through two long weeks I wandered, stumbled through the nights guided only by the stars and hiding during the days behind some protruding rock or amongst the occasional hills I traversed. Several times I was attacked by wild beasts, strange, uncouth monstrosities that leapt upon me in the dark. So, that I had ever to grasp my longsword in my hand, I might be ready for them. Usually, my strange, newly acquired telepathic power warned me in ample time. But once, I was down with vicious fangs at my jugular and a hairy face pressed close to mine before I knew what was even threatened. What manner of thing was upon me, I did not know. But that it was large and heavy and many-legged, I could feel. My hands were at his throat before the fangs had a chance to bury themselves by neck, and slowly I forced the hairy face from me and closed my fingers, vice-like, upon its windpipe. Without a sound, we lay there, beast exerting every effort to reach me with those awful fangs, and I straining to maintain my grip and choke the life from it, as I kept it for my throat. Slowly, my arms gave to the unequal struggle, an inch by inch, the burning eyes and gleaming tusks of my antagonist crept towards me, until, as the hairy face touched mine, I realized it was all over. And then, a living mass of destruction sprang from the surrounding darkness, full upon the creature that held me pinned to the ground. The two rolled and growled upon the moss, tearing and rending one another in a frightful manner. But it was soon over, and my preserver stood with a lowered head above the throat of the dead thing, which would have killed me. The nearer moon, hurtling suddenly above the horizon and lighting up the Barsoomium scene, showed me that my preserver was Wula. But from whence he had come, or how he had found me, I was at a loss to know. That I was glad of his companionship was needless to say. But my pleasure at seeing him was tempered by anxiety, as the reason of his leaving Dejathoris. Only her death, I felt sure, could account for his absence from her. So faithful, I knew him to be to my commands. But by the light of the low, brilliant moons, I saw that he was but a shadow of his former self, 
and as he turned from my caress and commenced greedily to devour the dead carcass at my feet, I realized that the poor fellow was more than half starved. I myself was in but little better plight, but I could not bring myself to eat the uncooked flesh, and I had no means of making a fire. When Wula had finished his meal, I again took up my wary and seemingly endless wandering in a quest of the elusive waterway. At daybreak, on the fifteenth day of my search, I was overjoyed to see the high trees that denoted the object of my search. About noon, I dragged myself warily to the portals of the huge building which covered perhaps four square miles and towered two hundred feet in the air. It showed no aperture in the mighty walls other than a tiny door at which I sank exhausted, nor was there any sign of life about it. I could not find no bell nor other method of making my presence known to the inmates of the place, unless a small round hole in the wall near the door was for that purpose. It was about the bigness of a lead pencil, and thinking that it might be in the nature of a speaking tube, I put my mouth to it, and was about to call into it when a voice issued from it asked me who I might be, from where, and the nature of my errand. I explained that I escaped from the war wounds and was dying of starvation and exhaustion. You wear the mantle of the Green Warrior and are followed by a Kylat. Yet you are a figure of a red man. In color, you are neither red nor green. In the name of the Ninth Ray, what manner of creature are you? I am friend of the Red Men of Barsoom, and I am starving. In name of humanity, open up to us, I replied. Presently, the door commenced to recede before me until it sunk into the wall fifty feet. Then it stopped and slid easily to the left exposing a short, narrow corridor of concrete, at the farther end of which was another door, similar in every respect to the one I had just passed. No one was in sight. Yet immediately we passed the first door, it slid gently into place behind us and receded rapidly to its original position in the front of the building. As the door had slipped aside, I noted its great thickness, of fully twenty feet, and, as it reached the place once more after closing behind us, great cylinders of steel had dropped from the ceiling behind it and fitted their lower ends into apertures countersunk into the floor. A second and third door receded before me and slipped to one side as the first, before I reached the large inner chamber where I found food and drink set upon a great stone table. A voice directed me to satisfy my hunger and to feed my canot. And while I was thus engaged, my invisible host put me through a severe and searching cross-examination. Your statements are most remarkable, said the voice, on concluding its questioning, but you are evidently speaking the truth, and it is equally evident that you are not of Barsoom. I can tell that by the confirmation of your brain and the strange location of your internal organs and the shape and size of your heart. Can you see through me? I exclaimed. Yes, I can see all but your thoughts. And were you a Barsoomium, I could read those. The door opened at the far end of the chamber, and a strange, dried-up little mummy of a man came towards me. He wore but a single article of clothing or adornment, a small collar of gold from which depended upon his chest a great ornament as large as a dinner plate set solid with huge diamonds, except for the exact center which was occupied by a strange stone, an inch in diameter. This scintillated nine different and distinct rays, the seven colors of our earthly prism and two beautiful rays which, to me, were new and nameless. 
I cannot describe them any more than you could describe red to a blind man. I only know that they were beautiful in the extreme. The old man sat and talked with me for hours, and the strangest part of our intercourse was that I had read his very thought while he could not fathom an iota from mine unless I spoke. I did not apprise him of my ability to sense his mental operations, and thus I learned a great deal which proved of immense value to me later, and which I would never have known had he suspected my strange power. For the Martians have such perfect control of their mental machinery that they are able to direct their thoughts with absolute precision. The building in which I found myself contained machinery which produces that artificial atmosphere which sustains life on Mars. The secret of the entire process hinges on the use of the Ninth Ray, one of the beautiful scintillations which I had noted emanating from the great stone in my host's diadem. The ray is separated from the other rays of the sun by means of a finely adjusted instrument placed upon the roof of the huge building, three quarters of which is used for reservoirs in which the ninth ray is stored. This product is then treated electrically, or rather certain properties of refined electric vibrations are incorporated with it, and the result is then pumped to five principal air centers of the planet where, as it is released, contact with either space transform it into atmosphere. There is always sufficient reserve of the ninth ray stored in the great building to maintain the present Martian atmosphere for a thousand years. And the only fear, as my new friend told me, was that some accident might befall the pumping apparatus. He led me to an inner chamber where I beheld a battery of twenty radium pumps, any one of which was equal to the task of furnishing all of Mars with atmosphere compound. For 800 years, he told me, he had watched these pumps, which are used alternately a day each at a stretch, or a little over 24 and one-half Earth hours. He has one assistant who divides the watch with him, half a Martian year, about 344 of our days. Each of these men spend alone in this huge, isolate place. Every red Martian is taught during the earliest childhood the principles of the manufacture of atmosphere but only two at a time ever hold the secret of ingress to the great building, which, built as it is with walls of 150 feet thick, is absolutely unassailable. Even the roof is guarded from assault by craft by a glass covering five feet thick. The only fear they entertain of attack is from the green Martians or some demented red man. All Barsoomians realize that the very existence of every form of life of Mars is dependent upon the uninterrupted working of this plant. One curious fact I discovered as I watched these thoughts was that the outer doors are manipulated by telepathic means. The locks are so finely adjusted that the doors are released by an action of a certain combination of thought waves. To experiment with my newfound toy, I thought to surprise him into revealing this combination and so I asked him in a casual manner how he had managed to unlock the massive doors for me from the inner chambers of the building. As quick as a flash leapt to his mind the nine Martian sounds, but as quickly faded as he answered that was the secret that he must not divulge. From then on his manner towards me changed as though he feared that he had been surprised into divulging a great secret, and I read suspicion and fear in his looks and thoughts, though his words were still fair. Before I retired for the night, he promised to give me a letter to a nearby agricultural officer who would help me on my way to Zadanga, which, he said, 
was the nearest Martian city. Be sure that you do not let them know that you are bound for Hedium as they are at war with that country. My assistant and I are of no country. We belong to all Barsoom, and this talisman which we wear protects us in all lands, even amongst the Greenmen, though we do not trust ourselves to their lands if we can avoid it. He added. And so good night to you, my friend, he continued. May you have a long and restful sleep, yes, a long sleep. And though he smiled pleasantly, I saw in his thoughts the wish that he had never admitted me, and then a picture of him standing over me in the night, and the swift thrust of a long dagger and the half-formed words. I'm sorry, but this is for the best of Basum. As he closed the door to my chamber behind him, he and his thoughts were cut off from me as well as the sight of him, which seemed strange to me in my little knowledge of thought transference. What was I to do? How could I escape through these mighty walls? Easily, I could get him now that I was warned, but once he was dead, I could no more escape. And with the stopping of the machinery of the great plant, I would die with all other inhabitants of the planet. Or even Dejathoris, where she not already dead. For the others, I did not give a snap of my finger. But the thought of Dejathoris drove from my mind all desire to kill my mistaken host. Cautiously, I opened the door to my apartment and, followed by Wuna, sought the inner of the great doors. A wild scheme came to me. I would attempt to force the great locks by nine thought waves that I had read from my host's mind. Creeping stealthily through the corridor after corridor and down winding runways which turned hither and thither, I finally reached the great hall in which I had broken my long fast that morning. Nowhere had I seen my host, nor did I know where he kept himself by night. I was on the point of stepping boldly out into the room when a slight noise behind me warned me back into the shadows and recesses of the corridor. Dragging Wooler after me, I crouched in the darkness. Presently, the old man passed close by me, and as he entered the dimly lighted chamber which I had been about to pass through, I saw he held a long thin dagger in his hand and that he was sharpening it upon a stone. In his mind was the decision to inspect the radium pumps, which would take about thirty minutes, and then return to my bedchamber to finish me. As he passed through the great hall and disappeared down the runway which led to the pump room, I stole stealthily from the hiding place and crossed to the great door, the inner of the three which stood between me and liberty. Concentrating my mind upon the massive block, I hurled the nine thought waves against it. In breathless expectancy, I waited. When finally the great door moved softly towards me and slid quietly to one side, one after the other, the remaining mighty portals opened at my command, and Woolam and I stepped forth into the darkness, free, but little better off than what we'd been before, other than we had full stomachs. Hastening away from the shadows of the formidable pile I made for the first crossroad, intending to strike the central turnpike as quickly as possible. This I reached about morning, and entering the first enclosure I came to, I searched for some evidence of habitation. There was a low, rambling building of concrete barred with heavy, impassable doors, and no amount of hammering and hollering brought any presence. Weary and exhausted from a sleeplessness, I threw myself upon the ground, commanding Buddha to stand guard. Sometime later, I was awakened by frightful growlings and opened my eyes to see three red Martians standing a short distance from us, covering me with their rifles. 
I am an unarmed and no enemy, I hasten to explain. I've been a prisoner amongst the greedmen, and I'm on my way to Zedangda. All I ask is food and rest for myself and my calot, and proper directions for reaching my destination. They lowered their rifles and advanced pleasantly towards me, placing their right hands upon my left shoulder. After the manner of their custom of salute, and asking me many questions about myself and my wanderings, they then took me to the house of one of them which was only a short distance away. The buildings I was being hammering at with an early morning were occupied only by stock and farm produce, the house proper standing amongst the grove of enormous trees, and, like all red Martian homes, had been raised at night some forty or fifty feet from the ground on a large round metal shaft which slid up and down within the sleeves sunk into the ground, and was operated by a tiny radium engine in the entrance hall of the building. Instead of bothering with bolts and bars for their dwelling, the Red Martians simply ran them up for harm's way during the night. They also have private means for lowering or raising them from the ground without it, if they wish to go and leave them. These brothers, with their wives and children, occupied three similar houses on this farm. They did no work themselves, being government officers in charge. The labor was performed by convicts, prisoners of war, delinquent debtors, and confirmed bachelors who were too poor to pay a high celibate tax, which all Red Martian governments impose. They were personification of cordiality and hospitality, and I spent several days with them, resting and recuperating from my long and arduous experience. When they had heard my story, I omitted all reference to Dejithoris and the old man of the atmosphere plant. They advised me to color my body to nearly resemble their own race, and then attempt to find employment in Zodanga, either in the army or the navy. The chances are small that your tale will be believed until you are unproven your trustworthiness and won friends amongst the higher nobles of the court. This you can most easily do through military service, as we are warlike people on Barsoom, they explained one of them, and save our richest favors for fighting men. When I was ready to depart, they furnished me with a small domestic bullthoat, such as is used for saddle purposes by all red Martians. The animal is about the size of a horse and quite gentle, but in color and shape an exact replica of this huge and fierce cousin of the wilds. The brothers had supplied me with a reddish oil which I anointed my entire body, and one of them cut my hair, which had grown quite long, in the prevailing fashion of the time square at the back and banged at the front, so that I could have passed anywhere upon Bazoon as a full-fledged red Martian. My mantle and ornaments were also renewed in the style of a Zodagon gentleman, attached to the house of Ptor, which was the family name of my benefactors. They filled a little sack at my side with Zodagon money. The medium of exchange upon Mars is not dissimilar from that of our own, except that the coins are oval. Paper money is issued by individuals as they require it and redeemed twice yearly. If a man issues more than he can redeem, the government pays these creditors in full and the debtor works out the amount upon the farms or in the mines, which are all owned by the government. This suits everybody except the debtor as it has been a difficult thing to obtain sufficiently voluntary labor to work the great isolated farmlands of Mars, stretching as they do like narrow ribbons from pole to pole. Through wild stretches, people, by wild animals, and wilder men. When I mentioned my inability to repay them for their kindness to me, they assured me that I would have ample opportunity if I lived long upon Barsoom. 
and bidding me farewell, they watched me until I was out of sight upon the broad white turnpike. End of chapter. Chapter 21. An Air Scout for Zodanga. As I proceeded on my journey towards Zodanga, many strange and interesting sights arrested my attention. And at several farmhouses where I stopped, I learned a number of new and instructive things concerning the methods and manners of Barsoom. The water which supplies the farms of Mars is collected in immense underground reservoirs at either pole from the melting ice caps and pumped through long conduits to various populated centers. Along either side of these conduits and extending to the entire length lie the cultivated districts. These are divided into tracts of about the same size, each tract being under the supervision of one or more government officers. Instead of flooding the surface of the fields and thus wasting immense quantities of water by evaporation, the precious liquid is carried underground through a vast network of small pipes directly to the roots of the vegetation. The crops upon Mars are always uniform, for there are no droughts, no rain, no high winds, and no insects or destroying birds. On this trip, I tasted the first meat I'd eaten since leaving Earth. Large, juicy steaks and chops from the well-fed domestic animals on the farms. Also, I enjoyed luscious fruits and vegetables, but not a single article of food which was exactly similar to anything on Earth. Every plant and flower and vegetable and animal has been so refined by ages of careful scientific cultivation and breeding that the like of them on Earth dwindled into pale, grey, characterless nothing by comparison. At the second stop, I met some highly cultivated people of a noble class, and while in conversation we charged to speak of helium. One of the older men had been there on a diplomatic mission several years before, and spoke with regret of the conditions which seemed destined ever to keep the two countries at war. Helium, he said, rightly boasts the most beautiful woman of Arsum, and of all her treasures the wondrous daughter of Mars Kojak. Thars Thoris is the most exquisite flower. Why, he added, the people worship the ground she walks upon, and since her loss on that ill-starred expedition, all helium has been dripped in mourning. That our ruler should have attacked the disabled fleet as it was returning to helium was about another of his awful blunders, which I fear will sooner or later compel Zodanga to elevate a wiser man to his place. Even now... Though our victorious armies are surrounding Hidium, the people of Zodanga are voicing their displeasure. For the war is not a popular one. Since it is not based on a right or justice, our forces took advantage of the absence of the principal fleet of Hidium on their search for the princess, and so we have been able to easily reduce the city to a sorry plight. It is said that you will fall within the next few passages of the further moon. And what, think you, may have been the fate of the princess, Danger Thoris? I asked as casually as possible. She is dead, he answered. This much was learned from the green warriors recently captured by the forces in the south. She escaped from the halls of Thark with a strange creature of another world, only to fall into the hands of the Warhoons. Their thoats were found wandering upon the sea bottom as evidence of the bloody conflict were discovered nearby. While this information was in no way reassuring, neither was the conclusive proof of the death of Deja Thoris. And so I determined to make every effort possible to reach Helium as quickly as I could, and carry to Tardis Morse such news of his granddaughter's possible whereabouts as lay in my power. 
Ten days after leaving the three Pator brothers, I arrived at Zadanga. From the moment that I had come in contact with the red inhabitants of Mars, I had noticed that Wula drew a great amount of unwelcome attention to me. Since the huge brute belonged to a species which is never domesticated by red men, were one to stroll down Broadway with a Numidian lion on his heels, the effect would be somewhat similar to that which I should have produced had I entered Zodanga with Wula. The very thought of parting with my faithful fellow caused me such great regret and genuine sorrow that I put it off until just before we arrived at the city's gates. But then, finally, it became imperative that we separate. Had nothing further than my own safety or pleasure been at stake, no argument could have been prevailed upon me to turn away the one creature upon Barsoom that had never failed in a demonstration of affection and loyalty. But as I would willingly have offered my life in the service of her in search of whom I was about to challenge the unknown dangers of this, to me, mysterious city, I could not even permit Wooler's life to be threatened the success of my venture, much less his momentary happiness. For I doubted not he soon would forget me, and so I bade the poor beast an affectionate farewell, promising him, however, that if I came through my adventures in safety, that I in some way would find the means to search him out. He seemed to understand me fully, and when I pointed back in the direction of Thok, he turned sorrowfully away, nor could I bear to watch him go, but resolutely set my face towards the danger, and, with a touch of heartsickness, approached the frowning walls. The letter I bore from them gained me immediate entrance into the vast walled city. It was still very early in the morning and the streets were practically deserted. The residents, raised high upon their metal columns, resembled huge rookeries, while the uprights themselves presented an appearance of steel tree trunks. The shops, as a rule, were not raised from the ground, nor their doors bolted or barred, since thievery is practically unknown upon Barsoom. Assassination is the ever-present fear of all Barsoomians, and for this reason alone, their homes are raised high above the ground at night, or in times of danger. The Pator brothers had given me explicit directions for reaching the point of the city where I could find a living accommodations and be near the offices of the government agents to whom they had given me letters. My way led to the central square or plaza, which is a characteristic of all Martian cities. The plaza of Zadanga covers a square mile and is bounded by palaces of the Jeddak, the Jeds, and other members of royalty and nobility of Zadanga, as well as the principal public buildings, cafes, and shops. As I was crossing the great square, lost in wonder and admiration for the magnificent architecture and the gorgeous scarlet vegetation which carpeted the broad lawns, I discovered a red Martian walking briskly towards me from one of the avenues. He paid not the slightest attention to me, but as he came abreast, I recognized him, and turning in place, I put my hand on his shoulder, calling out, Cor, Cantus can! Like lightning, he wheeled, and before I could so much as lower my hand, the point of his long sword was at my breast. Who are you? he growled, and then was a backward leap carried me fifty feet from the sword, he dropped the point to the ground and exclaimed, laughing, I do not need a better reply. <laughs> there is but one man upon all of Barsoom who can bounce like a rubber ball. By the mother of the further moon, John Carter, how come you're here? And have you become a Darcian that you can change your color at will? You gave me a bad half minute, my friend, he continued, after I had briefly outlined my adventures since parting with him in the arena of Wahoon. 
Were my name and city known to the Zedagnans, I would shortly be sitting in the banks of the Lost Sea of Chorus with my revered and departed ancestors. I'm here in the interest of Tardis Mors, Jeddak of Hidium, to discover the whereabouts of Dejithoros, our princess. Sabthan, prince of Zodanga, has her hidden in the city and has fallen madly in love with her. His father, Thancosis, Jadak of Zodanga, has made a voluntary marriage to his son the price of peace between our countries. But Tardis Morse will not accede to the demands and has said word that he and his people would rather look upon the dead face of their princess than see her wed to any other than her own choice and that personally he would prefer being engulfed in the ashes of a lost and burning helium to joining the metal of his house with that of Thancosis. His reply was the deadliest affront that he could have put upon Thancosis and the Zodagans, but his people love him the more for it, and his strength in helium is greater today than ever. I've been here for three days, continued Cantus Khan, but I have not yet found where Dejithoros is imprisoned. Today, I joined the Zadagan Navy as an air scout, and I hope in this way to win the confidence of Sabthan, the prince, who is commander of the division of the Navy, and thus learn the whereabouts of Dejithoros. I am glad that you are here, John Carter, for I know your loyalty to my princess, and two of us working together should be able to accomplish much. The plaza was now commencing to fill with people going and coming upon the daily activities of their duties. The shops were opening and the cafes filling with early morning patrons. Cantus Can led me to one of these gorgeous eating places, where we were served entirely by mechanical apparatus. No hand touched the food from the time it entered the building in its raw state until it emerged hot and delicious upon the tables before the guests, in response to touching tiny buttons to indicate their desires. After our meal, Candace Can took me with him to the headquarters of the Air Scout Squadron and introduced me to his superior, and asked that I be enrolled as a member of the Corps. In accordance with custom, an examination was necessary. But Candace Can had told me to have no fear on the score, as he would attend to that part of the matter. He accomplished this by taking my order of examination to the examining officer and representing himself as John Carter. This ruse will be discovered later, he cheerfully explained, when they check up on my weights, measurements, and other personal identification data. But it will be several months before this is done, and our mission should be accomplished or have failed long before that. The next few days were spent by Candace Can in teaching me the intricacies of flying and repairing the dainty little contrivances which the Martians use for this purpose. The body of the one-man aircraft is about 16 feet long, 2 feet wide and 3 inches thick, tapering to a point at each end. The driver sits on top of this plane upon the seat constructed over a small, noiseless radium engine which propels it. The medium of buoyancy is contained within the thin metal walls of the body and consists of an eighth bosonium ray, or ray of propulsion, as it may be termed in view of its properties. This ray, like the ninth ray, is unknown on Earth, but the Martians have discovered that it is an inherent property of all light, no matter from what the source it emanates. They have learned that it is a solar eighth ray which propels the light of the sun to the various planets, and that it is the individual eighth ray of each planet which reflect or propels the light thus obtained out into space once more. The solar eighth ray would be absorbed by the surface of Barsoom, but the Basumian eighth ray 
which tends to propel light from Mars into space. It's constantly streaming out of the planets, constituting a force of propulsion of gravity, which, confined, is able to lift the enormous weights from the surface of the ground. It is a ray which has enabled them so perfect aviation that battleships, far outweighing anything known upon Earth, sail as gracefully and lightly through the thin air of Barsoom as a toy balloon in the heavy atmosphere of Earth. During the early years of the discovery of this ray, many strange accidents occurred before the Martians learned to measure and control the wonderful power that they had found. In one instance, some 900 years before, the first great battleship to be built by the 8th Ray Reservoirs was stored with too great a quantity of the rays, and she had sailed up from Helium with 500 officers and men, never to return. Her power of propulsion from the planet was so great that it had carried her far into space, where she can be seen today by the aid of powerful telescopes, hurtling through the heavens 10,000 miles from Mars, a tiny satellite that will thus encircle Basum to the end of time. The fourth day after my arrival at Zodanga, I made my first flight, and as a result of it, I won a promotion which included quarters in a place of Thancosis. As I rose above the city, I circled several times, as I had seen Candace can do, and then throwing my engine into top speed, I raced a terrific velocity towards the south, following one of the great waterways which enters Odagna from that direction. I had traversed perhaps 200 miles in a little less than an hour when I descried far below me a party of three green warriors racing madly towards a small figure on foot, which seemed to be trying to reach the confines of one of the walled fields. Dropping my machine rapidly towards them and encircling the rear of the warriors, I soon saw that the object of their pursuit was a red Martian wearing a medal of a scout squadron to which I was attached. A short distance away lay a tiny flyer, surrounded by the tools with which he had evidently been occupied in repairing some damage when surprised by the green warriors. They were almost upon him now, their flying mounts charging down on the relatively puny figure at terrific speeds. While the warriors leaned low to the right with their great metal-shod spears, each seemed to be striving to be the first to impale the poor Zodagon, and in another moment his fate would have been sealed, but had it not been for my timely arrival. Driving my fleet aircraft at high velocity behind the warriors, I soon overtook them, and without diminishing my speed, I rammed the prow of my little flyer between the shoulders of the nearest, the impact sufficient to have torn through inches of solid steel hurling the fellow's headless body into the air over the head of his throat, where it fell sprawling upon the moss. The mounts of the two other warriors turned squealing in terror and bolted in opposite directions. Reducing my speed, I circled and came to the ground at the feet of the astonished Dagon. He was warm in his thanks for my timely aid and promised that my day's work would bring reward it merited, for it was none other than the cousin of the Jaddak of the Dagger whose life I had saved. We wasted no time in talk, as we knew that the warriors would surely return as soon as they had gained control of their mounts. Hastening to his damaged machine, we were bending every effort to finish needed repairs, and had almost completed them when we saw the two green monsters returning at top speed from opposite sides of us. When they had approached within a hundred yards, their thoughts had become unmanageable and absolutely refused to advance further towards the aircraft which had frightened them. The warriors finally dismounted and hobbling their animals advanced towards us on foot with drawn longswords. 
I advanced to meet the larger, telling the Zodagon to do the best he could with the other. Finishing my man with almost no effort, as had now of much practice become habitual with me, I hastened to return to my new acquaintance, whom I found indeed in desperate straits. He was wounded and down, with a huge foot of his antagonist upon his throat and his great longsword raised to deal the final thrust. With a bound, I cleared fifty feet intervening between us, and with outstretched point curve drove my sword completely through the body of the green warrior. His sword fell, harmless, to the ground, and he sank limply upon the prostrate form of the Zadagon. A cursory examination of the latter revealed no mortal injuries, and after a brief rest he asserted that he felt fit to attempt a return voyage. He would have piloted his own craft, however, as his frail vessels could not intend to convey but a single person. Quickly completing the repairs, we rose together in a still, cloudless Martian sky, and at great speed and without further mishap returned to Zdanga. As we neared the city, we discovered a mighty concourse of civilians and troops assembled upon the plain before the city. The sky was black with naval vessels and private and public pleasure craft, flying long streamers of gay-colored silks and banners and flags of odd picturesque design. My companion signaled that I slowed down, and running his machine close beside mine, suggested that we approach and watch the ceremony, which, he said, was for the purpose of conferring honors on individual officers and men for bravery and other distinguished service. He then unfurled a little ensign which denoted that his craft bore a member of royal family of Zodankna, and together we made our way through the maze of low-lying air vessels until we hung directly over the Jeddak of Zodanga and his staff. All were mounted upon small domestic bullthoats of the Red Martians, and their trappings and ornamentation bore such quantity of gorgeously colored feathers that I could not but be struck by the startling resemblance to the concourse bore to a band of Red Indians of my own earth. One of the staff called to the attention of Than Kosas to the presence of my companion above them, and the ruler motioned for him to descend. As I waited for the troops to move into position, facing the Jeddak with two talked earnestly together, the Jeddak and his staff occasionally glancing up at me. I could not hear the conversation, and presently it ceased and all dismounted. As the last body of troops had wheeled into position before their emperor, a member of the staff advanced towards the troops, and calling the name of a soldier commanded him to advance. The officer then recited the nature of the heroic act which had won the approval of the Jeddak and the latter advanced and placed a metal ornament upon the left arm of the lucky man. Ten men had been so decorated, when the aide called out, John Carter, air scout! Never in my life had I been so surprised, but the habit of military discipline is strong within me, and I dropped my little machine lightly on the ground and advanced on foot as I'd seen the others do. As I halted before the officer, he addressed me in a voice audible to the entire assemblage of troops and spectators. In recognition, John Carter, he said, of your remarkable courage and skill in defending the person of the cousin of the Jeddak Thancosis and single-handedly vanquishing three green warriors, it is the pleasure of our Jeddak to confer on you the mark of his esteem. Thancosis then advanced towards me and placed an ornament upon me, said, my cousin has narrated the details of your wonderful achievement, which seems little short of miraculous. 
And if you can so well defend a cousin of the Jeddak, how much better could you defend the person of the Jeddak himself? You are therefore appointed as Padwar of the gods and will be quartered to my palace hereafter. I thanked him and, at his direction, joined the members of his staff. After the ceremony, I returned my machine to its quarters on the roof of the barracks of the Air Scout Squadron, and, with an orderly from the palace to guide me, I reported to the officer in charge of the palace. End of chapter. Chapter 22. My Find Deja. The major domo to whom I reported had been given instructions to station me near the person of the Jeddak, who in the time of war, is always in great danger of assassination. As the rule that all that is fair in war seems to constitute the entire ethics of the Martian conflict. He therefore escorted me immediately to the apartment in which Dan Kosas then was. The ruler was engaged in conversation with his son, Sab Than, as several courtiers of his household, and did not perceive my entrance. The walls of the apartment were completely hung with splendid tapestries which hid any windows or doors which may have pierced them. The room was lighted by imprisoned rays of sunshine held between the ceiling proper and what appeared to be a ground glass boss ceiling a few inches below it. My guide drew aside one of the tapestries, disclosing a passage which encircled the room between the hanging on the walls of the chamber. Within this passage I was to remain, he said so long as Than Kosas was in the apartment. When he left, I was to follow. My only duty was to guard the ruler and to keep out of sight as much as possible. I would be relieved after a period of four hours. The Major Dunn then left me. The tapestries were of a strange weaving which gave the appearance of a heavy solidity from one side, but from my hiding place I could perceive all that took place within the room as readily as though there had been no curtain intervening. Scarcely had I gained my post than the tapestry at the opposite end of the chamber separated, and four soldiers of the Grand Guard entered, surrounding a female figure. As they approached Thangosus, the soldiers fell to either side, and there standing before the Jeddak, and not ten feet from me, her beautiful face radiant with smiles, was Nedja Thoris. Sabthan, Prince of Zodanga, advanced to meet her, and hand in hand they approached close to the Jeddak. Then Kosas looked up in surprise, and rising, saluted her. To what strange freak do I owe this visit from the Princess of Hinium, who, two days ago, with rare consideration for my pride, assured me that she would prefer Tal Hodges, the Green Sock, to my son. Dejathoris only smiled the more, and with her roguish dimples playing on the corners of her mouth, she made answer. From the beginning of time upon Bossum, it has been a prerogative of woman to change her mind as she listed and to dissemble in matters concerning her heart. That you will forgive, Thancosis, as has your son. Two days ago, I was not sure of his love for me, but now I am, and I have come to beg you to forget my rash word and to accept the assurance of the Princess of Henium that when the time comes, she will wed Sabthan, Prince of Zadanga. I am glad that you have so decided, replied Thancosis. It is far from my desire to push war further against the people of Hinium, and your promise shall be recorded and proclamation to my people issued forth. It were better, Thancosis, interrupted Dejah Thoris. The proclamation waits the ending of this war. 
It would look strange indeed to my people and to yours were the princess of Hedium to give herself to her country's enemy in the midst of hostilities. Cannot the war be ended at once, spoke Sabthad. It requires but the word of Thancosis to bring peace. Say it, my father. Say the word that will hasten my happiness and end this unpopular strife. We shall see, replied Thancosis, how the people of Hedium take to peace. I shall at least offer it to them. Dejithorus, after a few words, turned and left the apartment, still followed by her guards. Thus was the edifice of my brief dream of happiness dashed, broken, to the ground of reality. The woman for whom I'd offered my life, and from whose lips I'd so recently heard the declaration of love for me, had lightly forgotten my very existence, and smilingly given herself to the son of a people's most hated enemy. Although I'd heard it with my own ears, I could not believe it. I must search out her apartments and force her to repeat the cruel truth to me alone before I would be convinced. And so I deserted my post and hastened through the passages behind the tapestries towards the door by which she had left the chamber. Slipping quietly through the opening, I discovered a maze of winding corridors, branching and turning in every direction. Running rapidly down the first and then another of them, I soon became hopelessly lost and was standing panting against the side wall when I heard the voices near me. Apparently, they were coming from the opposite side of the petition against which I leaned, and presently I made out the tones of Ditcher Thoris. I could not hear the words, but I knew that I could not possibly be mistaken in the voice. Moving on a few steps, I discovered another passageway at the end of which lay a door. Walking boldly forward, I pushed into the room, only to find myself in a small antechamber, in which were the four guards who had accompanied her. One of them instantly arose and accosted me, asking the nature of my business. I am from Thancosis, I replied, and wish to speak privately with Dejithoris, Princess of Helium. And your order? asked the fellow. I did not know what he meant, but replied that I was a member of the guard and without waiting for a reply from him, I strode towards the opposite door of the antechamber, behind which I could hear Dejithoros conversing. But my entrance was not to be so easily accomplished. The guardsman stepped before me, saying, No one comes from Thancosis without carrying an order or the password. You must give me one or the other before you may pass. The only order I require, my friend, to enter where I will hangs at my side. I answered, tapping my longsword. Will you let me pass in peace, or oh, no? For a reply, he whipped out his own sword, calling the others to join him. And thus, the four stood with drawn weapons, barring my further progress. You are not here by the order of Thancosis, cried one of those that first addressed me. And not only shall you not enter this apartment with the Princess of Helium, you shall go back to Thancosis under guard to explain this unwarranted demetry. Throw down your sword, cannot hope to overcome four of us, he added with a grim smile. My reply was a quick thrust which left me with three antagonists, and I can assure you that they were worthy of my mantle. They had me backed against the wall in no time, fighting for my life. Slowly, I worked my way to the corner of the room where I could force them to come at me one at a time, and thus we fought upward of twenty minutes, the clanging of steel producing a veritable bedlam in the little room. The noise had brought Dejithoros to the door of her apartment, and there she stood throughout the conflict with Sola at her back peering over her shoulder. Her face was set and emotionless, and I knew that she did not recognize me, nor did Sola. 
Finally, a lucky cut brought down the second guardsman, and then, with only two opposing me, I changed my tactics and rushed them down after a fashion of my fighting that had won me many a victory. The third fell within ten seconds of the second, and the last lay dead upon the bloody floor a few moments later. They were brave men and normal fighters, and it grieved me that I had been forced to kill them. But I would have willingly depopulated all of Barsoom could I have reached the side of my Dejah Thoris in no other way. Sheathing my bloody blade, I advanced towards the Martian princess, who still stood mutely gazing at me without a sign of recognition. Who are you, Zodagon? she whispered. Another enemy to harass me in my misery? I am a friend, I answered. Why once cherished friend? No friend of Helium's princess wears that mantle, she replied, and yet the voice... I've heard it before. It is not. No, it cannot be. No, for he is dead. It is though, my princess, none other than John Carter, I said. Do you not recognize, even through the paint and strange metal, the heart of your chieftain? As I came close to her, she swayed towards me with an outstretched hands. But as I reached to take her in my arms, she drew back with a shudder and a little moan of misery. Too late. Too late, she grieved. Oh, my chieftain that was, and whom I thought dead, had you but returned one little hour before. But now, it is too late. Too late. What do you mean, Dejah Thoris, I cried, that you would not have promised yourself to the Zadagon Prince had you known that I lived? Think you, John Carter, that I would give my heart to you yesterday and today another. I thought that it lay buried in the ashes and the pits of Warhoon, and so today I promise my body to another to save my people from the curse of a victorious Zendagon army. But I am not dead, my princess. I have come to claim you, and all Zendagon cannot prevent it. It is too late, John Carter. My promise is given, and on Barsoom, that is final. The ceremonies which follow later are but meaningless formalities. They make the fact of marriage no more certain than does the funeral cortege of the Jaddak again place the seal of death upon him. I'm as good as married, John Carter. No longer may you call me your princess. No longer may you my chieftain. I know but little of your customs here in Barsoom, Dejah Thoris, but I do know that I love you. And if you meant that last words you spoke to me that day in the halls of Wahoom were charging down upon us, no other man shall ever claim you as his bride. You meant them then, my princess, and you mean them still. See that it is true. I meant them, John Carter, she whispered. I cannot repeat them now, for I have given myself to another. Ah, if you had only known our ways, my friend, she continued, half to herself, the promise would have been yours long months ago, and you could have claimed me before all others. It might have meant the fall of helium, but I could have given my empire for my Tharkian chief. Then aloud she said, Do you remember the night when you offended me? You called me your princess without having asked my hand of me, and then you boasted that you had fought for me. You did not know, and I should not have been offended. I see that now. But there was no one to tell you that I could not, that upon Barsoom there are two kinds of women in the cities of the Red Men. The one they fight for, that they must ask them in marriage. The other kind they fight for also, but never ask their hand. When a man has won a woman, he may address her as his princess, or in any of several terms which signify possession. You had fought for me, but had never asked me in marriage. And so, when you called me your princess, you see, she faltered, I was hurt. 
But even then, John Carter, I did not repulse you, as I should have done, until you made it doubly worse by taunting me with having won me through combat. I do not need to ask for your forgiveness now, Dejathoris, I cried. You must know that my fault was of ignorance of Bosumian customs. What I failed to do through impact of relief for my petition would be presumptuous and unwelcome. I do now, Dejathoris. I ask you to be my wife, and by all Virginian fighting blood that flows in my veins, you shall be. No, John Carter, it is useless, she cried, hopelessly. It may never be yours while Seb Than lives. You have sealed his death warrant, my princess. Zab Than dies. Nor that either, she hastened to explain. I may not wed the man who slays my husband, even in self-defense. It is a custom. We are ruled by custom upon Barsoom. It is useless, my friend. You must bear the sorrow with me, that at least we may share in common, that and the memory of the brief days amongst the Tharks. You must go now, nor ever see me again. Goodbye, my chieftain, that was. Disheartened and dejected, I withdrew from the room, but I was not entirely discouraged, nor would I admit that Dejathoris was lost to me until the ceremony had actually been performed. As I wandered along the corridors, I was absolutely lost in the maze of winding passageways as I'd been before I discovered Dejathoris' apartment. I knew that my only hope lay in the escape from the city of Zadanga, for the matter of four days guardsmen would have to be explained. And, as I could never reach my original post without guide, suspicion would surely rest on me so soon as I discovered wandering me aimlessly through the palace. Presently, I came upon a spiral runway leading to the lower floor, and this I followed downwards for several stories, until I reached the doorway of a large apartment in which were a number of guardsmen. The walls of this room were hung with transparent tapestries, behind which I secreted myself without being apprehended. The conversation of the guardsmen was general, and awakened no interest in me until an officer entered the room and ordered four of the men to relieve the detail who were guarding the Princess of Helium. Now, I knew my troubles would commence in earnest, and indeed they were upon me all too soon, for it seemed that the squad had scarcely left the guards' room before the one of the number burst in again breathlessly, crying that they had found their four comrades butchered in the antechamber. In the moment, the entire palace was alive with people. Guardsmen, officers, courtiers, servants, and slaves ran helter-skelter through the corridors and apartments, carrying messages and orders and searching for signs of the assassin. This was my opportunity, and slim as it appeared, I grasped it. For as a number of soldiers came hurrying past my hiding place, I fell in behind them and followed through the maze of the palace until, in the passing through the great hall, I saw the blessed light of day coming through the series of larger windows. Here, I left my guides and, slipping into the nearest window, sought for an avenue of escape. The windows opened upon a great balcony which overlooked one of the broad avenues of Zdanga. The ground was about thirty feet below, and at a like distance from the building was a wall twenty feet high, constructed of polished glass about a foot in thickness. To a red Martian, escape by this path would have appeared impossible, but to me, with my earthly strength and agility, it seemed already accomplished. My only fear was in being detected before darkness fell, for I could not make the leap in broad daylight while the court below and the avenue beyond was crowded with Zodagans. Accordingly, I searched for a hiding place, and finally found one by accident, inside a huge hanging ornament which swung from the ceiling of the hall. 
and about ten feet from the floor. Into the capacious, bowl-like vase I sprang with ease, and scarcely had I settled down within it that I heard a number of people enter the apartment. The group stopped beneath my hiding place, and I could plainly overhear their every word. It's the work of the Heniumites, said one of the men. Yes, Sojadak, but how do you have access to the palace? I could believe that even with the diligent care of your guardsmen, a single enemy might reach the inner chambers. But how a force of six or eight fighting men could have done so unobserved is beyond me. We shall soon know, however, for here comes the royal psychologist. Another man now joined the group, and after making his formal greetings to his ruler, said, Oh mighty Jenik, it is a strange tale I read in the dead minds of your faithful guardsmen. It was felt not by a number of fighting men, but a single opponent. He paused and let the full weight of his announcement address of the hearers. And that his statement was scarcely credited was evident by the impatient exclamation of incredulity which escaped the lips of Than Kosis. What manner of weird tale are you bringing me, Noten? he cried. It is the truth, my Jedek, replied the psychologist. In fact, the impressions were strongly marked on the brain of each of the four guardsmen. Their antagonist is a very tall man wearing a medal of one of your own guardsmen. And his fighting ability was little short of marvellous, for he fought fair against an entire four and vanquished them by his surpassing skill and superhuman strength and endurance. Though he wore the medal of Zodanga, my Jedek, such a man was never seen before in this or any other country upon Basum. The mind of the Princess of Helium, whom I have examined and questioned, was a blank to me. She has perfect control, and I could not read an iota of it. She said that she witnessed a portion of the encounter, and that when she looked there was but one man engaged with the guardsman, a man whom she did not recognize as ever having seen. Where is my erstwhile savior? spoke another of the party, and I recognized the voice of the cousin of Thankosis, whom I had rescued from the Green Warriors. By the medal of our first ancestor, he went on, but the description fits him to perfection, especially as the fighting ability. Where is this man? cried Thankosis. Heaven brought him at once. What know of him, cousin? It seems strange to me now that I think upon it, that there should have been such a fighting man in Zodanga, of whose name, even, we are ignorant before today. And his name too, John Carter. Who ever heard of such a name in Barsoom? Word was soon brought that I was nowhere to be found, either in this palace or at my former quarters in the barracks of the Air Scout Squadron. Cantus can, they had found and questioned, but he knew nothing of my whereabouts. And as to my past, he told them that he knew as little, since he had just recently met me during our captivity amongst the war hoons. Keep your eyes on this other one, commanded Thanacosis. He is also a stranger and likely as not, they both hail from Helium, and where one is shall sooner or later find the other. Quadruple the air patrol and let every man who leaves the city by air or ground be subjected to closest scrutiny. Another messenger now entered with a word that I was still within the palace walls. The likeness of every person who has entered and left the palace grounds today has been carefully examined, concluded the fellow, and not one approaches the likeness of this new padoir of the guards, other than which was recorded of him the time he entered. Then we shall have him shortly, commented Tancosis contently, and in the meanwhile, we'll repair the apartments of the Princess of Helium and question her in regard to the affair. She may know more than she's cared to divulge to you, Noten. Come on! They left the hall, 
and as darkness had fallen without, I slipped lightly from my hiding place and hastened to the balcony. Few were in sight, and choosing a moment when none seemed near, I sprang quickly to the top of the glass wall, and from there to the avenue beyond the palace grounds. End of chapter. Chapter 23. Lost in the Sky. Without effort of concealment, I hastened to the vicinity of our quarters, where I felt sure that I'd find Cantus Can. As I neared the building, I became more careful, as I judged, and rightly, the place would be guarded. Several men in civilian metal loitered near the front entrance, and in the rear were others. My only means of reaching unseen the upper story, where our apartments were situated, was through an adjoining building, and after considerable maneuvering, I managed to attain the roof of a shop several doors away. Leaping from roof to roof, I soon reached an open window in a building where I hoped to find the Halimite, and in another moment I stood in the room before him. He was alone and showed no surprise at my coming, saying that he expected me much earlier, as my tour of duty must have ended some time since. I saw that he knew nothing of the events of the day at the palace, and when I'd enlightened him he was still all excitement. The news that Denja Thoros had promised her hand to Sabthan filled him with dismay. It cannot be, he exclaimed. It is impossible. No man in all of Helium would prefer death to selling of their loved princess to the ruling house of Zadanga. She must have lost her mind to have assented to such an atrocious bargain. You, who do not know how we Helium love the members of our ruling house, cannot appreciate the horror with which I contemplate such an unholy alliance. What can be done, John Carter? he continued. You are a resourceful man. Can you not think of a way to save Helium from this disgrace? If I come down within a soul's reach of Sabthan, I answered, I cannot solve the difficulty in so far as Helium is concerned. But for personal reasons, I prefer that another struck the blow to free Dejithorus. Candace Can eyed narrowly before he spoke. You love her, he said. Does she know it? She knows it, Candace can, and repulses me only because she is promised to Sabthan. The splendid fellow sprang to his feet and grasped me by the shoulder and raised his sword in high, exclaiming, And had the choice had been left to me, I could not have chosen a more fitting mate for the first princess of Assum. Here, in my hand upon your shoulder, John Carter, and my word that Sabthan shall go out to the point of my sword for the shake of the love of Helium for Dejithorus. And for you, this very night I shall try and reach his quarters in the palace. How? I asked. You are strongly guarded and quadruple force patrol the sky. He bent his head in thought for a moment, then raised it within an air of confidence. I only need to pass the guards, and I can do that, he said at last. I know a secret entrance to the palace through the pinnacle of the highest tower. I fell upon it by chance one of the days I was passing above the palace on patrol duty. In this work, it is required that we investigate any unusual occurrence we may witness. And the face peering from the pinnacle of the high tower of the palace was, to me, most unusual. I therefore drew near as discovered the processor of the peering face was none other than Sabthan. He was slightly put out at being detected, and commanded me to keep my matter to myself, explaining that the passage for the lower led directly to his apartment, and was known only to him. If I can reach the roof of the barracks and get my machine, I can then sab quarters in five minutes. But how am I supposed to escape this building, guarded as you say it is? 
How well are the machine sheds at the barracks guarded? I asked. There is usually but one man on duty there at night upon the roof. Go to the roof of this building, Cantus can, then wait for me. Without stopping to explain my plans, I retracted my way to the street and hastened to the barracks. I did not dare enter the building, full as it was with members of the Air Scout Squadron, who, in common with all the Danga, were on the lookout for me. The building was an enormous one, rearing its lofty head fully a thousand feet into the air. But a few buildings in Zodanga were higher than these barracks, though several topped it by a few hundred feet. The docks of the great battleships of the line standing some 1,500 feet from the ground, while the freight and passenger stations of the merchant squadrons rose nearly as high. It was a long climb up the face of the building, and one fraught with much danger. But there was no other way, and so I essayed the task. The fact that Barsoonium architecture is extremely ornate made the feat much simpler than I had anticipated, since I found ornamental ledges and projections which barely formed the perfect ladder for me all the way up to the eaves of the building. Here, I met my first real obstacle. The eaves projected nearly twenty feet from the wall to which I clung, and though I encircled the great building, I could find no opening through them. The top floor was alight and filled with soldiers engaged with pastimes of their kind. I could not, therefore, reach the roof through the building. There was one slight, desperate chance, and that I decided to take. It was for Dejathoris, and no man has lived who would not risk a thousand deaths for such as he. Clinging to the wall with my feet and one hand, I unloosened one of the long leather straps of my trappings at the end of which dangled a hook by which air sailors are hung to the sides of the bottoms of their craft for various purposes of repair and by the means of which the landing parties are lowered to the ground from the battleship. I swung the hook cautiously to the roof several times before it finally found lodgment. Gently, I pulled on it and strengthened its hold, but whether it would bear the weight of my body, I did not know. It might be barely caught upon the very outer edge of the roof, so that as my body swung out at the end of the strap, it would slip off and launch me into the pavement a thousand feet below. An instant, I hesitated, and then I released my grip upon the supporting ornament. I swung out into space at the end of the strap. Far below me lay the brilliantly lighted streets, the hard pavement, and death. There was a little jerk at the top of the supporting eaves, and a nasty slipping grating sound which turned me cold with apprehension. Then the hook caught, and I was safe. Clambering quickly aloft, I grasped the edge of the eaves and drew myself to the surface of the roof above. As I gained my feet, I was confronted by a sentry on duty, into the muzzle of whose revolver I found myself looking. Who are you and whence you came? he cried. I am an air scout friend and very near dead one, for just by the merest chance I escaped falling to the avenue below, I replied. How come you're upon the roof, man? No one has landed or come up from the building from the past hour. Quickly, explain yourself, or I'll call the guard. Look you here, Citri, and you shall see how I came and how close a shave I had not coming at all. I answered, turning towards the edge of the roof, where, twenty feet below, my end of my strap hung with all my weapons. The fellow, acting on impulse of curiosity, stepped to my side, and in his undoing, for he leaned and peered over the eaves. I grasped him by the throat and his pistol arm and threw him heavily to the roof. The weapon dropped from his grasp and my fingers choked off his attempted cry for assistance. 
I gagged and bound him and then hung him over the edge of the roof as I myself hung a few moments before. I knew it would be morning before he would be discovered, and I needed all the time that I could get. Donning my trappings and weapons, I hastened to the sheds and soon had out both my machine and Cantus cans. Making his fast behind mine as I started my engine and skimming over the edge of the roof, I dove down into the streets of the city far below the plane usually occupied by the patrol. In less than a minute, I was settling safely upon the roof of our apartment beside the astonished Cantus can. I lost no time in explanation, but plunged immediately into discussion of our plans for the immediate future. It was decided that I would try and make helium while Cantus can was to enter the palace and dispatch that then. If successful, he was then to follow me. He set my compass for me, a clever little device which will remain steadfastly fixed upon any given point on the surface of Barsoom, and bidding each other farewell, we rose together and sped in the direction of the palace, which lay in route which I must take to reach Helium. As we neared the high tower, a patrol shot down from above, throwing its piercing searchlight full upon my craft, and a voice roared out a command to halt, following with a shot as I paid no attention to its hail. Cantus can drop quickly into the darkness, while I rose steadily at a terrific speed and raced through the Martian sky, followed by a dozen air scout craft, which had joined in the pursuit, and later by the swift cruiser carrying a hundred men and a battery of rapid-fire guns. By twisting and turning my little machine, now rising and now falling, I managed to elude their searchlights most of the time. But I was also losing ground by these tactics, so I decided to hazard everything in a straight-way course and leave the result to fate and the speed of my machine. Cantus Can had shown me a trick of gearing which is known only to the Navy of Helium that greatly increased the speed of our machines, so that I felt sure that I could distance my pursuers if I could dodge their projectiles for a few moments. As I sped through the air, the screeching of bullets around me convinced me that not only by a miracle could I escape, but the die was cast and throwing a full speed, I raced a straight course towards Helium. Gradually, I left my pursuers further and further behind, and I was just congratulating myself on my lucky escape, when a well-directed shot from the cruiser exploded at the prow of my little craft. The concussion nearly capsized me, and with a sickening plunge, she hurtled downward through the dark night. How far I fell before I regained control of the plane, I do not know but I must have been very close to the ground when I started to rise again, as I plainly heard the squealing of animals below me. Rising again, I scanned the heavens for my pursuers, and finally, making out their lights far beyond me, saw that they were landing, evidently in search of me. Not until their lights were no longer discernible did I venture to flash my little lamp upon the compass, and then found myself a consternation that a fragment of the projectile had utterly destroyed my only guide as well as my speedometer. It was true that I could follow the stars in the general direction of Helium, but without knowing the exact location of the city or the speed at which I was traveling, my chances for finding it were slimmer. Helium lies a thousand miles southwest of Zadanga, and with my compass intact, I should have made the trip, barring accidents, in between four and five hours. As it turned out, however, Morning found me speeding over a vast expanse of Dead Sea Bottom after nearly six hours of continuous flight at high speed. Presently, a great city showed below me, but it was not Helium, as that alone of all Basumian metropolises consisted in two immense encircled walled cities of 75 miles apart, 
and would have been easily distinguishable from the altitude that I was flying. Believing that I had come too far north and west, I turned back in a southeasterly direction, passing during the forenoon several other large cities, but none resembling the description that Cantuscan had given me of helium. In addition, the two twin city formation of helium, another distinguishing feature is the two immense towers, one of vivid scarlet rising nearly a mile into the air from the center of one of the cities, while the other of bright yellow of the same height marks the sister. End of chapter. Chapter 24. Tarstarkus finds a friend. About noon, I passed low over the great dead city of ancient Mars. And as I skimmed out across the plain beyond, I came full upon several thousand green warriors engaging in a terrific battle. Scarcely had I seen them than a volley of shots was directed at me, and with the almost unfading accuracy of their aim, my little craft was instantly a ruined wreck, sinking erratically to the ground. I fell almost directly in the center of a fierce combat. Among warriors who had not seen my approach so busily were they engaged in the life and death struggles. The men were fighting on foot with long swords, while an occasional shot from the sharpshooter on the outskirts of the conflict would bring down a warrior who might, for an instant, separate himself from the entangled mess. As my machine sunk amongst them, I realized that it was fight or die, with good chances of dying in any event. And so I struck the ground with a drawn longsword, ready to defend myself as I could. I fell beside a huge monster who was engaged with three antagonists, and as I glanced at his fierce face, filled with the light of battle, I recognized Tharstarkus the Thark. He did not see me, and I was a trifle behind him, and just then the three warriors opposing him, and whom I recognized of Warhoons, charged simultaneously. The mighty fellow made quick work of one of them, but in stepping back for another thrust, he fell over a dead body behind him, and was down at the mercy of the foes in an instant. Quick as lightning, they were upon him, and Tars Tarkas would have been gathered to his fathers in short order, had I not sprung before his prostrate form and engaged his adversaries. I had accounted for one of them when the mighty Thark regained his feet and quickly settled the other. He gave me one look, and a slight smile touched his grim lip as, touching my shoulder, he said, I would scarcely recognize you, John Carter, but there is no other mortal upon Barsoom who would have done what you have for me. I think I have learned that there is such a thing as friendship, my friend. I said no more. Nor was there any opportunity, for the warhoons were closing in about us, and together we fought, shoulder to shoulder, during all that long, hot afternoon, until the tide of battle turned and the remnant of the fierce warhoon horde fell back upon their throats and fled into the gathering darkness. Ten thousand men had been engaged in a titanic battle, and upon the field of battle lay three thousand dead. Neither side asked or gave quarter nor did they attempt to take prisoners. On our return to the city after the battle, we had gone directly to Tars Tarkas's quarters, where I was left alone while the chieftain attended to the customary council, which immediately follows the engagement. As I sat awaiting the return of the green warrior, I heard something move in the adjoining apartment, and as I glanced up, there rushed in suddenly upon me a huge and hideous creature, which bore me backwards upon a pile of silks and furs upon which I had been reclining, 
It was Wula, my faithful, loving Wula. He had found his way back to Thok and, as Tharstarkus later told me, had gone immediately to my former quarters. We had taken up his pathetic and seemingly hopeless watch for my return. Tolhar just knows that you are here, John Carter, said Tharstarkus on his return from the Jeddak's quarters. Sokoja saw and recognized you as we were returning. Talhajus has ordered me to bring you before him tonight. I have ten thoughts, John Carter. You may have your choice from amongst them, and I will accompany you to the nearest waterway that leads to Helium. Tars Tarkas may be a cruel green warrior, but he can be a friend as well. Come, we must start. And when you return, Tars Tarkas, I asked. The wild calots, possibly, or worse, he replied. Unless I should chance to have the opportunity, I have so waited for battling with Tolhajus. We will stay, Tarstarkus, and see Tolhajus tonight. You shall not sacrifice yourself, and it may be that tonight you can have the chance that you wait. He objected strenuously, saying that Tolhajus often flew into wild fits of passion at the mere thought of a blow that I had dealt him, and that if he ever laid his hands upon me, I would be subjected to the most horrible tortures. While we were eating, I repeated to Tars Tarkas the story which Sola had told me that night upon the sea bottom during the march to Thark. He said but little, but the great muscles on his face worked in passion and in agony at the recollection of the horrors which had been heaped upon the only thing that he'd ever loved in all his cold, cruel, terrible existence. He no longer demurred when I suggested that we go before Talhajus only saying that he would like to speak to Sokoja first. At his request, I accompanied him to her quarters, and the look of venomous hatred she cast upon me was almost adequate recompose for any future misfortunes this accidental return to Thok might bring me. Sokoja, said Tharstarkus, 40 years ago you were instrumental in bringing about the torture and death of a woman named Gozava. I have just discovered that the warrior who loved that woman has learned of your part in the transaction. He may not kill you, Sokoja. It is not our custom, but there is nothing to prevent him from tying one end of a strap about your neck and the other end to wild thoat, merely to test your fitness to survive and help perpetuate our race. Having heard that he would do this on the morrow, I thought it only right to warn you, for I am just a man. The river is, is but a short pilgrimage, Sokoja. Come, John Carter. The next morning, Sokoja was gone, nor was she ever seen after. In silence, we hastened to the Jeddak's palace, where we immediately admitted to his presence. In fact, he could scarcely wait to see me and was standing erect upon his platform, glowering at the entrance as I came in. Strap him to a pillar, he shrieked. We shall see who it is who dares strike the mighty Talhajus. Heat the irons in my own hands. I shall burn the eyes from his head, that he may not pollute my person with his vile gaze. Chieftains of Thok, I cried, turning to the assembled council and ignoring Talhajus. I have been a chief amongst you, and today I have fought for Thok, shoulder to shoulder with her greatest warrior. You owe me, at least, a hearing. I have won that much today. You claim to be a just people. Silence, roared Talhajus. Gag the creature and bind him as I command. Justice, Talhajus, exclaimed Locus Patamo. Who are you to set aside the customs of ages amongst the Tharks? 
Yes, justice, echoed a dozen voices. And so, while Tal Hajus fumed and frothed, I continued. You are a brave people, and you love bravery. But where was your mighty Jeddak during the fighting today? I did not see him in the thick of battle. He was not there. He rends defenseless women and little children in his lair. But how recently has one of you seen him fight with men? Why, even I, a midget beside him, fouled him with a single blow of my fist. Is there such that the Tharks fashioned their Jeddaks? There stands beside me now a great Thark, a mighty warrior, and a noble man. Chieftain, how sounds Tars Tarkas Jeddak of Thark? A raw, deep-toned applause greeted the suggestion. It but remains for the council to command, and Tal Hargis must prove his fitness to rule. Were he a brave man, he would invite Tars Tarkas to combat, for he does not love him. But Tal Hargis is afraid. Tal Hargis, your Jeddak, is a coward. With my bare hands, I could kill him, and he knows it. After I ceased, there was a tense silence as all eyes were riveted upon Tal Hargis. He did not speak or move, but the blotchy green of his countenance turned livid, and the froth froze upon his lips. Tal Hargis, said Locus Potomal in a cold, hard voice, never in my long life have I seen a Jeddak of the Thark so humiliated. There could be but none answer to this arrangement. We waited, and still Talhaja stood as though petrified. Chieftains, continued Locus Patobel, shall the Jeddak Talhajas prove his fitness to rule over Tars Tarkas? There were twenty chieftains about the rostrum, and twenty swords flashed high, it is said. There was no alternative. That decree was final, and so Talhajus drew his long sword and advanced to meet Tarstarkus. The combat was soon over, and with his foot upon the neck of the dead monster, Tarstarkus became the Jeddak amongst the Tharks. His first act was to make me a full-fledged chieftain with the rank that I had won by my combats for the first few weeks of my captivity amongst them. Seeing the favorable disposition of the warriors towards Tarstarkus, as well as towards me, I grasped the opportunity to enlist them in my calls against Zadanga. I told Tars Tarkas the story of my adventures, and in a few words had explained to him the thought that I had in mind. John Carter has made a proposal, he said, addressing the council, which meets my sanction. I shall put it to you briefly. Dejathoris, the princess of Helium, who was our prisoner, is now held by the Jeddak of Zadanga whose son must be wed to save a country from devastation at the hands of the Zadangan forces. John Garter suggests that we rescue her and return her to Helium. The loot of Zodanga would be magnificent, and I have often thought that had we an alliance with the people of Helium, we could obtain sufficient assurance of sustenance to permit us to increase the size and frequency of our hatchings and thus become unquestionably supreme amongst the green men of all Barsoom. What say you? It was a chance to fight, an opportunity to loot, and they rose to the bait as a speckled trot to a fly. For the Tharks, they were wildly enthusiastic, 
and before another half hour had passed, twenty mounted messengers were speeding across the Dead Sea bottoms to call the hordes together for the expedition. In three days, we were on march towards Adanga, one hundred thousand strong, as Tarstarkas had been able to enlist the services of three smaller hordes on the promise of the great loot of Zadanga. At the head of the column, I rode beside the great Thark, while at the heels of my mount trotted my beloved Wula. We traveled entirely by night, timing our marches so that we camped during the day at deserted cities where, even to the beasts, we were all kept indoors during the daylight hours. On that march, Tarstarkus, through his remarkable ability and statesmanship, enlisted 50,000 more warriors from various hordes, so that, ten days after we set out, we halted at midnight outside the great walled city of Zodanga, 150,000 strong. The fighting strength and efficiency of the horde of ferocious green monsters was equivalent to ten times the number of red men. Never in the history of Barsoom, Tharstarkus told me, had such a force of green warriors marched to battle together. It was a monstrous task to keep even a semblance of harmony amongst them, and it was even a marvel to me that he got them to the city without a mighty battle amongst themselves. But as we neared Zodanka, their personal quarrels were submerged by their greater hatred for the Red Men, and especially the Zodagans, who had for years waged a ruthless campaign of extermination against the Green Men, directing special attention towards despoiling their incubators. Now that we were before Zodanka, the task of obtaining entry to the city devolved upon me, and directing Tarstarkus to hold his forces in two divisions out of earshot of the city, with each division opposite the large gateway. I took twenty dismounted warriors and approached one small gate that pierced the walls at short intervals. These gates have no regular guard, but are covered by sentries who patrol the avenue that encircles the city just within the walls as our metropolitan police patrol their beats. The walls of Zadanga are 75 feet in height and 50 feet thick. They are built of enormous blocks of carborundum, and the task of entering the city seemed, to my escorts of green warriors, an impossibility. The fellows who had been detailed to accompany me were one of the smaller hordes, and therefore did not know me. Placing three of them with their faces to the wall and arms locked, I commanded two more to mount their shoulders, and a sixth I ordered to climb upon the shoulders of the upper two. The head of the topmost warrior towered forty feet from the ground. In this way, with ten warriors, I built a series of steps from the ground to the shoulders of the topmost man. Then, starting from a short distance behind them, I ran swiftly up from one tier to the next, and with the final bound from the brood shoulders of the highest, I clutched the top of the great wall and quietly drew myself to its broad expanse. After me, I dragged six lengths of leather from an equal number of my warriors. These lengths we had previously fastened together, and passing one to the end of the topmost warrior, I lowered it to the other end cautiously over the opposite side of the wall towards the avenue below. No one was in sight, so lowering myself to the end of my leather strap, I dropped the remaining thirty feet to the pavement below. I had learned from Cantus Cat the secret of opening these gates, and in another moment my twenty great fighting men stood within the doomed city of Zadanga. I found, to my delight, that I had entered the lower boundary of the enormous palace grounds. The building itself showed in the distance a blaze of glorious light, 
and on the instant I determined to lead the detachment of warriors directly within the palace itself, while the balance of the great horde was attacking the barracks of soldiery. Dispatching one of my men to Tars Tarkas for detail of fifty Tharks, with word of my intentions, I ordered ten warriors to capture and open one of the great gates, while with nine remaining I took the other. We were to do our work quietly. No shots were to be fired and no general advance made until I had reached the palace with my fifty Tharks. Our plans worked to perfection. The two sentries we met were dispatched to their fathers upon the banks of the Lost Sea of Chorus, and the guards on both gates followed them in silence. End of chapter. Chapter 25. The Looting of Zadanga. As the great gate where I stood swung open with my fifty thoughts, headed by Tars Tarkas himself, rode upon their mighty thoughts, I led them to the palace walls, which I negotiated easily without assistance. Once inside, however, the gate gave me considerable trouble, but I finally was rewarded by seeing it swing open on its huge hinges, and soon my fierce escorts were riding across the gardens of the Jeddak of Zadanga. As we approached the palace, I could see through the great windows of the first floor into the brilliantly illuminated audience chamber of Than Kosis. The immense hall was crowded with nobles and their women, as though some important function was in progress. There was not a guard in sight without the palace, due, I presume, to the fact that the city and the palace walls were considered impregnable. And so I came close and peered within. At one end of the chamber, upon a mass of golden thrones encrusted with diamonds, sat Dan Kosas and his consort, surrounded by officers and dignitaries of state. Before them stretched out a broad aisle lined on either side with soldiery, and as I looked, there entered the aisle at the far end of the hall, the head of the procession which advanced to the foot of the throne. First, there marched four officers of the Jeddak Scarred, bearing a huge salver, one which reposed upon a cushion of scarlet silk, a great golden chain with a collar and padlock at each end. Directly behind these officers came four others carrying a similar salver, which supported the magnificent ornaments of the prince and princess of their reigning house of Zodanga. At the foot of the throne, these two parties separated and halted, facing each other at opposite sides of the aisle. Then came more dignitaries, and the officers of the palace and the army, and finally two figures entirely muffled in scarlet silk, so that not a feature of either was discernible. These two stopped at the foot of the throne, facing Dan Kosas. When the balance of the procession had entered and assumed their stations, Dan Kosas addressed the couple standing before him. I could not hear his words, but presently two officers advanced and removed the scarlet robe from one of the figures and I saw that Cantus Khan had failed in his mission, for it was Sab Than, Prince of Zadanga, who stood revealed before me. Dangosus now took a set of ornaments from one of the salvers and placed one of the collars of gold about his son's neck, springing the padlock fast. After a few more words addressed to Sab Than, he turned to the other figure, from which the officers now removed the enshrouding silks, disclosing to my now comprehending view Dejathoris, Princess of Enium. The object of the ceremony was clear to me. In another moment, Dejathoris would be joined forever to the Princess Adanga. It was an impressive and beautiful ceremony, I presume, but to me it seemed the most fiendish sight that I had ever witnessed, 
and as the ornaments were adjusted upon her beautiful figure, and her collar of skulls swung upon her hands of Thancosis, I raised my longsword above my head, and with a heavy hilt, I shattered the glass of the great window and sprang into the midst of the astonished assemblage. With a bound, I was at the steps of the platform beside Thancosis, and as he stood riveted with surprise, I brought my longsword down upon the golden chain that would have bound Dejathoris to another. In an instant, all was confusion. A thousand drawn swords menaced me from every quarter, and Sabthan sprang upon me with a jeweled dagger that he had drawn from his nuptial ornaments. I could have killed him easily as I might fly, but the old age custom of Arsum stayed my hand, and grasping his wrist as the dagger flew towards my heart, I held him as though in a vice with my long sword pointed at the far end of the hall. Zodanga has fallen, I cried. Look! All eyes turned in the direction that I had indicated, and there, forging through the portals of the entranceway, Rotar's Tarkas had his fifty warriors on their great thoughts. A cry of alarm and amazement broke from the assemblage, but no word of fear, and in a moment the soldiers and nobles of Zodanga were hurling themselves upon the advancing Tharks. Thrusting Sabthan headlong into the platform, I drew Dejathoris to my side. Behind the throat was a narrow doorway, and in this Thancosis now stood facing me, with a drawn long sword. In an instant we were engaged, and I found no mean antagonist. As we circled upon the broad platform, I saw Sabthan rushing up the steps to aid his father, but as he raised his hand to strike, Dejathoris sprang before him, and then my sword found the spot that made Sabthan Jeddak of Zadanga. As his father rolled dead upon the floor, the new Jeddak tore himself free from Dejathoris' grasp, and again we faced each other. He was soon joined by a courthead of officers, and, with my back against the Golden Throne, I fought once again for Dejathoris. I was hard-pressed to defend myself, and yet not a strike down Sabthan, and, with him, my last chance to win the woman I loved. My blade was swinging with the rapidity of lightning as I sought to parry the thrusts and cuts of my opponents. Two I disarmed, and one was down, when several more rushed to the aid of their now new ruler, and to avenge the death of the old. As they advanced, there were cries of, The woman! The woman! Strike her down! It's her blood! Kill her! Kill her! Calling to Dejathoris to get behind me, I worked my way towards the little doorway at the back of the throne. But the officers, realizing my intention, and three of them sprang in behind me and blocked my chances of gaining a position where I could have defended Dejathoris against an army of swordsmen. The Tharks were having their hands full at the center of the room, and I began to realize that nothing short of a miracle could save Dejathoris and myself. When I saw Tars Tarkas surging through the crowd of pygmies that swarmed about him, with one swing of his mighty longsword he laid a dozen corpses at his feet, and so he hewed a path before him until another moment he stood upon the platform beside me, dealing death and destruction right and left. The bravery of the Zodagans was awe-inspiring. Not one attempted to escape. And when the fighting ceased, it was because only Tharks remained alive in the Great Hall, other than Dejathoris and myself. Sabthan lay dead beside his father, and the corpses of the flower of Zadagan nobility and chivalry covered the floor and bloody shambles. The first thought when the battle was over was for Cantus Can, and leaving Dejathoris, 
In charge of Tars Tarkas, I took a dozen warriors and hastened to the dungeons beneath the palace. The jaders had all left to join the fighters in the throne room, so we searched the labyrinthian prison without opposition. I called Candace Khan's name aloud in each new corridor and compartment, and finally, I was rewarded by hearing a faint response. Guided by a sound, we soon found him helpless in a dark recess. He was overjoyed at seeing me, and to know the meaning of the fight, faint echoes of which had reached his prison cell. He told me that the air patrol had captured him before he reached the high tower of the palace, so that he had not even seen Sabthan. We discovered that it would be futile to attempt to cut away the bars and chains which held him prisoner. So, at his suggestion, I returned to search the bodies on the floor above for keys to open the padlocks of the cells and of his chains. Fortunately, among the first I examined, I found the jailer, and soon we had Cantus scanned with us in the throne room. The sounds of the heavy firing, mingled with shouts and cries, came to us from the city streets, and Tars Tarkas hastened away to direct the fighting without. Cantus Khan accompanied him to act as his guide, the green warriors commencing a thorough search of the palace for the Zodangans and for loot, and Deja Thoris and I were left alone. She had sunk into one of the golden thrones, and as I turned to her, she greeted me with a wan smile. Was there ever such a man, she exclaimed. I know that Barsoom has never before seen your like. Can it be that all of Earth men are as you? Alone, a stranger, hunted, threatened, persecuted. You've done in a few short months what in all the past ages of Barsoom no man has ever done. Joined together the wild hordes of the sea bottoms and brought them to fight as allies of the Red Martian people. The answer is easy, Deja Thoris, I reply, smiling. It was not I who did it. It was love, love for Deja Thoris, a power that will work greater miracles than this you have seen. A pretty flush overspread her face and she answered, You may say that now, John Carter, and I may listen, for I am free. And more still I have to say, ere it is again too late, I returned. I have done many strange things in my life, many things that wiser men would not have dared. But never in my wildest fancies have I dreamed of winning a Dejathoris for myself. For never had I dreamed that in all the universe dwelt such a woman as the Princess of Helium. That you are a princess does not abash me. But that you are you is enough to make me doubt my sanity as I ask you my princess, to be mine. He does not need to be abashed who so well knew the answer to his plea before the plea were made, she replied, rising and placing her dear hands upon my shoulders. And so I took her in my arms and kissed her. And thus, in the midst of the city of wild conflict, filled with alarms of war, with death and destruction reaping their terrible harvest around her, to Deja Thoris, Princess of Hedium, true daughter of Mars, the god of war, promised herself in marriage to John Carter, gentleman of Virginia. End of chapter. Chapter 26. Through Carnage to Joy. Sometime later, Tars Tarkas and Candace Khan returned to report that Zatanga had been completely reduced. Her forces were entirely destroyed or captured, and no further resistance was to be expected from within. Several battleships had escaped, but there were thousands of war and merchant vessels under guard of Thark warriors. 
The lesser hordes had commenced looting and quarreling amongst themselves, so it was decided that we would collect the warriors we could, man as many vessels as possible with the Dagon prisoners, and make for Hedium without further loss of time. Five hours later, we sailed from the roof of the dock buildings with a fleet of 250 battleships, carrying nearly 100,000 green warriors, followed by a fleet of transports and other thoats. Behind us, we left the stricken city in a fierce and brutal clutches of some 40,000 green warriors and lesser hordes. They were looting, murdering, and fighting amongst themselves. In a hundred places, they had applied the torch, and columns of dense smoke were rising above the city as though a blot out the eye of heaven and the horrid sights beneath. In the middle of the afternoon, we sighted the scarlet and yellow towers of Hedium, and a short time later, the great fleeters of Dagon battleships rose from the camps and the besiegers without the city, and advanced to beat us. The banners of Helium had been strung from stem to stern of each of our mighty craft, but the Zodagons did not need the sign to realize that we were enemies, for our green Martian warriors had opened fire upon them almost as they left the ground. With the uncanny marksmanship, they raked on the oncoming fleet with volley after volley. The twin cities of Helium, perceiving that this was friends, sent out hundreds of vessels to aid us, and then began the first real air battle that I had ever witnessed. The vessels carrying our green warriors were kept circling above the contending fleets of Helium and Zadanga, since their batteries were useless in the hands of the Tharks who, having no navy, have no skill in naval gunnery. Their small arm fire, however, was most effective, and the final outcome of the engagement was strongly influenced, if not wholly determined, by their presence. At first, the two forces circled the same altitude, pouring broadside after broadside into each other. Presently, a great hole was torn into the hull of one of the immense battlecraft from the Zodagon camp. With a lurch, she turned completely over, with the little figures on her crew plunging, turning, and twisting towards the ground a thousand feet below. Then, with a sickening velocity, she tore after them, almost completely burying herself in the soft loam of the ancient sea bottom. A wild cry of exhalation rose from Helamite's squadron, and, with a redoubled ferocity, they fell upon the Zodagon fleet. By a petty maneuver of two vessels of Helium gained a position above their adversaries, from which they poured upon them, from their keeled bomb batteries, a perfect torrent of exploding bombs. Then, one by one, the battleships of Helium succeeded in rising above the Zodagons, and in a short time, a number of the belligerent battleships were drifting hopelessly wrecks towards the high scarlet tower of Greater Helium. Several others attempted to escape, but they were soon sounded at a thousand tiny individual flies, and above each hung the monster battleship of Helium ready to drop boarding parties upon their decks. Within but little more than an hour from the moment a victorious Zodagon squadron had risen to meet us from the camp of the besiegers, the battle was over, and the remaining vessels of the conquered Zodagons were headed towards the cities of Helium and the prize crews. There was an extremely pathetic side to the surrender of these mighty flyers, the result of an age-old custom which demanded that surrender should be signalized by a voluntary plunging to the earth of the commander of the vanquished vessel. One after another, the brave fellows, holding their colors high above their heads, leapt from the towering bows of their mighty craft to an awful death. 
Not until the commander of the entire fleet took a fearful plunge, thus indicating the surrender of the remaining vessels, did the fighting cease, and the useless sacrifice of brave men came to an end. We now signaled the flagship of Helium's navy to approach, and when she was within hailing distance, I called out that we had Princess Dejathoros on board, and that we wished to transfer her to the flagship that she might be taken immediately to the city. As a full import of my announcement bore in upon them, a great cry arose from the decks of the flagship, and a moment later the colors of the Princess of Helium broke from the hundred points in the upper works. When the other vessels of the squadron caught the meaning of the signals, flashed them, they took up the wild acclaim and unfurled her colors in a gleaming sunlight. The flagship bore down upon us, and as she swung gracefully to and touched our side, a dozen officers sprang upon our neck. As their astonished gaze fell upon the hundreds of green warriors who now came forth from the fighting shelters, they stepped aghast. But at the sight of Cantus Khan, who advanced to meet them, they came forward, crowding about him. Dejathoros and I then advanced, and they had no eyes for any other than her. She received them graciously, calling each by name, for they were men in high esteem and service of her grandfather. And she knew them all well. Lay your hands upon the shoulder of John Carter, she said to them, turning towards me, the man to whom Helium owes her princess as well as her victory today. They were very courteous to me and said many kind and complimentary things, but what seemed to impress them most was that I had won the aid of the fierce Tharks in my campaign for the liberation of Dejathoris and the relief of Helium. You owe your thanks more to another man than me, I said, and here he is. Meet one of Barsoom's greatest soldiers and statesmen, Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of Thark. And with some polished courtesy that had marked their manner towards me, they extended the greetings to the great Thark. Nor, to my surprise, was he much behind them, in ease of bearing or in courtly speech. Though not in garrulous race, the Tharks are extremely formal, and their ways lend themselves amazingly to dignified and courtly manners. Dejathoris went aboard the flagship and was much put out that I would not follow, but, as I explained to her, the battle was but a partly won. We still had the land forces of the besieged Zodagans to account for, and I would not leave Tars Tarkas until that had been accomplished. The commander of the naval force of Helium promised to arrange to have the armies of Helium attack from the city in conjunction with our land attack, and so the vessels separated, and Dejathoris was born in triumph back to the court of her grandfather, Tardis Morse, Jeddak of Helium. In the distance lay our fleet of transports, with the thoats of the green warriors, where they had remained during the battle. Without landing stages, it was to be difficult matter to unload the beasts upon the open plain, but there was nothing else for it, and so we put forth point about ten miles from the city and began the task. It was necessary to lower the animals to the ground in slings, but this work occupied the remainder of the day and half the night. Twice we were attacked by parties of Dagon cavalry, but with little loss, however, and after darkness shut down, they withdrew. As soon as the last thoat was unloaded, Tarstarkus gave the command to advance, and in three parties we crept upon the Zedagan camp from the north, the south, and the east. About a mile from the camp, we encountered their outposts, and, as had been prearranged, accepted this as a signal to charge. 
With wild, ferocious cries, and amidst the nasty squealing of the battle-enraged notes, we bore down upon the Zadagans. We did not catch them napping, but found a well-entrenched battle line confronting us. Time after time, we were repulsed until, towards noon, I began to fear for the result of the battle. The Zadagans numbered nearly a million fighting men gathered from pole to pole. Wherever stretched their ribbon-like waterways, well pitted against them were less than a hundred thousand green warriors. The forces from Helium had not arrived, nor could we receive any word from them. Just at noon, we heard a heavy firing all along the line between the Zadagans and the city, and we knew then that our much-needed reinforcements had come. Again, Tarstarchus ordered the charge, and once more the mighty thoats bore the terrible riders against the ramparts of the enemy. At the same moment, the battle line of Helium surged over the opposite breastworks of the Zadagans, and in another moment, they were being crushed and as between two millstones. Nobly, they fought, but in vain. The plain before the city became a veritable shambles ere the last Zadagan surrendered. But finally, the carnage ceased. The prisoners were marched back to Helium, and we entered the greater city's gates, a huge triumphal procession of conquering heroes. The broad avenues were lined with women and children, among which were a few men whose duties necessitated that they remain within the city during the battle. We were greeted with an endless round of applause and showered with ornaments of gold, platinum, silver, and precious jewels. The city had gone mad with joy. My fierce stocks caused the wildest of excitement and enthusiasm. Never before had an armed body of green warriors entered the gates of Helium and that they came now as friends and allies filled the red men with rejoicing. That my poor services to Dejathoris had become known to the Helamites was evidenced by the loud crying of my name, and by the loads of ornaments that were fastened upon me and my huge throat as we passed by the avenues to the palace. For even in the face of ferocious appearance, Alvula the populace pressed close about me. As we approached the magnificent pile, we were met by a party of officers who greeted us warmly and requested that Tars Tarkas and his jets with the Jeddaks and the jets of his wild allies, together with myself, dismount and accompany them to receive from Tardis Moors an expression of his gratitude for our services. At the top of the great steps leading up to the main portals of the palace stood the royal party, and as we reached the lower steps, one of the number descended to meet us. He was almost a perfect specimen of manhood, tall, straight as an arrow, superbly muscled, and with the carriage and bearing of the ruler of men. I did not need to be told that he was Tardos Mors, Jeddak of Helium. The first member of our party he met was Tars Tarkas, and his first words sealed forever a new friendship between the races. That Tardus Mors, he said earnestly, may meet the greatest living warrior of Basub is a priceless honor, but that he may lay his hand on the shoulder of a friend, an ally, is far a greater boon. Jeddak of Helium, returned Tars Tarkas, it has remained for a man of another world to teach the green warriors of Basub the meaning of friendship. To him we owe the fact that the hordes of Thark can understand you, that they can appreciate and reciprocate the sentiment so graciously expressed. Tardis Morse greeted each of the green Jeddaks and Jeds, and to each spoke words of friendship and appreciation. 
As he approached me, he laid both hands on my shoulders. Welcome, my son, he said, that you are granted, gladly, and without one word of opposition, the most precious jewel in all of Helium. Yes, on all, Barsoom, is sufficient earnest of my esteem. We were then presented to Mors Kajak, Jed of Lesser Helium, the father of Digithorus. He had followed close behind Tardis Mors and seemed even more affected by the meeting than had his father. He tried a dozen times to express his gratitude to me, but his voice choked with emotion and he could not speak. And yet he had, as I was too late to learn, a reputation for ferocity and fearlessness as a fighter that was a remarkable even upon a warlike Barsoom. In common with all Helium, he worshipped his daughter, nor could he think of what she had escaped without deep emotion. End of chapter. Chapter 27. From Joy to Death. For ten days the hordes of Thok and their wild allies were feasted and entertained, and then, loaded with costly presents and escorted by ten thousand soldiers of Helium, commanded by Mols Konjak. They started their return journey to their own lands. The Jed of Lesser Helium with a small party of nobles accompanied them all the way to Thok to cement more closely the new bonds of peace and friendship. Solem also accompanied Tars Tarkas, her father, who before all the chieftains had acknowledged her as his daughter. Three weeks later, Mors Kojak and his officers accompanied by Tars Tarkas and Sola returned upon a battleship that had been dispatched to Thok to fetch them in time for the ceremony in which made Dejithoros and John Carter one. For nine years I served in the councils and fought in the armies of Helium as a prince of the house of Tardis Mors. The people seemed never to tire of heaping honors upon me, and no day passed that I did not bring a new proof of their love for my princess, an incomparable Dejithoros. In a golden incubator upon the roof of our palace lay a snow-white egg. For nearly five years, ten soldiers of the Jeddak's guard had constantly stood over it, and not a day passed when I was in the city that Dejathoris and I did not stand hand in hand before our little shrine planning for the future, when the delicate shell would break. Vivid in memory is a picture of the last night as we sat there talking in low tones with the strange romance which had woven our lives together, and of this wonder which was coming to augment our happiness and fulfill our hopes. In the distance, we saw a bright white light of an approaching airship, but we attached no special significance to the common sight. Like a bolt of lightning, it raced towards Helium until its very speed bespoke the unusual. Flashing the signals which proclaimed it the dispatcher bearer for the Jeddak, it circled impatiently, awaiting a tardy patrol boat which must convey it to palace docks. Ten minutes after it touched at the palace, a message called me to the council chamber, which I found filling with members of the body. On the raised platform of the throne was Tardis Moors, pacing back and forth with a tense, drawn face. When all were in their seats, he turned towards us. This morning, he said, Word reached several governments of Barsoom that the keeper of the atmosphere plant had made no wireless report for two days, nor had almost ceaseless calls upon him from a score of capitals elicited a sign of response. The ambassadors of the other nations have asked us to take the matter in hand and hasten to assistant keeper to the plant. All day a thousand cruisers have been searching for him until just now one of the returns bearing his dead body. 
which is found in the pits beneath his house, horribly mutilated by some assassin. I do not need to tell you what this means, Marsum. It'll take months to penetrate those mighty walls. In fact, the work has already commenced, and there would be little to fear were the engine of the pumping plant to run as it should, and as all have for a hundred years. But the worst, we fear, has happened. The instruments show a rapidly decreasing air pressure on all parts of Barsoom. The engine has stopped. My gentlemen, he concluded, we have at best three days to live. There was absolute silence for several minutes, and then a young noble arose with his drawn sword held high above his head and dressed in Utada's smalls. The men of Helium have prided themselves that they have ever shown Barsoom how a nation of red men should live. Now is our opportunity to show them how they should die. Let us go about our duties as though a thousand useful years stay lay before us. The chamber rang with applause as there was nothing better to do than to allay the fears of the people by our example. We went on with our ways, with smiles upon our faces and sorrow gnawing at our hearts. When I returned to my palace, I found that the rumor already had reached Dejithoris, so I told him all that I heard. We have been happy, John Carter, she said, and I think whatever fate overtakes us, that it permits us to die together. The next two days brought no noticeable change in the supply of air, but on the morning of the third day, breathing became difficult and the higher altitudes on the rooftops. The avenues and plazas of Helium were filled with people. All business had ceased. For the most part, people looked bravely into the face of the unalterable doom. Here and there, however, men and women gave way to grief. Toward the middle of the day, many of the weaker commenced to succumb, and within an hour the people of Bazoom were sinking by two thousand into an unconsciousness which preceded death by asphyxiation. Nedja Thoris and I, with the other members of the royal family, had collected in a sunken garden within the inner courtyard of the palace. We conversed in low tones, when we conversed at all as the awe of the grim shadow that crept over us. Even Wooler seemed to feel the weight of the impeding calamity. For he pressed close to Dejithoris and me, whining pitifully. The little incubator had brought from the roof to our palace at request of Dejithoris, and she sat gazing longingly upon the unknown little life that now she would never know. As it was becoming perceptibly difficult to breathe, Tardis Smalls arose, saying, Let us bid each other farewell. The days of the greatness of Barsoom are over. Tomorrow's sun will look down upon the dead world, which through all eternity must swing through the heavens peopled not even by memories. It is the end. He stooped and kissed the woman of his family and laid his strong hand on the shoulders of the men. As I turned sadly from him, my eyes fell upon Dejithoris. Her head was drooping upon her breast. To all appearances, she was lifeless. With a cry, I sprung to her and raised her in my arms. Her eyes opened and looked into mine. Kiss me, John Carter, she murmured. I love you. I love you. It is cruel that we must be torn apart, who was just starting upon life and love and happiness. As I pressed her dear lips to mine, an old feeling of uncurable power and authority rose in me. The fighting blood of Virginia sprang to life in my veins. It shall not be, my princess, I cried. There is... There must be some way. John Carter, who has fought his way through the strange world for love of you, will find it. And with my words there, I crept above the threshold of my consciousness mind, 
and a series of nine long-forgotten sounds. Like a flash of lightning in the darkness, there a full purport dawned upon me, the key to the three great doors of the atmosphere plant. Turning suddenly toward Tartusmoss, I still clasped my dying love to my breast and cried, A flyer, Jenik! Quick, order the swiftest flyer to the palace top! I can save Barsoom yet! He did not question, but in an instant a guard was racing to the nearest dock, and though the air was thin and almost gone at the rooftop, they managed to launch the fastest one-man air scout machine that the skill of Barsoom had ever produced. Kissing Dejathoris a dozen times and commanding Wula, who would have followed me to remain and guard her, I bounded with my old agility and strength to the high ramparts of the palace, and in another moment I was headed towards the goal of the hopes of all Barsoom. I had to fly alone to get sufficient air to breathe, but I took a straight course across the old sea bottom, so I had to rise only a few feet above the ground. I traveled with an awful velocity, for my errand was a race against time with death. The face of Dejathoris hung always before me. As I turned for the last look, as I left the palace garden, I'd seen her stagger and sink upon the ground beside the little incubator. That she had dropped into a last coma which would end in death, if the air supply remained unplenished. I well knew, and so throwing caution to the wind, I flung overboard everything but the engine and compass even to my ornaments, and lying on my belly along the deck with one hand on the steering wheel and the other pushing the speed lever to its last notch, I split the thin air of dying Mars with the speed of a meteor. An hour before dark, the great walls of the atmosphere part loomed suddenly before me, and with a sickening thud, I plunged to the ground before the small door which was withholding the spark of life from the inhabitants of the entire planet. Beside the door, a great crew of men had been laboring to pierce the wall, but they had scarcely scratched the flint-like surface, and now most of them lay in their last sleep, from which not even air would awaken them. Conditions seemed much more worse here than in helium, and it was with difficulty that I breathed at all. There were few men still conscious, and to one of these I spoke. If I can open the doors, is there a man that can start the engines? I asked. I can, he replied, if you can open quickly. I can last but a few moments more, but it is useless. They are both dead, and no one else upon Barsoom knew the secret of the awful locks. For three days, men crazed with fear have surged about this portal in vain attempts to solve its mystery. I had no time to talk. I was becoming very weak, and it was with difficulty that I controlled my mind at all. But with a final effort, I sank weakly to my knees. I hurled the nine thought waves at the awful thing before me. The Martian had crawled to my side and with the staring eyes fixed upon the single panel before us, waited in silence of death. Slowly, the mighty dolls receded before us. I attempted to rise and follow it, but I was too weak. After it, I cried to my companion, and if you reach the pump room, turn loose all the pumps. It is only chance the Barsoom has to exist tomorrow. From where I lay, I opened the second door, and then the third. And as I saw the hope of Barsoom crawling weakly on hands and knees through the last door, I sank unconscious to the ground. End of chapter. Chapter 28. At the Arizona Cave. It was dark when I opened my eyes again. Strange, stiff garments were upon my body. Garments that cracked and powdered away from me as I rose to a sitting posture. 
I bowed myself over from head to foot, and from head to foot I was clothed. Though, when I fell unconscious at the little doorway, I had been naked. Before me was a small patch of moonlit sky which showed through the ragged aperture. As my hands passed over my body, they came in contact with pockets, and in one of these small parcels of matches wrapped in oil paper. One of these matches I struck, and its dim flame lighted up what appeared to be a huge cave towards the back of which I discovered a strange, still figure huddled in a tiny bench. As I approached, I saw that it was a dead and mummified remains of a little old woman with long, black hair, and the thing it leaned over was a small charcoal burner upon which rested a round copper vessel containing a small quantity of greenish powder. Behind her, depending from the roof on a raw side thongs and stretching entirely across the cave, was a row of human skeletons. From the thong which held them stretched another dead hand of a little old woman. As I touched the cord, a skeleton swung into motion with a noise as the rustling of dry leaves. It was a most grotesque and horrible tableau, and I hastened out into the fresh air, glad to escape from so gruesome a place. The sight that made my eyes as I stepped upon the small ledge which ran before the entrance of the cave filled me with consternation. A new heaven and a new landscape met my gaze. The silvered mountains in the distance, the almost stationary moon hanging in the sky, and the cacti-studded valley below me were not of Mars. I could scarce believe my eyes, but the truth slowly forced itself upon me. I was looking upon Arizona from the same ledge from which ten years before I had gazed with a longing upon Mars. Bearing my hands in my arm, I turned, broken and sorrowful, down the trail from the cave. Above me shone the red eye of Mars holding her awful secret, 48 million miles away. Did the Martians reach the pump room? Did the vitalizing air reach the people of that distant planet in time to save them? Was my Dejithoris alive, or did her beautiful body lie cold in death beside the tiny golden incubator in the sunken garden of the inner courtyard of a palace of Tardis Malls? the Jedic of Helium. For ten years I had waited and prayed for an answer to my question. For ten years I have waited and prayed to be taken back to the world of my lost love. I would rather lie dead beside her than live on Earth all those millions of terrible miles from her. The old mind, which I found untouched, has made me fabulously wealthy. But what care have I for wealth? As I sit here tonight in my little study overlooking the Hudson, just twenty years have elapsed since I first opened my eyes upon Mars. I can see her shining in the sky through the little window by my desk, and tonight she seems to be calling to me again as she has not called before since that long dead night, and I think I can see across the awful abyss of space a beautiful black-haired woman standing in a garden of a palace. And at her side is a little boy who puts his arms around her as she points into the sky towards the planet Earth. While at her feet is a huge and hideous creature with a heart of gold. I believe that they are waiting for me, and something tells me that I shall soon know. End of chapter. And that brings the end of book one of the Barsoom series. Unfortunately, I don't know if or when I'll be doing the second book. This series didn't take off quite as I expected, so, um, yeah. 
Unfortunately, I do have to take these sorts of things into consideration when deciding what to do and when to do them. Hopefully, at some point in the future, I'll get some time and I can do book two. Thank you for understanding. Anyways, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a good one. Cheers.